Welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on call-in. This is episode 72. Hakeem Jeffries promotes anti-choice judge. Hakeem Jeffries is promoting anti-choice and anti-union judge Hector LaSalle for chief justice of the highest court. Hector identifies as a Democrat. Is the Democratic Party moving further to the right? Let's discuss. I want to hear from you guys because I want to know how this is even going down. Looks like Roger Roger got first in line for this one. Roger, what is up, dude? I know you're in New York. I can assure you that no one who listens to your show who lives in New York voted for Kathy Hochul. Okay? So... I want to lead with that. Um, I personally wrote in India Walton and Cynthia Nixon for governor, lieutenant governor. Um, mm. So I don't know how you felt about that, but. Um, <laughs> so let me just read why you some not, names uh, real quick. Why, why not Diane Sayre? Why not well, Diane? Oh, wait a for, minute. Uh, Never mind. She was anti-choice too. I just I forgot about that. Yeah, she was running for senator though. Oh Never. yeah, that's right. That's right. I forget. I forget. But um, so what? let me just read you some names real quick. Um, okay. Senator Gianaris. So he's the number two. Um, the I guess you could call him the whip. The 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 second in line, you know, the, the Senate Majority Leader, Andrew Stewart Cousins, like number two, whatever the case is. So he would be like next in line. Um, he was against, he's against the nomination. So that's one. Senator Robert Jackson, two. Senator Cordell Clear, three. Julia Salazar, four. Jabari Brisport, five. Kristen Gonzalez, uh, what am I up to, six? I forgot. Uh, Senator Jessica Ramos, uh, Senator Gustavo Rivera, who is the author of the New York Health Act, Shelley Mayer, Senator Michelle Henchy, Senator Rachel May, and Senator Summer Broke. So that's 12. So um, unless she gets two Republicans to come over, um, he's not going to get nominated because uh, a majority is 32. A, a veto-proof majority is 42. Democrats are 42. And 12 are against, which would bring it down to 30, making it too short for, um, to, you know, to, to, to uh, approve, um, confirm. Um, but, uh, do you think, you know, get, like, uh, sorry, Roger, do you think he could get Republican support, though? Could be. I'm. I'm. I'm not sure. Um. Maybe because when what I saw was they're probably gonna want something. You know what I'm saying in the in the budget because the the way the, the the way the budget works is New York State works opposite of all the other states. You learned in you learned in not to get too far away from, but I just have to give context. But. Just like how you learned in school, the power of the purse is with the legislative branch and executive branch vetoes. It's the opposite in New York State. When it comes to the state budget, it's an executive budget, right? So 
it's it it funds the gov state government from April Fool's Day to March thirty first. So, um, in the case of Shelley Silver, Speaker Shelley Silver versus Governor Pataki, they was fighting over who controls it, right? So the the um, the judge gave it to the to the governor. So the governor has all this power over the budget. So they get to put in what they want. And the legislature can put in what they want, but the governor has the right to kick their shit out or um, or alter it, but the legislature can't kick out what the governor puts in. The only thing the legislature could do, right, is to um, vote the entire budget down. And if that happens and it goes past the deadline, it goes into what they call a constitutional crisis, and they get even more the governor gets even more power over the budget. And the only way to change that is with a constitutional amendment. Okay. So I could see somehow, so the governor has complete control over the budget. So I could see a situation probably maybe using bail reform um, to reform bail reform, um, how the Republicans might use that to their advantage if they want, if you, you know, if you want us to vote for this uh, nominee. So, I'm just speculating, but they didn't, they didn't really, they held their cards close to the chest. You know, uh, Senator Ort, who is the uh, leader of the Republicans in the Senate. So he, they, they kind of was like hush, hush about it. So they're holding their cards close to the, to go close to their chest. So. So yeah. why do you think, um, why do you think Hakeem Jeffrey approves of LaSalle? Oh, I mean. Because he's a corporate uh, Democrat. I mean, this, this, you know, this, this, you know, it's pretty obvious. You know, he's. Um, I don't have any like inside information. I know the same thing, you know, about it as as you do. Um, you know, me. I just, uh, I mean, unless you're saying maybe there's something in it for him. I guess probably. Um, That's what I was wondering. This could be. Any- yeah, you know. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. But, you know, the funny thing is, you know, she's using, of course, identity, weaponizing identity politics. And it worked with some Hispanic uh, uh, senators, but it didn't work with a lot of Hispanic Latino senators. They're like, no, no, you ain't going to try to do that mess because you got to understand something. Um, The reason why we have a. So let me just say this. In New York State. The New York State Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the New York Court of Appeals. That's what he would be the chief justice of. And those are appointed positions. While those other courts you vote for, you know, little lower courts and stuff like that. So you have to understand um, the reason why it's mostly has been, um, and he served like 14 years, 16 years, something like that. So you have to understand that um, the reason why we have such a, corporate court is because not only because Cuomo was um, was governor since 2011, since the 2010 elections, but the Republicans control the Senate from um, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Um, they lost it for two years when Obama was elected. And then they won it. Then they won it back afterwards in that in that uh, 2010 uh, uh, red wave, whatever the case is. So 
they held the Senate from 2011 to 2018, you know, and, you know, that Cuomo's, like, first eight years. So that's the reason why, you know what I'm saying, it's, it's been stacked with uh, corporate-friendly, corporate-conservative-friendly. So, you know, just giving a little bit of background. That's interesting. But, All right, Roger, I'm going to, um, if you're finished, I'm going to go ahead yeah, and make yeah. you uh, a speaker. Yeah, no problem. I'm curious to hear I'll what other people you, have to say, too, because I, I know I'm pretty sure you have uh, a lot more to say. But I, I'm going to pivot to let me go ahead and make you a speaker. And then I'm going to pivot to uh, Samurai. Let me go ahead and make you the next caller. And I want to get your take on all of this. You just have to hit the unmute button. Because this is a mess. To me, it's just like, how can the Democratic Party say that they're, you know, for women's rights. And then you continue to see Democrat politicians support other, you know, whether it's a judge or lawyers or candidates that are anti-choice. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold water. Like your word means nothing right now at this point, if you're continuing to back people who are going to continue to try to suppress uh, a woman's right to, cho uh, to choose. Um, you just have to hit unmute samurai. And I'll, I'll wait a second. If it doesn't work, then I'll um, I'll make you a speaker because sometimes that fixes that issue. So yeah, let me go ahead and invite you to speak. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and bring in uh, Eric. Eric, you are on the mic. You just have to hit unmute. Hopefully it's not an issue with the with the app uh tonight but we'll see hopefully people can unmute sometimes that's a problem it's crazy though eric let me know in the chat if you if you can't unmute because what i may have to do is just to invite people as a speaker because sometimes this app is ay 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 it's wonky i tell you Okay, let me let me invite you to speak. I think that's what's happening. And I lost Samurai. Samurai, I'll invite you to speak as well because it's not, it seems like it's not letting people mute. So Roger, uh, one more thing while we're waiting on them, one more thing I was going to ask is, what do you think is, is happening in, in reference to the Democratic Party? Like, why do you think they are starting to they're approving some of these things. Like these are supposed to be, you know, Republican policies, so to speak. And here they are agreeing to some of those things. And I know you mentioned like corporate interest is one, but how come we haven't seen this before in the past? It might have not. Well, it, well particularly in New York. Um, well, I guess probably because it, it wasn't like really televised. Maybe there was an assumption that, you know, um, Oh, it's Democrat. You know what I mean? So it must be good. But you also, I don't know, maybe it's because Cuomo had a lot of, I mean, Cuomo had the same power that Kathy does, but Cuomo knew how to use power. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I talked to legislators who I knew before they were legislators, and they would tell me things about Cuomo that if you don't go along with the program, he will use government agencies against you. I remember I talked to Wood one staffer one time and he was like 
I'm talking about just shit, crazy shit, scared, scared of shit, just shook of, well, we don't want to, I say, yo, you could just do this. I was talking about like a public bank or whatever. I was like, yo, you guys could just, you know, you know, do a, uh, just do a veto. I mean, do a veto, do over, um, veto proof, uh, you know, pet, you know, pass it anyway, whatever. And it was like, Oh, but we don't want to embarrass the governor because then he'll take it, take it out on us. I mean, it was just like, damn. I mean, he had these legislators shook. I've never seen anything like that. I'm talking about just like gangster. You know what I mean? But, and the only ones that, the only ones that really fought against him were those senators who came in during the 2018 Cynthia Nixon AOC uh, uh, wave. You see what I'm saying? Um, they have just like, you know, remember, do you remember when, um, what do you call it? Uh, Amazon was going to open up that place, that tech center over there by Queensbridge projects. And there was this big protest about it. Yes. Uh, I remember you probably know. Right, right, right. So Cuomo really wanted it, right? But now remember how like AOC, they said, oh, AOC uh, uh, destroyed the opportunity to have it, to have a Amazon thing there. A- right. AOC didn't, didn't, she, whether you wanted it there or not, that was undue credit or undue blame. The people that actually were there were those state senators and those state lawmakers and Gianaris. Cause that's right by him who was just like, Oh hell no, we're not doing this. And then the, and then the unions were like, if you come here, we're going to force you to unionize. And Jeff Bezos was like, Oh fucking I'm out. I'm going to Virginia. You see what I'm saying? So they have been, um, I mean, just like, you remember when, um, Senator Ramos got into that little back and forth with AOC a while ago mm-hmm. saying, you don't even be at your office. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So they know, you know, even though I'm pissed at them for giving themselves a raise, they're still, I would say, these particular ones are to the left of of AOC and, and all those people. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, but no, they're, um, so yeah, they're always, it's, oh yeah, now I remember. So after that got defeated and um, like these particular Democrats who primaried the IDC, the Independent Democrat Conference, which were a bunch of Democrats that Cuomo created to caucus with Republicans to give the majority to the Republicans while they come back home to their district and say, hey, I'm a Democrat, until Ramos and Salad, all these people primaried them and, and, and Cynthia Nixon helped them and said, these guys are doing this. They're not really Democrat. They're doing this or whatever the case is. Those particular eight Got called in the got called to the um principal's office and like like Cuomo like I heard Cuomo like dressed them down and was yelling at them and whatnot and like Gustavo Rivera like they was always fighting with each other you, you see what I'm saying he did everything he could to try to to try to uh, diminish their power that like those were really the only ones that really stood up to Cuomo so what I'm saying is if they could stand up to him. They they probably see her as a pushover. You, you see what I'm saying? That's why. They, right. So it's just like, oh, we, we handle this guy. We could we could definitely handle her. You know what I mean? Let's but, bring in um, Eric. Oh, yes, Eric, yes. what's your take on all of this? Well, I mean, it, you know, I think in order for these guys to so blatantly be pushing for this guy who's clearly not the best candidate, and they're doing it out in the open, goes to show you 
how much you know power they have in terms of the mindset of people because they're out there blatantly pushing for this guy uh, and all the while I mean like the gal that was there at the church they pushed her out she didn't even get to really speak or say anything uh, they they're basically you know just bogarting just pushing forward with what they want and there has to be a pro quo or a what is it called um there has to be a reason why they're having this guy why they're pushing him uh to be in that position and it has to be that 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 they're going to do they're going to get something out of it 100 percent, right. right so what, whatever it is that this guy's going to hold the cards to is why they're doing this on his on his behalf that they're going to leverage him in the future either obviously for what whatever he's going to be voting is going to be to their benefit uh but you know here's the opportunity for us it's just a matter of, of getting one opportunity to show them how blatantly stupid they are that they're not actually doing anything on behalf of people if if we were to get one you know if somebody could get the mic in front of this the, this gal uh and do it just the right framing and the right uh you know light so to speak we, we could blow her up really quickly because it wouldn't take that much. I mean, it's just an opportunity to get in front of her, ask her the question w- without no qualms or saying, hey, why are you doing this? You're, you're blatantly doing this for the wrong reasons. So why are you doing this? Why are you lying to the people of New York? Uh, and we can, um, you know, essentially leverage that against her. If, if we could get somebody with a mic right in front of her that would ask her the right questions. Uh, and even uh, Jeffrey. If somebody was to ask them the right questions, we could also put that uh, very quickly and, and make uh, that into the, the news cycle if we could do it right away. Uh, we don't have anybody. You know, there's nobody out there in the mainstream media or even close to the mainstream media that would do that on behalf of us. But it wouldn't take that much, Savvy. I mean, to sort of turn and flip the coin on them, if we could do it, uh, I think in, 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 in maybe in the year to come or years to come, we're going to have that voice because you could see uh, the RBN channels growing. Other channels are still growing uh, and these other other uh, channels are not. Uh, and, and it was interesting because you were doing a show on how you know, uh, I can't remember. It was your news, uh, your latest clip where you were showing how they're going after all these prominent, not real leftists per se. But the mainstream media was uh, framing them to be left, like uh, Glenn and. Uh, oh uh, yeah, you're talking Tulsi, about the right? clip with uh, it was Glenn Greenwald, Tulsi Gabbard, Matt Taibbi, and Jimmy Dore. That smear article from MSNBC. That's right, and the reason they're doing that is because they have to do that now because we're gaining steam, we're gaining energy in what we, you know, like the the ecosystem that we have none of the other uh shows are doing that you know cable is pretty much dead and the reason the cable's still out there is because you got the 65 the baby boomers who are still buying into it but they're you know they're slowly you know in a sense dying off i guess you could say uh and that's going to be gone i mean within the next 10 15 years a lot of that's going to be gone and everything's going to be basically what you're doing savvy the news is going to be essentially the platforms that you guys are creating today is what it's going to be in the next 10 or so years and uh do you think that scares people eric it doesn't scare the younger generations and i don't think it scares anybody who's below 30 
or even I want to say even as high as 40. But but I think the people in power who are more than likely in their 50s and up, it definitely scares them because, you know, they have they have to sort of position themselves for the future. And that means money for them and money for all the uh, those people that are around them. So it definitely scares them. Uh, and that's why they've been using the power that they have to diminish shows like yours, shows that are against the mainstream media. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the fact that, that you have Elon Musk going, going out to buy the, the company that he bought. I, I think hey, Eric, I'm 52. I'm not scared. What was that? Roger said he's 52. He's not. He wants you to know he's 52. He's not afraid. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. No, I'm, I'm not saying that, 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 that all people that are 50 are scared. But you got to remember, Roger is not your typical 52-year-old because he's got his mind where it should be, right? He, he's been able to grasp all everything that's going on. But a lot of 52-years-old folks, it's not their fault. I mean, we get bombarded with all the mainstream media from the day we're born, from the, from the commercials that we see, the movies that we, we see. Everything is marketed from the mainstream agenda. So it's very difficult. It's almost like gravity. You know, like pulling yourself and trying to, you know, fly off the earth. That's not an easy thing to do. So if, if Roger's in that place, it's because he's done a lot of homework, self-reflection, read a lot. But the majority of 52-year-old people are not like Roger. They're more in the mindset of the mainstream media, even if they're smart, articulate, and good people, because the, the, the psyche that's built into our systems and our mindsets are so powerful it's it's like a formal gravity. It's hard. It's in there and you can't see it. I hear what you're saying. I think, um, I mean, when I think back to talking to like some of my students about, you know, media, they didn't watch any of the stuff. Like they didn't watch mainstream media at all. They're not even thinking about it. <laughs> They're just like, I'm not watching CNN or, and actually I'm thinking about like when I was an undergrad, I didn't watch that either. The only news I watched when I was in college, and some of you might laugh at this, but I used to watch the Weather Channel. Have you guys ever watched the Weather Channel? Yeah. You know why I used to watch the Weather Channel? Because I took a class. I told you guys I majored in um, broadcast journalism and English. Well, one of the classes that I had to take, it was weather reporting. And what I didn't know when I took that class is that they weren't just going to teach you how to report the weather. They also taught you uh, the scientific parts that go along with it. So long story short, the class was harder than a lot of us thought it was going to be. We just thought we were going to show up there and they were going to show us how to work with a green screen and how to report the weather on the news. That was part of it. But the other part of it was, and this is where we had the exams, the other piece was you had to actually know what causes a tornado or tornado and not just like, oh, humid air. And then da, da, da. I'm talking about all the fucking details. So we would get these exams and the exams were essay only, which I freaking hated. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know some people hate multiple choice. Some people have told me they can't stand true or false. I get that, too. But his exams were essay only. So he would ask you a question. But you can never just answer the question with one sentence. You had to answer each question with a minimum of a paragraph because he wanted you to show that you actually understood what yeah. was causing like this type of the type of weather. So anyway, long story short, I used to watch the Weather Channel 
because on the Weather Channel, they would explain that. Like they, the Weather Channel runs 24 seven and they would have people come on and they would explain like, let's talk about this atmospheric pressure and what causes <laughs> such and such. And what I learned too, was that the Weather Channel can be very soothing. Like if, if you're trying to fall asleep, you can put on the Weather Channel, <laughs> it'll put you yeah. to sleep. But, but yeah, like other than that, I wasn't watching CNN, MSNBC. I didn't watch any of that stuff. I think the one time I turned on the news was when, um, was that right after he announced we were going to, it was 9-11. And that was because I was told to turn on the news. Hmm. Yeah, it was 9-11. And after that, I was like, I don't really want to watch like watch news because I, I grew up with it like my dad used to always watch the news when he came home from work so it was just like when he was watching the news we watched the news and i always thought the news was very boring but um i think you have a point there cnn's ratings have been continuing to decline i'm not sure about msnbc but i know cnn is one that they've mentioned multiple times their ratings continue to drop they got new management i guess to try to fix that it hasn't fixed they demoted don lemon who still says he wasn't demoted i'm sorry when you go from primetime show to a morning show that's a demotion guys so they're trying i guess do things to make things different to help that but the numbers just don't lie in fact the only news network that is actually doing pretty well is fox news yeah it's crazy and that's because they have a stronghold on that that uh, uh, you know the, the the older folks too, which make up a lot of the, the the center part of the country, Texas, and all these other states, the red states, I guess, if you will, and and even here in California too, the demographics that they that they actually appeal to are still there in terms of the older guys and whatnot, uh, but. The mainstream media is also making its way through the newer the newer platforms like Instagram, because I see a lot of stuff on Instagram, and in some ways Instagram is, is in, it's in the infancy state of where it potentially could go, but you could see a lot of stuff on Instagram in the way that that uh, images and memes are put together, uh, and and the majority of them portray the mainstream media agenda. Uh, all the you know stereotype images, wh whatever it is, it's all there. And there's a lot of uh, pla a lot of channels. I don't know if you call them channels, but a lot of pages on Instagram that if you if you look into them, you could see that whoever's promoting them has an agenda uh, that's not a good one for the majority of us. Uh, and in fact, they dumb us down. In fact, they make us dumber than what we are. Uh, and you can do uh, anybody could do a little bit of an experiment. If you if you take yourself off any mainstream media for any extended period of time, you'll become far more aware of what truly is happening. If you just don't watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox, for that matter, and just focus on independent media, you'll become far more astute as to what's going on. Uh, I mean, that's kind of how I, you know, for me, speaking for myself, that's how I come to be where I am today. I stopped watching uh, mainstream media, I think, almost 13 years ago or so, um, just because of things that happened in my life, but not not by choice. It wasn't by choice. It was just, you know, stuff that sort of happened, and I evolved into where I am today. Uh, and and I started noticing that the less I watched t TV, the more I was open-minded to certain things the more I could expand my mind, if you will. And then it was easier for me to accept listening to, you know, 
different things and sort of looking at different perspectives just by me taking myself off watching the mainstream media. Uh, and then what I started to see was that the guy, the people that I knew that were, that are still watching it, their mindset is exactly what, what they want it to be. So if, if you speak yes. to someone who's, who, if you speak to anyone who's not watching the mainstream media, you'll pick that up right away versus somebody who's watching the news, the regular news, they have all the propaganda, whether it's the Russia gating, uh, whether they, you know, completely believe that Trump was evil and, and all these things that are in our ecosystem, very uh, apparent to us, to them, they can't see it savvy. It's like, they don't know that they're inside of that bubble that the mainstream media has created for them. That's why it's so difficult for us to break through because the majority of them, albeit good people, they don't know that they're in that, that they're actually be, being propagandized actively all the time. So for us, our ecosystem's so tiny, we can see through it, but it's just not enough of us, you know, so. And, Kim and Iverson told me the very first time she came on my show, she said she felt that the media was the most dangerous of all the things that we have to deal with because she said, and she's right in the sense that they control the narrative and that's what most people who are watching news, that is what they usually watch, right? Um, I'm, I'm glad some things are changing. I will say it is, I find it to be incredibly annoying that CNN and MSNBC and Fox News are on YouTube. I find that to be incredibly annoying because they're on cable and if people want to watch them, they're going to watch you on cable. Why do you have to be on YouTube? Yeah, th that's right. And, and, you know, I've actually this past year, I mean, I've had small conversations with people that I'm really, you know, fr like friends for life. And they couldn't take some of the things that I was not even arguing, but just challenging what they were saying. Some people can't take it, man. And that's why I say I use the, the term smart, intelligent people. They're so propagandized that if you have a conversation with them, challenging what they believe things to be, they can't take it, man. They'll start arguing and almost like verbally fighting with you because you're crumbling the, the foundation that they believe in. That's the other thing. People believe what they believe, you know, uh, what they've been taught. And if you start challenging that, uh, they start to like get worried that everything that they believe is incorrect. Uh, and, and usually what people do uh, when they're put into that stress, they, they fight and push back. Um, so, it's very challenging to bring people to our side or have them open-minded enough, if that Can makes sense. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. How was your conversation with the older crowd that doesn't watch the news? How was my conversation with them? Yeah. You know, you know, like my neighbors are pretty old. I think the, the, the guys that live next to me, I think they're like in their, I think they may be close to 70. I, I tend to not approach certain subjects with them uh, because I don't want to be a conflict, you know, create conflict between me and them because they live right next to me. Uh, right. So I tend to not get into politics with but, them because I, I don't want to get into that no, point where I'm creating a conflict with them. Uh, so I, I don't approach. No, no, that but what I mean. Is, no, but I mean your conversations with because you were just talking about people who do mm -hmm. watch traditional news and you have this conflict. I was asking 
What oh, okay. do you have conversations with those who just don't watch the news? How, how are those conversations? With the people that are that are more like us, or the people that don't know about what we are listening to, you're saying, Roger. They they just don't watch the news, whether whether it's or you know like it it, it might if they watch it's like a drive by watch, you know. You know what? The airport. So, uh, let me. I'm trying to think if I know anybody who doesn't listen to. Well, what I find with those people that don't watch the news, they tend to be more willing to listen to what I'm saying. Yep. So they're more open minded to the possibilities of what could be, right? So that's the answer I was looking for. I yeah, figured. The, the, yeah, the possibilities of what could be versus what what I'm when I'm coining, you know, like I know these guys that are, you know, that, that I went to college with, my roommates, all engineers, you know, very smart, like, you know, way smarter than me. Um, and some of them, they can't see past the, the, the bullshit. Uh, they can't. And these are guys that, you know, I mean, they're way smarter than me, but they can't, they can't see past the BS. Uh, and I almost don't want, you know, like I said, one of them got really angry with me this past year where I was challenge, challenging his, his, his view on the Ukraine and the fact that we were funding this. And he couldn't take it, man. He just stopped talking to me. And, he, you know, <laughs> he, 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 yeah, he called me a, a, a Putin lover. And, and and he started like just go off on me. And mind you, I never disrespected him. I didn't, you know, he somehow thought that I was calling him stupid because I was challenging what he was saying. But I never called him any names. But he couldn't take it, man. He could not take the fact that I was saying, "Why are we going to do this? We need the money here at home. Why are we going to send the money over there? It doesn't make sense." And I, and I started to make points to him where I said, "Hey, remember nine eleven? I said, uh -huh. you remember exactly. what happened in nine -11? You remember what happened in 9-11? They lied to us. And, yep. and so, so what happened? And, and, I, and I made the point to him to say, a million Iraqis died. And those guys are dark skinned like you and I. Mm -hmm. they, they look more like us, I said. The, and nobody talks about that. So now we're going to send all this money to go fight the, the war in Ukraine. And it's not going to help us at all. So, so I, I never have just, these. You couldn't take oh, sorry. You couldn't take I don't think. I don't think it's really helping them either because, I mean, yeah, we're giving them more more money, more weapons and things like that. But the longer this continues, the more people die on both sides. People talk about this. Well, I'll say people. Mainstream media, when they talk about this, they make it seem like we got to keep giving them more weapons so that they can they can win and defeat Putin. And they talk about it as though it's only people on the Russian side that are dying, and it's not. Ukrainians are dying too. So the longer this continues, I mean, this whole that whole statement that was made about fighting until the last Ukrainian—that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like, what are you talking about? You're willing for everyone to die just so you can prove a point? Like, this is ridiculous to me. But I agree with you there, Eric. Like, when I tell people, if you present any other narrative about Ukraine people lose their fucking minds like yeah. especially the people that have like the flags and they have like the, and what kills me is the black people and, and roger i know you know what i'm talking about but it, it kills me <laughs> when i see like black people with the ukrainian flag in their bio and shit and then i'll say stuff like why don't you have like a palestinian flag in your bio you know why right. not a, a flag for a haitian flag in your bio why not you know the, the countries where, where people you know look more like you and and are struggling and 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 are and are being like 
you know, are, are, are devastated right now because of the way, you know, they've been treated. And they just look at me as though I have three heads. That's right. I don't know what black people you're talking to. That kind of <laughs> the Ukrainian flag. I don't know any black person. <laughs> look on, look on Twitter. Look on social like, media. What? Seriously, look on Twitter. You see it on LinkedIn. You see it on Twitter. You see it on Facebook. Like, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, come on. I don't see anybody with, uh, I don't know, um, a symbol in their bio that says, uh, I stand with Africa. <laughs> where are the people who have these you know except for the people who are from there you know so th these are the kind of questions we need to start asking ourselves like how we're being like propagandized in this country it's ridiculous I, it, and it, it I works think, I, it, it works that, that propaganda I, I, I tell you just really quick didn't mean to cut you off Roger but I had another conversation uh, with the same guy but it was you know on a text message it was like multiple was up of us talking um, and, and one of the guys was completely, you know, he, he mentioned Jimmy Dore. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these guys who I consider to be good people, uh, they also have this thing against Jimmy Dore. Uh, and they all buy into it, you know, that they think that anything that Jimmy Dore promotes essentially is wrong, you know, for lack of a better word. So that propaganda by the by the mainstream media against Jimmy Dore and, and the likes of, of Jimmy, it works, man. That 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 the way that you know the people receive that information, it really works because, uh, you know, like I said, I try to have a conversation with these guys, and as soon as they hear Jimmy Dore, it's like they almost like okay, I'm not listening to this anymore. Jimmy's bad. That's how they see it. <laughs> but what you gotta also understand is that the more they talk about him, the more he grows. It's true. You know, Eminem talked about this one time. I remember, I don't know if you guys all remember this. I don't know everyone's age, like in the chat, but I remember when they were trying to ban Eminem. Yeah. I remember yeah, this. And you know up. what happened? He sold more records. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, J J Jimmy's still growing. I mean, his show is, is you know, continues to go up. The shows that are not growing are Secular Talk, uh, even even breaking points. You got to remember, breaking points has got a big machine behind them, and they're not growing like they should. Uh, so they're all, you know, they're coming down, man. Those other shows that keep blatantly lying to to the folks here online, they're not going to go anywhere. I, I really think that shows like RBN have the right strategy. I mean, obviously the message is correct. If if the YouTube algorithm did not suppress you guys, I, I'm pretty sure you guys would be, you know, closer to half a million people, if not a million, or that's what I think, anyways. So, Sabby. But yes, yeah, Sabby, I, I don't, I, I don't want to oh, take, take up more of your time. I just want to say, you know, uh, you know, the last episodes that you guys have been doing have been really awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed, you know, your take on what's going on with, with uh, Ryan Grimm, and uh that's been good <laughs> they run the ryan grim stuff savvy stop following brian gumbel and, and uh don lemon then you'll see less ukrainian flags <laughs> i don't follow those people i'm talking about like everyday people not even like commentators or journalists but just like everyday black folk that's like yeah stand with ukraine and i'm like what is happening here like what, why not stand with somalia <laughs> why not stand with Palestine? Why not, why not stand with Jackson and Flint? Exactly. Where's all that? Like, what? 
what the what? Like that's right here at home. Let me go ahead and bring in Zach because uh, I know he's been waiting a bit. Zach, I want to get your take on all of this. How do you feel about Hakeem Jeffries supporting, you know, LaSalle, who's anti-choice and anti-union? And how do you feel about where the Democratic Party is headed? Well, so, hi, Sabby. I hope your night's going well. Um, I appreciate everyone who's been speaking. You know, I you guys are some of the smartest on Colin. Um, I will say that I'm not surprised. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a false question a little bit. Um, the Democrats can't move really further to the right. Um, in my opinion, uh, you know, what do they have? The Democrats have abortion and gay marriage. Um, the, Economics, they're uh, hand-in-hand with the Republicans. War, same ideology. Um, So I think we have to keep that in mind when when we're talking about the duopoly. Um, They're really not all that different. They they tried to, like, it's, excuse me, really interesting. Um, AOC is the best case study for this. She tries to pass herself off as a leftist or progressive or, you know, good liberal uh, when she does things that you guys, Jimmy Dore, uh, report on. And the rest of the squad, I, um, Ilhan Omar is guilty of it, uh, Rashida Tlaib, all of them, they, they do blatantly anti-progressive stuff, voting for war. Um, for me... Uh, the last last straw was breaking the strike uh, for the union workers. So um, uh, the Democrats are just right, just right wingers, and um, uh, they they get to play on our sympathies for marginalized communities uh, to garner support for our votes. That's true. I agree 100%. And I think you're right that a would be a really good case study for that, because look at all the things that she said and look at how she's turned out. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point about the strike breaking, because I did notice even some people who I know are AOC stands. After that happened, even they were criticizing her on social media. And it's just I- got a break. <laughs> Yeah, I think for some people, that was just like the final, that was the nail in the coffin, was just like, mm-hmm. wait a second, like, what what is happening here, you know? And then to also see the Republicans or the Freedom Caucus um, from the Republican Party, to see them force the vote, whether, again, whether people agreed with their concessions or not, they still forced the vote. You have to remember someone like Lauren Bobart barely won. She barely won this time around and she still was willing to force the vote. That's the difference. We don't have those type of uh, fighters in the Democratic Party, I would say. We just don't have it. We thought we did with the squad, but we don't have that. So you got to ask, why is it, again, that they're willing to even put their seat at risk? Because like I said, Lauren Bobart barely won this time around. Like it was Mm -hmm. very close. And she's still willing to stand up and fight for what she thought, at least on her end, was right. 
Uh, same thing with Matt Gates. Like he had made a statement that said, look, if I have to quit, then I'll just quit. It's just, I mean, to fight to the end, to the tooth and the nail. And the other thing too, that I think some people were upset about mainly mainstream media is the fact that they showed the entire country that you can actually push back on the speaker and get what you want. Yeah. And which I think, um, that is why AOC has in the past couple of weeks, um, been at war with um, Lauren Boebert, who is actually one of my representatives, unfortunately. But um, she, like you said, they people have seen uh, that the the most basic. I I can't stress this point enough. When going on shows or commenting in like uh, Jimmy Dore uh, live stream, it's basic politics. Do this stuff. You want my vote? Here's what you're gonna do for me. If not. You're not getting my vote. Um, you don't even, like, we've talked about procedural stuff that they could do um, to block bills and stuff. Not even that. You don't even have to do that. You you just say, if you are for real in what you say to get whatever bills you want passed, and not, in my opinion, uh a pro wrestler shill for the establishment and the billionaires, you, um, you, I, damn, I lost my train of thought, but you, you get what I mean. Like, um, they, they, they can't see, um, people like Lauren Boebert, AOC, it's kind of her id, um, you know, especially with force the vote. Um, I didn't do this. Um, how dare you do this and be successful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think it will be very telling come 2024. Come 2024, if Democrats take back the House, then we're probably looking at Hakeem Jeffries being up for Speaker, right? Which speaker of the House. So much a travesty for me. Like, it, oh, I, that, mm-hmm. that man is, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, and even after what has happened with the Freedom Caucus, do you guys think that they are going to try to force a vote against Hakeem Jeffries? They well, were scared to do it against Nancy Pelosi. I seriously doubt they're going to try to do it against uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who, for one, they'll be like, oh, be the first black speaker of the House. How dare you try to force mm-hmm. force any concessions from him? Yep. And so, you know, the conspiratorial cynic part of my mind is it's forced um opposition or i don't yeah um like a coercion thing for uh they they get their parts to play um that the the republicans um get to do the what we would want the the tactics to force the vote so the the squad members and the rest of the quote-unquote progressives get to say Look at these bad people breaking procedure and precedent. Um, we have to stand with our leaders um, and get things back to business. Noel, I want to bring you in here. I want to get your take on this. You just have to unmute. There you go. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's nice to be back in the in the service again. Um, <laughs> You know, I am not that deep or familiar with New York politics. 
So I look at it in a broader framing and what's troubling to me beyond who Hakeem Jeffries is and the ideologies he represents is that in a situation where the governor is making an appointment, he, um, as a national politician, was called back into the state level to get involved in this way to lobby for this man. And from what I had heard about um, LaSalle, it's not just that some of his decisions or opinions leaned right, but that he was aggressively so, that he went out of his way to make statements in the voice of the court that were particularly damaging to the populist cause. And so I say, okay, I say to myself, Hakeem comes in. Then my next question is, well, where is the AOC? And where are the other nationally elected um, officials from New York State coming to weigh in as a counterbalance to Hakeem Jeffries? And it's troubling to me that he comes in to support Hochul in this effort to get LaSalle in position when the locally elected Democrats in the state Senate are saying, um, no, this is not going to work for us and for these reasons. But what's troubling is no one is really in a major way being held to account for these efforts. Nobody is calling you know, Hakeem Jeffries out in a major way. And when I look at what goes on in the United States, I often juxtapose it within the context of what we see going on internationally, you know, like in Brazil or other South American um, countries. And you see all this vociferous protesting and this, that, and a third. But the American electorate is so relatively... Um, meek and silenced on the everyday issues, if it is not something life or death, like Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd, the American public just doesn't really mobilize so much agree 100%. around mm -hmm. social issues. I mean, you had some kerfluffle around Trump saying he grabbed the woman by the um, vagina and then you had some outrage amongst the women about um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. But there is never like a strong intersectional grassroots mobilization. There is no left in this country. Mm -hmm. It always breaks down around race and class within um, and race as a proxy for class within class being that we are economically perhaps in the same milieu, but you can break us down by race. There is nothing that unifies the grassroots that overcomes race. And so when I do my analysis of these types of issues and the broader American electorate, I see those issues playing out. It is no mystery to me that the um, far right of the Republican Party can push and lobby and leverage their power within party to push us way over the edge, right? But there is no counterbalance to the left because no one is going to push 
what the left of the right really represents. Because see, if the Lauren Boberts and uh, Mike Getz and those type of people push the Republican right even further right, there is no real loss of traction or support on the right. They're all still very right wingers, but you just got some who are really willing to take you over the cliff. On the Democrat side, there is no parallel. If you have, if you had a progressive group attempting to push the entire Democratic Party to the left, you get a breakdown within the party. And there is a real sense of loss if that left is pushing hard. And so you have the Democrats who will, you know, push vociferously against that faction and vilify them. And like Hakeem Jeffries, you know, try and defeat the progressives in this and that. And I think it all goes back to that alignment of the constituencies. You know, I think the right being embodied mostly by the Republicans have more wiggle room to do things on the right because their constituency is more homogenous. It is clear where they stand in response to big money. No one has a problem because the one difference is in the Republican side and Trump drove this point home, they are willing to reinforce the idea of white privilege. And I think that alone is enough for the poor and working poor white people who are Republican. They can stomach all the other stuff because they're like, they are at least ensuring, you know, white privilege and that they derive identity. So it's a whole different dynamic. But if you move to the left of the Republicans, which would be the Democrat, Again, there is no one who's going to fight because they risk losing, you know, some of their milk toast white constituencies if you really push the issues that have to do with the descendants of slaves and reparations and this and that. So those become non-starters on the Democrat side. So I think it really tames the way the Democrats are willing to move because at the end of the day, we're in what I believe to be a early stage of fascism because we have allowed the corporate community to completely game the system. So everybody's competing for those that corporate financing and this and that. And the Democrats have to do it in a more constricted way because they have to be careful for the diversity of their constituents. Whereas on the Republican side, they can just do it outright, this and that, and there is no real penalty. And I think we saw that with the Bernie Sanders campaign, because when he spoke really to the needs of the poor and working poor and refused to integrate or insert the issues that could cause the polarity around race, which is reparations, he, he stayed away from it. He wouldn't touch it because he knew it would polarize or there was a chance that it would polarize that base of just populist issues. So he wouldn't go there. So I think the entirety of the American political class concedes that this nation is really white supremacist and the way they organize themselves and their politics around it 
differs because of, like I say, between the Democrats and the legacy and lens that the Democrats have a historical perspective of representing, which we really know they don't. But, you know, people see and take the descriptors of Democrat or Republican as a type of lens through which to see their politics. And they don't update that lens. And so, you know, when we speak, an earlier um, guest spoke about, you know, the fact that people, young people, are more attuned to the independent media and they don't listen to the network media as much, but older people do, yada, yada, yada. That speaks to that framing. And so when you talk to the older generation or the people who lean to the networked media in a more um, overarching way, it's harder to have the discourse with them about, you know, the Democrats don't really represent what they used to back in your day. And that's a very difficult because people are depending upon the, the Democrat or Republican label to kind of split the universe of what's really going on so they don't have to do the additional work. And I think when you suggest to people, oh, the Democrats aren't what they used to be and the Republicans are far worse than they used to be, that invites people to have to dial in closer and work harder. And I think a lot of people are just not willing. And my my great concern is that the young people who are more open to the idea of seeing, you know, things in a different way. My great concern is they have not dialed in deep enough to realize that they need to get active, really active right now. They're, everybody is so busy surviving and trying to make their way into economic safety that they're really not realizing that it is not going to be available. And that's my great concern. And I spoke to it last cycle that I believe there is a hollowing out that's going on and there is a big gap in between the people who see what's coming and the people who are just being distracted by entertainment and just living their lives and thinking everything is okay. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to really fall into a chasm. And I think it's just like Chris Hedges suggested When that time comes where it all comes apart, there is not, there may not be this long period of seeing it coming. There will be one or two cataclysmic things that are going to break it. And then everything is going to be in disarray. And that's, that's my great concern. Do you think that, that, um, I want to ask you, I want to ask you something real quick. Last time you were here, you asked, um, Sabrina, to give you some uh, information on public banking. Do yes. you you want? I could give it to you. You, you um, maybe you could get put your Twitter account in the in the chat. I, I could, um, was permanently banned on Twitter for uh, saying some inflammatory language about uh, oh. some politics stuff. All right, Zach. Oh, okay. <laughs> you bad boy. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask Noel real quick, um, or say, I think that is the great dichotomy of 
this maybe end age, I, I think it might be of America that we want things, we need things so bad. Like I, I'm a permanently disabled person. Um, and my condition's never going to change. I, I need what I, what I need, right? Healthcare. And you're kind of talking about like, we need to fight um, and organize, but uh, it's, it's hard to do that when our, our needs are um, not being met. So in my head, my question, and it always is like, how do we even begin to like rectify that in our heads or think about it? Like, Holy crap. Like it's a, like a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario. And I, I think we're damned either way. I think this is where, um, and I'll pass it to you, Noel. I think this is where community is really, is going to be really important. And this is why I I do try to stress this a lot. I know sometimes you guys are probably like, she mentioned this again. It is very important that you establish community. And I know with my generation, I'm a millennial, and I'd also say the Gen Z too. It's been really difficult. And the reason being is we are kind of known for being mobile. I mean, I, I can't, with the exception of Massachusetts, I, you know, Boston area, Massachusetts, I can't think of a city that I've lived in for more than four years. I just can't. Like, it, it just, because. Is that for have, economic reasons or just, you know, millennial flavor? That's a good question. I, I would say, like, part of it was job job reasons mm-hmm. like in order to get a certain type of job i had to move to a place where those jobs were available that's part of the reason why a lot of us have moved around a lot because those job opportunities just weren't offered where we lived or where we were at that time that's part of it the other part of it too is just life experiences um so i think some of us and, and i say some of us those of us, I would say, that don't have kids, those of us where it's it's easier for us to pick up and move, right? Because my friends that have kids, it's not easy for them to do that. And most of them have lived in the same city or town, like since we've been, since we graduated undergrad, because they have a family. So it's not that easy for them to just say, hey, I want to live in this city now, just pick up and move the whole family, right? Um, but life experiences, like, for me, and I think you'll see this with part of the, like some of the Gen Z kids as well, is like, I learned, I would say years ago, that it was more valuable for me, instead of having possessions, to have life experiences. So Ooh, if that, that is meant, that dichotomy that that yeah, has changed in the last few decades that um, yeah, put the so Joneses kind of materialism, yeah. Yeah, so I have I had trade-offs. Uh, if that meant that I don't get to have a new car, then I don't have a new car. I, I, I've always had a used car. Like, I've never had a brand new car. But I've had excellent life experiences. If that means I can go to concerts, if that means that I can travel, like, to me, that's more important than having a brand new car. That's more important than, I don't know, buying an expensive pair of shoes. And I have friends of mine who or on the other side of that spectrum, but they also tend to be more settled. Like they, they have kids, like multiple kids and they've been, they've been married for like years and, and things like that. And like, I'm married, but like, I haven't been married like as long as they have. So I think 
we are just in different places. And some of you in the chat, you may be in a similar situation where you and your friends may be in different places in your life in the sense that it was easy for me to just pick up my stuff and say, okay, I think I want to go to grad school now. I'm going to go to grad school in Boston and I'm going to move. My friends couldn't do that. The ones that had kids, they couldn't do that. Because if, if they're like, they wanted to go back to school, they had to do it where they were. They couldn't just pick up the whole family and say, all right, to their husband, you have to find a job, a new job now, because this is what I want to do. It's not just their decision. So I think it was easier for me to do that. And, you know, some people will look at that and say, but then you don't have something tangible to hold on to. But I have the memories though, you know? I think that is a the human experience like uh distilled down because i pontificate on that often um if if you don't have the the pictures and uh the the souvenirs or whatever from your travels or your life uh if uh you know knock on wood it it never happens but um you get dementia for say or uh alzheimer's does that um the loss of that experience um, take away from the value that you've gained in your life? No, because I mean, I have the pictures and mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that same thing can happen to someone who's not doing those life experiences, who chooses to not do that. They can still forget if they got dementia, they can forget like who their kids are, you know, that, yeah. things like that. But I, I think that you know, that's, that's what works for me. And, and I say this not being someone that was just like, I had all this money and I was able to just go and do what I want. That's not how it works. Like I had to save up to do those things, but I think that I don't regret that. So for me, it's like, Hmm, like, do I want to buy like an expensive coat or expensive shoes? Or do I want to go to Montreal? I'd rather go to Montreal. And I think, I think that's the difference because one thing I will tell uh, any of you listening, if you haven't had the chance to do so, especially those of you that are in college or maybe just graduated like college, the younger folks, if you have the opportunity to do so, definitely travel. Like you get to meet different cultures, different people, and you get to see like how they live and just different experiences. Now I kind of grew up in that. So for me, moving around is, is not a big deal, but I would say even after I lived in the Boston area for like, after I lived here for three years, once I hit that three year mark, I felt like I had to move again because that's what I was used to doing. Now I didn't end up, that didn't end up happening. And this is the longest I've lived anywhere. So I'm on my 11th year here now, but I will say that like, that being said, me staying here, I've watched a lot of people leave. So now I'm on the other side of things, you know? Hey, Savvy, this is Eric. I did. I wanted to ask a question on Noelle because she's always really has a good take on and perspective. What does she think the reason is that, say, for instance, during the civil rights, uh, people were more willing to put their bodies out there to do the fight, you know, to, to fight out there on behalf of others, even though they may not even themselves, uh, you know, see the fruits of their labor with their own eyes, but they knew that they were doing what was needed to be done. And why is it that today we, we don't have that? We don't have that. I think that that's urgency. a really good question. 
you know, and, and I want to mm-hmm. ask Noel. I'm not saying that Noel was there. Or, or, you know, I don't know her age, but she speaks eloquently from a perspective that's far more wiser than me. So I just want to hear her take on it, if I could. Thank you. Um, I'll I'll do my best, and so that you know, I'm 59. Um, but here's my thing. I think you have, with the civil rights movement and the struggle for civil rights up to that point, civil rights was about the way we relate to each other in the public forum. It was for intangibles. As Martin Luther King said in one of his latter speeches, it cost the nation nothing. So it was clearly about doing the right thing in a way that would not cost you. But when, and so you had, you know, Jewish people in support, you had um, white people in support because visually they could look at what was going on in the society and blacks having to drink from a different fountain, sit at the back of the bus, sit at different food counters. That was visibly something that was apparently um, distasteful to a lot of people in America because it just struck you as being not right prima facie on the surface. But the reality is civil rights was not economic equality. And when Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, after having secured civil rights, pivoted the movement more towards economic equality and going to get that check and reparations, even the moderate whites who were there to support the civil rights movement earlier turn their backs. Because when you address this system that has disproportionately benefited white Americans, including and especially white immigrants who came to this country, um, especially after the Civil War, America was an open field of opportunity for them. So, you know, many of the Europeans who came to this country and benefited from the Homestead Act and all of these types of things were not cognizant so much of what was going on with Black America, which at that time was almost uniformly descended of slave. When this country came through the Civil War, in that Reconstruction era, this country had the real opportunity to break down not only the institution of slavery proper, but it was obliged to break down the social strata that was built out of the um, institution of slavery. By that, I mean, during the institution of slavery and immediately thereafter, poor white and working class whites had a premium on being white, even though they may have been not economically much better off than the former slaves. They had white privilege and identity, which was real for them, which is why when you look at the examples of the very many massacres we experienced across this nation from you know, Tulsa to Rosewood to South Carolina. Um, I think it was um, Char- Charleston, South Carolina. When poor and working class white America saw 
the descendants of slaves building communities and they got jealous mainly over economic things, they burned those places to the ground mm -hmm. and there was no repercussion. And so that is that quotient in um, the white space of America that is working class, but seeks to um, segregate itself from its working class black peers. And it's a real quotient. So coming through civil rights, yeah, some of them were able to grab hold of consciousness and come and fight and say, well, it's okay for the black people to ride at the front of the bus or eat at the same counter, this and that. But when you pivot and said, okay, this nation owes a debt to the descendants of slaves, it's a whole different ball game and a whole ball of wax. And, and to my thinking, that is a part of the reason we appear at this stage not to be able to build those coalitions. But the reality is those coalitions never really existed. There has never been a real substantive coalition between working class and poor whites and working class blacks to equalize the playing field in terms of economics. Because when you talk about these things that I have in mixed company, you know, working class white people, the first thing they want to say, well, well, I was never a slave owner. You were never a slave. And I'm saying to myself, but this country is built off of inheritance. And so because that is not a reality for them saying, well, I never inherited a whole lot like, you know, some of the other heirs of the, you know, Robert Barron's did. Their perception is if there is something put in place in terms of reparations for the descendants of slaves, that will give them a leg up economically that will propel some of them ahead of me. And they see it as a handout. And I spend so much time saying, you know, hold on. This is a, a debt. This is a, 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 a justice claim for reparations. This isn't black people saying, oh, just give me money. We're saying, what we would have inherited if our people were paid their due coming out of slavery, they would have had something to pass along. I think, you know, I'm not saying white people of working class backgrounds have an advantage, but their color and their lineage has not been a disadvantage. And I think that is the big divide on what would be the left because that issue continues to polarize us because we can't seem to come to that table and discuss that issue forthright and build those types of durable coalitions. And to what Zach said, you know, he said, I'm a person with certain physical needs that are permanent, this and that. So his need for health care is real. I am a black woman of trans experience and I find myself being alienated socially from the black community, from the white LGBTQ community, from the mainstream, this, that, and a third. And so it's hard for me because when Sabby says or suggests that we need to build community, then, and Zach says, you know, how do we build community? It is difficult because in this competitive society, where everything is about, you know, on one level or another, you know, your economic footing and your identity, people will see your needs and they will have compassion. 
but they're not quite willing to give up whatever advantage they have, be it a heterosexual orientation, a heterosexual, a cisgendered identity, be it white skin and a working class. People are not willing to risk those things because they're like, well, you know, I hear you, but I got this and I'm going to hold on to it. And that was really um, an well, awakening of, for me. Um, it's part that what you're talking about is in this capitalist society is part of our commodification. You know how the system commodifies us as people. They they take whatever, like you said, um, pieces of us that are in need or different from the the collective, and they they try to sell it back to us for a profit. Well, Absolutely. I, too, I think it's important for people to also understand that the civil rights movement was not popular. As as popular as MLK is today, right? Like everybody says today is Martin Luther King Day. Well, and we that think, that's we thank Dr. King for his service. Like everybody says these things. Like you hear it on mainstream media and everything, but you have to remember at that point in time, the civil rights movement was not popular. Well, and I just want to interject a small piece of history um, that I, um, because it was MLK Day, I saw something on TikTok where um, after, I think, the end of slavery, um, uh, the the freed slaves were given land, but the land they were given um, was the undesirable land in, um, uh, I can't remember which part, but a part of New York. And then after more settlers came and more colonization happened, um, th that land was forcibly almost eminent domain removed from them um, to build uh, New York proper the way it is now. Yes. Um, Including Central Park. Yes. Yes. Let me look up the name of that town, Zach, because I read that story before. I, I forget who sent it to me. And you know what? There was another town, and these are parts of our history that are so deeply buried, we don't even understand them. As as a 59-year-old, I'm just hearing about this city in um, Georgia that was literally um, subsumed and with filled in with a lake. And there is this Black community that is under a lake. And it's like, oh my God, the things that have happened, you know, and that's why, but here's the, here's an important factor. When this nation and school boards resist the 1619 project, when their resistance to critical race theory as a concept, it is because those are the people who know what that history is and they do not want to interrogate it because it becomes clear. I mean, when you think about it on the surface, um, critical race theory postulates that there has been a part of the American um, legal system that has afforded rights to white America in ways that benefited white America to the detriment of black America in a nutshell. I mean, what's the argument? You can look at redlining alone. And you can look at specific pieces of legislation like the Homestead Act, the Farm Bureau, the GI Bill, and the way yes. these things were implemented. And it's just clear on the surface 
without an in-depth analysis that this country did things legislatively to benefit white America, including immigrant white America. And so now at this juncture, when we say reparations, well, the only way you can re reverse that economic harm is to do something specifically for the descendants of slaves that benefits us. And it's just like such an anathema to the white psyche that something could be done for this group. And it's because they refuse to acknowledge that it is out of a debt. It but is out been, of a debt. But it's been done for other groups before, though. Absolutely. And I think that's the, it's been done. Like, we got to remember the Japanese uh, internment camps. There was They receive uh, payment as well. We have and the indigenous peoples, That's they right. receive treaties. But here's the difference: those are none of broken. those, none of those other groups represented the economic floor. Mm. We are the economic floor, and that's why it is such a contentious thing to think of repairing us because we disturb the whole social order. For Japanese who suffered and had a difficult time during World War II, people can see the injury and see the repair. You know, people can also, look at- Also, um, some of those people who were in the internment camps are still with us, uh, people like George Takei. So that history is still alive and we're not able to bury it. But here's the thing, the history of, the, of slavery is still here and we're not able to bury it. Maybe the people themselves, the actual slaves have died off, but we're really in some circumstances just two and three generations removed. We can look at people's grandparents and great grandparents who came out of slavery or were That's the true. children of former slaves and the impact. But the, like I say, the reality is because of the slaves fundamental contribution to the economy of this society, we became the floor. And when slavery was no more, this country really had no more use for the, the descendants of slaves. And so they implemented Jim Crow and Jane Crow and everything else so that they could continue to get that labor at a very, very deep discount. But through all those efforts, we became the economic floor. And it's been okay for generations and generations of immigrants to come in and get assistance. Us, mm -hmm. Even to this day, the assistance that this government will provide immigrants will give them a leapfrog pass above what blacks are experiencing who've been here all our lives. Mm -hmm. We don't even well, get me, that level of assistance. But let me add something here because I want to connect this back to the issue with people like Hakeem Jeffries is that as long as we have someone like Hakeem Jeffries, who was in the positions that they are in, or as Cornell West says, black faces in high places, right? <laughs> it's hard to argue for that. It's hard to argue for something like uh, reparations, like when Noel was talking about. It's hard because all it takes is for those people and some of those people, by the way, some of the, the black people in the high places, they don't even want it, want it. They don't even want it. So it's hard when you have people like a Kamala Harris, a Hakeem Jeffries, when you have people 
who have made it to those spots. You have people like Jamal Bowman. I don't even think Jamal Bowman wants to talk about it. He's too busy trying to make hip hop a national holiday. That's priority one on his list. That tells you where his mindset is at. So I think when you have people in those positions, it makes it harder to argue for it because then people who are adamantly against it can point to those people and say, Hakeem Jeffries made it. And that is this precise reason that we have a Barack Obama, a Kamala Harris, who are not descendants of slaves, I add. They just have the brown skin. And I refer to them as the doppelgangers to the descendants of slaves because they're using skin color as a proxy for lineage, which it is not. But it works because not even the descendants of slaves see themselves in large part as different from Barack Obama. You have plenty of descendant of slave black people saying, oh, he the first black president. Oh, Kamala, the first black and female vice president. But those fine tunings of their lineage makes a difference because a Kamala Harris and a Barack Obama would not have the allegiance and sensitivity to the issue of reparations because we're really not their people. And Sheila Jackson Lee, there are a lot of people in Congress in the Congressional Black Caucus whose lineage is not just descendant of slave. And so in this oligopolic system where we have allowed capitalism to take over the entire mechanics of the political process, the Congressional Black Caucus is nothing but a group of gatekeepers. They're there and they're going to bow and bend just like, um, what was the Congresswoman out of Georgia who spoke to you, Savvy, and said that Maxine Waters came to her and said, oh, listen, when they give us marching orders, we gonna march. Oh, Cynthia McKinney. Yes, McKinney. When Cynthia McKinney said that, that tells you that you have an entire caucus that should be representing these issues, that should be putting, you know, reparations front and center and fighting for it, cycle in and cycle out. They're busy playing the capitalist game. And that is important because it demonstrates to you how the very institutions in this nation have been imbued with a white supremacist leaning. And when you move into those structures and move up in those structures, the ticket to the feast is you have to demonstrate a fealty and an allegiance to the morals and values of that institution. And if you demonstrate that you're not getting in line and marching in order, they're going to put you out just like they it's did, true. you know, um, Dennis Kucinich mm -hmm. and, you know, Sheila, I mean, not Sheila Jackson, but the one you just mentioned. That's how vicious they are. So they use the black nationally elected officials for that reason. But again, that is why their politics is so flimsy. That's why we can't push, you know, because they have to be busy trying to court money. And that's the way they, they do it. If they continue to convince people and not just black people, but uh, I would say white liberals as well. If they continue to convince people that, that black people black are doing people are well, well because they we have those individuals in those positions because they they're using identity politics to not just work for the politician advantage and for the democratic party's advantage 
but also they present it in such a way that it makes people who are not aware, it can make those people feel like it's working towards their advantage too. And if you feel like that it is working towards your advantage, then you may be less inclined to ask for something more. And that's the false equivalence that we get through uh, Oprah Winfrey, a Jay-Z, this and that. You see these successes being pushed in the mainstream media and your gut instinct is, well, we're not doing as bad as, you know, it looks. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I didn't do the right things and I can't get ahead. But our people, quote unquote, are moving forward. And that is why, like Miss um, Iverson said, the real danger is in the media because they control the narrative. And the old saying says, he or she who controls the narrative rules the world. And that's what they're doing. So they put Katanji Brown out there. They put Barack Obama up there. They put Kamala Harris, even though they know that the risk and the price they pay for advancing those type of images is to create a real polarization and backlash on the right because mm -hmm. poor and working class white Americans see a Barack Obama and Kamala Harris and Katanji Brown and feel like, oh, we're, we're going to be replaced. Oh, we're going to be replaced. Or not and that's that. why it's just uh, so difficult. Um, they, they see the, the Barack Obama, you know, Kamala Harris, our work is done. We have reached the end of the road um, with this construction, with, you know, um, uh, ending racism and making the community equal as a whole. Right. We're in a post-racial society when nothing could be further from the truth. Everything just gets more superficial, but that's why I start you know, all of my analysis from the place that this is a capitalist project and it is using everybody and everything at its disposal to exploit and extract. And it'll spin 50 million different narratives. But if when you look at it in this country from the beginning to this day, the elite class is the only class that has really not suffered through it all. Yes. They maintain it. And to the degree that they had to make a few concessions around labor and unionization and things of that and the um, new the new deal, they have fought and clawed back every game. And that's why they're fighting hard now to privatize Social Security and they want to take over the post office and this and that, because, as you said, Savvy, we're moving into a predatory capitalism where it is attempting to cannibalize the government services and it's just going nowhere. And that's why the military budget is so huge because those are the hunters and gatherers of resources. They're moving throughout the world, looking for the new markets, the new resources, and they're using the might of the military as in Ukraine to fight and gain access to these precious minerals and things of that nature. And so we're really, when the more and more I understand about how this whole thing is working, the more sometimes I just want to jump out the window because <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's just so sad. And I will say, and I'll say this and I, I want to go ahead and I'll ask, I'll ask Zach if he has anything else and then I want to go ahead because I see we, we have people lined up, but 
it's one of those things I will say that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And some people, there have been people that have told me that they wish that they never found out what was really going on. Like they wish that they never, there's no shade to, to us or anything, but sometimes they wish they never had discovered independent media because they were actually, they may have been happier believing the lie, right? But the ignorance but, but the, is bliss. Right. And then the question that I would ask is, but were you necessarily happier or was that just a facade? Because why would you be happy, especially if you're struggling, why would you be happy about the struggle? Why would you be happy about the fact that you're struggling to pay, like, especially right now, you're struggling to pay your heat bill. Why would you be happy about that? You wouldn't be happy about that. You would either be upset or you would be, you know, maybe sad about that, but you wouldn't be happy about it, you know? So mm. we, we have to ask ourselves these questions as though we, if you turn off the TV, turn off the mainstream media, if you turn off the TV in general and pick up a book and start reading more. I went to school with a girl, you guys are gonna laugh when I say this, but I went to school with a girl who didn't watch TV. She wasn't allowed to. Her parents didn't have a television. She had never watched TV. And she didn't know who Michael Jackson was. Now, you got to keep in mind how popular Michael Jackson was at that point in time. He was known all over the world. And it just blew my mind that my classmate had never heard of Michael Jackson. So me and like the rest of us, we were in a group project. We took it upon ourselves to introduce Michael Jackson to her musically. So we would play music in the classroom like, you never heard this song. Are you sure you never heard this? You never heard that? She never heard it. She came from a very strict family. Like they didn't do that thing and all that kind of stuff. But then I remember saying that like, man, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to not be able to watch television or not be able to even know who Michael Jackson was. I was like, I would be a really sad person. But then I looked at her and she's like, but I'm happy. I'm fine. It's not like I need to have these things. But once we introduced her to it, she was excited to receive it. But then after she received it, she said she kind of wished she wasn't, wasn't introduced to it because then it made her kind of sad about the fact that she was not allowed to consume it. So it's just, it's one of those things that I, I do say to people when people come to me with that statement and they say that like, Sometimes they wish they never knew the truth about Medicare for all or the truth about the military spending. Like sometimes they wish they were still kept in the dark. Okay, well then that's just ignorance though. Like, do you, you want that? Because that's actually what mainstream media wants. They want you to be kept in the dark. The U.S. government wants you to be kept in the dark. Why would you want that? Sabrina, your classmate was Amish? No, I don't think I don't think so. No, I know this was weird to me too. It was like, and by the way, like this was in Germany, so we were living on base at that time. And I mean, she was she was American. And like this shit just blew my mind that like she had never heard of Michael Jackson because she wasn't allowed to watch TV. They weren't allowed to listen to secular music. So it was I was like, we are going to introduce you to Michael Jackson. But then afterwards, like I said, we felt bad because we knew 
that she would not be able to consume that at home again. The only time she would be able to hear it is when she was at school with us. And she wasn't in class with us all the time, obviously. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's just one of those things. I don't know. You guys tell me in the chat if you ever met someone who was similar, had that similar upbringing where they couldn't watch TV or they couldn't listen to like secular music. But that's how it was, unfortunately, for her. And the reason why this even came up is because the group project was we had to create a song. That was the project. So she was just like, I don't know how I'm going to create a song because I'm, I'm not allowed to listen to this stuff. No music, no nothing, no none of that. That's how that all came up. But yeah, a little tidbit for me there. Um, but, um, so I want to go ahead and make sure I bring in Brady. Well, let so me ask my question and then I'll hang up. I had a question for you and Roger tonight. Um, do you think the individual fight for um, state um, uh, initiatives or unions, you know, separate uh, organizations hurt the collective movement uh, and take away energy from each other when um, we talk about uh, these these things like, Roger, you are... Um, a big advocate of doing it through ballot initiatives through the state. Uh, how much do you think, and there may not be any merit, but um, uh, it does the steam from a national movement uh, get lessened? And um, in the long run, do you think that hurts uh, a movement for, say, Medicare for All or any of these uh, progressive check marks uh, in the long run? Where did that come from, okay. Zach? Where Where did you hear that I, from? I'm curious. I just had I it. just had that thought because I am uh, a national person. Um, uh, we, we've had this conversation before. Um, I I have come around to well, they're not going to do anything for us on the national level. But so I'm an MMTer. I know you know we have to say these things. Um, federal taxes don't fund spending. Uh, the Congress is the, it's in the Constitution that um, Congress Currency is the only are. one with uh, the power of the purse. So from that lens. Um, so let me, so, so let me, let me say this. Congress isn't the only one with the, uh, with the ability to uh, create money. It, um, yeah. well, but let me, yeah. let me finish. Mm -hmm. um, the Treasury Secretary, as Dr. Kubu said, okay, um, can do it as well. But also, um, the federal government grants banking licenses to banks okay. to print money. Okay, so banks create money out of thin air simply by taking the deposits, marking them up and then issuing them out as lines of credit. Uh, yeah, line, yeah, uh, li yes. lines of credit. And then when, when the payback happens, that interest is where they make their profit. Now, the difference between that and the public bank, okay, is that the deposits are state taxes or local taxes if it's a local public bank. They take in the taxes uh, as deposits, they mark them up, 
they may issue them out as lines of credit to um, to to finance uh, infrastructure projects, which creates jobs in the public sector, which generates state income taxes, which those state income taxes right here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right, you have a good one. You too. Um, which creates state in which generates uh, state income taxes, which gets paid back to the public bank for creating its job in the first place, while the low interest that was charged goes toward building a surplus. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's how it's able to build. That's how uh, the Bank of North Dakota has been able to operate for since June of 1919. So because of that uh, Bank of North Dakota public bank, okay, they prospered. They didn't survive. They prospered during the Great Depression. They prospered during like the little boom and bust cycles for the you know, next 40 years during Reagan. And then they prospered during the 1987 uh, stock market, Halloween stock market crash. They prospered during the, um, the 2000 dot com crash. And they especially prospered during the 2008 subprime mortgage um, financial crisis. The reason being is because the um, they their their credit unions they they insured their credit unions and their community banks. So usually banks got to do FDIC, right? They, they by law they have to be insured. Banks have to be insured. Usually the most popular one is the federal government, FDIC. Okay, but if you have a state public bank or or like a local public bank, then it's the state that insures the credit unions and okay. the community banks. So what happens is is this: the way the system works is like this. Um, uh, states, except for um, except for uh, states and local local governments, except for North Dakota, send their taxes to downtown Manhattan to get processed. Okay, by um, Wall Street, because their community banks and credit unions don't have the processing capabilities. So what happens is they process the taxes and then they send them back to the governors and mayors and county executives and all that different type of stuff. But they charge them a high interest. So then now they got to figure out how am I going to, you know, and like you said, uh, they have they, they got balanced budgets and they can't, you know, they don't have a public bank, so they can't print no money or whatever. So the governors and mayors, whatever the case is, they either have to raise taxes or they got to cut services or they have to privatize. OK, the only state that didn't do that, that never did that since 1919 was North Dakota. The taxes don't leave North Dakota to go to downtown Manhattan to get processed. They get deposited into the state public bank of North Dakota and they are the insurer, like instead of FDIC, you can think of it as SDIC, you know, State Deposit Insurance Corporation. This is the reason why um, North Dakota's banks, credit unions, and community banks never failed during the 2008 uh, financial crisis because that bank does not allow for high speculation. You know, it doesn't allow for speculative yep. practices that happen on Wall Street. You see what I'm saying? Right on. And this is why this is exactly why we need to push for public banks, because mm. look at all the things that North Dakota went through. The rest of the states in this country went through those things as well, but they were still able to prosper. And I can tell you, by the way, if anyone is listening or, you know, someone 
that lives in North Dakota, please, please get them to contact me because I would like to have this conversation with them about this, about how they were able to make this happen. Because the reason why I say this, I had a friend a couple years ago, moved to North Dakota out of nowhere, left Charlotte, North Carolina, moved to North Dakota for a job. And I was like, out of all the places to go to, why did you go to North Dakota? Because they were paying him a buttload of money to do the same job that he was doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he told me, he said, listen, in North Dakota, he said they have more jobs than they have people. He said, like, you can come here and like really do well, like economically. He said, now, obviously he did say he was like, now there's not much to do here. If you're, you know, a social person, I'm a social person. I'm an extrovert if you guys can't tell. And so he was like, in terms of that, there's not a lot going on, but he said, North Dakota was good for him, for him to go there, make his money, save his money and get out, move back to North Carolina and buy a house and get the things that he wanted to get. He said he was never going to make that money in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they're doing something right there. And the, the public banking thing, we should have a public bank in every state in this country. It shouldn't just be, oh, the bank of North Dakota, like every state should have one, every one. And I, I think if every state had a public bank, then this whole issue of Medicare for all on the state level or the national level, it wouldn't be that much of an issue. Because again, the biggest pushback that you're going to get about doing it on the state level is that the money has to come from the federal government and the federal government can still shut it down because the states don't well, have the money to do it. Right. That's well, that's the that big goes, pushback. Well, let me finish. That that's the big pushback my- that you're going to get about that. But how do you get around that? You get around that by having a public bank. So when we talk about the state level for Medicare for all, North Dakota should actually be the first ones to implement this because they already have the public bank. This is why when they pass things, you'll see this when we get, get to North Dakota. When they pass initiatives in their state, there's a reason why they don't have to sit back and ask, but how are we going to pay for it and where are the money going to come from? Because they have a public bank. Good night. Well, and so that that was like the the thing of my question. Um, you, you pretty much said it. Um, oh, so, so oh, Zach, let, let me let me just finish this real quick. Also, okay. none of their banks, none of their community banks and credit unions in North Dakota went under, while all the banks in all the other states after the two thousand eight subprime mortgage crash went under. So as a result, they have North Dakota has more credit unions and community banks per capita than any other state in the country. They have the lowest, um, they came in 51 in, in homelessness because, you know, a public bank, you know, like bills, housing and all that different type of stuff. They, they don't do the speculative behavior. Um, like I said, it ensures the, uh, the, the community banks and credit unions and so on and so forth. This is why it's so hard to get it passed here in New York state because I was just, I just talked, I was on the phone with the legislative director of uh, Senator James Sanders Jr., whose district is JFK. And he has the, um, he has the, uh, 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 he has both bills. One, which is a permission slip bill that would allow um, New York, that would allow the localities in New York to charter their own public bank and one for a state public bank. So we're like, we're going to push the state one. I mean, we're going to push the uh, the permission slip one because the problem that I had with the state one is I said to them, I said the advisory board that will run the bank, the ratio should be flipped 
you have the people who would be looking out for the public interest as the minority on the board and those who might have experience with banking, you know, who might come from Wall Street or whoever knows, you have them as the majority. But the guy told the legisl his legislative director told me is that, yeah, we want to do that, but the but leadership and the governor wouldn't be on board for it. Okay. So you know what that means. They're in the pocket. They want to leave that loophole open so that they could get some Wall Streeters in there for the New York public bank to try to wreck it and not make it operate to its fullest capacity. Not to mention, they also want to do a feasibility study. And the feasibility study is a poison pill because it's nothing but stonewalling. You don't want a feasibility study. You want a, a business plan. Once the once Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousin started talking about, we'll do a feasibility study first, and she wants to push the state public bank, which nobody is on board for. There's more co-sponsors for the permission slip bill that would allow localities, municipalities to charter their own, but she wants to push that one because she wants to leave that loophole open. Same thing with the governor, because they're both corporate. You know, they're both in the pocket of Wall Street, so I'm like... See, he was telling me, yeah, the only way we're going to get it passed is if we do this. I said, well, then let's not do it at all. You know, I don't want to pass it so badly where it's weak. But yeah. But to answer your question um, about doing both That's it. Uh, oh. at the same time, I want to remind everyone we've already done this with a different action. Uh, $15 minimum wage. We did the state level and the national. Oh, Roger, could you mute if you're not um, Sorry. talking real quick? Thank you. Um, Speed trap in reference to whether ahead. or not we can do there we go. in reference to whether or not we can do both at the same time we have done this with another policy $15 minimum wage well so that's that kind of my point that, was, that is something that was done on the state level and was tried on the, the national level at the same time and you see it failed on the national level but it hasn't failed on the state level um, so yeah, that, um, I kind of, so that's a good case study, right? Uh, or an example. Um, my point was like, they will you like a Rokana, I could see him saying this. The, well, the, the states are being very successful and not, um, there's no, you know, nothing bad about it, but, uh, a, a politician like that might take that and twist it to take energy from, I mean, maybe they don't have any energy, from a national movement, and this is the last thing I'll say, um, to put it solely on the states. Um, and um, so, so they don't have well, to fight for it in Congress. Well, right now, there is no national movement for $15 minimum wage anymore. It's done. Right. It, it like, died. They, they'd have to bring it back up again. But even Rokana said recently on Rising, he said that in order to get these progressive policies passed, you have to have it done. This is what he said, and this is what I've been saying for a while. You have to have people who want those policies, not just on the national level, but they have to also be on the local level. So and that, that kind of proves this, my this point. Was a, yeah, this, this was a... Uh, I don't want to say a failure, but this was a mistake with Justice Democrats is that mm. the focus was only on the national level and the the local level was left out of the out of the out of the bank. OK, so that's so part of the you, equation, not not just a, 
uh, a, a uh, you know, a, a weighting of the scales, like, no, we have to focus our energy here or our energy here. It's, it's an all right. It has, thing. it has to be on all fronts. It's just like the democratic party and the Republican party. It would be like, if they just focused on, uh, the national races and not the local races. And that's, that's definitely not the case. Like you can see some of these local races with the democratic party and the Republican party actually carry more weight, uh, than putting those candidates in, in the house. Right. So I think that they focus on all of it. They focus on the governor position. They focus on the mayor position. They focus on city council. Like they, they don't just focus on the national level. So I think something like justice Democrats and the green party does this too. The green party, even though they haven't won on the national level, they have won on the local level. They won a couple of seats in California in 2022. Nobody talks about it. I think, but me, like I've mentioned it uh, multiple times on my show, like, the local races that the Green Party has won. Imagine if the Green Party only focused on the national level, they wouldn't have had any wins. So I think if Justice Democrats had also focused on the local level along with the national level, then I think I think progressives wouldn't be in so much of a rut because they would have at least had some of those wins on the local level. But to Roger's point, and Roger has brought this up to me before, when it comes to progressives on the national level, we haven't had any wins. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many people are so angry and bitter. And there's a lot of, you know, cat fighting that's happening among like different commentators and stuff like that, because there was this big movement and a lot of energy around it, but it was only focused on the national level and nationally on the progressive movement side, we haven't really had any wins. And I think that was a mistake. Right on. Um, thanks for letting me call in, Savvy. I will. I've talked your guys's ear off uh, long enough. All right. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm gonna go ahead and bring in uh, Brady. What's going on? What's good, Savvy? I got a lot going on. It's always crazy stuff going on. So I got my notes ready. MLK was the other day. I just kind of wonder how does everyone celebrate MLK? Like, let me know in the chat. So I feel like there's not much of a it could be a little more of a ritual around that. Um, <clears throat> personally, I like to stir up some radical shit on MLK Day, you know, and then do some nice stuff to kind of balance it out. And I'm um, wondering if y'all are familiar with the concept of a coyote union, which is kind of like a union without all the rules, I guess. It's kind of like a union for the new age where we all just get together and start a channel on Signal or Telegram or whatever. and um, start our own kind of underground union. Are y'all familiar with this idea? I'm not, but I will tell you, even Telegram is not uh, protected. We can certainly blockchain encrypt stuff on our own if we wanted to. There's a lot of things we could do to uh, secure our own secure lines of communication outside of company or government prying eyes, you know, to the best that we can. And especially if we all work together, it's really easy to rat out the rats. I've been doing it single-handedly in the chat tonight is while I'm making dinner at the same time. You know, there's nothing to it and taking notes. So uh, speaking of union busting, um, I'd like to talk about some of the, the tactics that union busters use. I came up with three on my own, first one being divide and conquer, whether it's along racial lines, age lines, class lines, religious lines, 
sexual gender lines, whatever, all kinds of lines. They try to divide groups up by uh, another thing they'll do is they'll try to threaten you all kinds of vague threats, you know, whether it's physical violence or some kind of social threat. Um, then another thing they do is they try to derail, uh, real movements and they try to install synthetic ones in their place that have kind of an engineered obsolescence where they're designed to fail. And, um, so yeah, have fun snooping, uh, sniffing those guys out. I wonder who they might be. Um, <laughs> as far as anti-choice goes, uh, uh, this anti-choice thing drives me crazy. It's the only reason I voted for Joe Biden and he did nothing when he could have, um, mm-hmm. just like to tie, uh, capitalism to the cult of Yahweh and how they are both death cults. Um, they serve the worst among us. Um, they haven't been doing anybody any favors for thousands of years, except for the absolute worst of us. And they need to be analyzed, audited, called out, drug into the sunlight for everything that they've done. Um, and what we see going on right now is a repeat of the Southern strategy. It's a really weird time to be alive. Like I considered myself one of the biggest lefties in the world. My, I'm left-handed. My hair spirals to the left. I have a fully functional right hemisphere. Um, I really I mean, I consider myself an intellectual, you know, and all the intellectuals were always very lefty. And unfortunately, I hate it. It, it makes me want to puke when I say it, but I feel like a little bit of an intellectual swing to the right, especially around COVID when COVID happened. So probably the best example of it. Um, but here today, uh, I'm actually having a hard time distinguishing between QAnon and Blue Anon without more context. And, uh, so there's a couple things I'd like to demand uh, in honor of MLK, um, is one, we should force the payout, make all drugs, a medical issue, not a criminal one, uh, uh, force the blockchain enforce blockchain voting for our next, before our next election takes place to, Eliminate any argument there might be about fraudulent votes or anything like that. And we can also experiment with democracy that way. We should also force the proxy debates and force proxy governments, you know, proxy. I think we should have proxy uh, world meetings where the citizens, the civilians of the world get together and like maybe have a meeting online would be cool. And then um, I think we should force debate and force uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable conversations uh, whenever possible. And uh that's all my notes. That's all I got. Thanks so much for that, Brady. Um, I just want to add really quickly that um, huh, MLK Day, I try to educate people about who MLK really was, <laughs> that MLK was anti-capitalist. I try to educate people around the fact that before MLK was assassinated, he was starting to push for more of the economic issues. Um, uh, so that's, that's what I try to do because I have found along the way that this um, most people just don't know that because they, they only know what they were taught in school, in our history classes and which didn't cover those parts. So I, I try to do that. Um, and in reference reference to the anti-choice piece about Joe Biden, I got to tell you, you're not the first person that's that's told me that either, that that's why they voted for him was because of that. So tricked. I got do I got Bernie Sanders on Joe Biden. 
And um, I wanted to mention that this year, one of the cool things I did for MLK Day is I came up with like an answer to his dream, like an actual solution for his dream. I think that is having a civil rights conversation in front of an infrared lie detector camera that is powered by AI that can just, I mean, I'm telling you, Savvy, we can do this. We can, we can have a voluntary conversation about civil rights in front of a camera that literally reads the temperature off people's faces and is able to tell if they're lying or not with like a high degree of accuracy. And this can be completely voluntary. And I think that would be a brilliant solution to select a leader. Well, one of the things that you mentioned about debating and Eric, um, you might, I don't know, Eric, I don't want to tell you what to add to your list of demands because they're your demands, but if it's not on that list, this is something to think about too. We should demand that every candidate is allowed to debate, regardless of what the percentage is, regardless. So like, this is how the third party and the independent candidates get, get in. This is how they get their voices heard. How did Jesse Ventura win? Jesse Ventura was allowed to debate. So this is something else that we should demand. Like, come on, like the fact that Nancy Pelosi hasn't debated since the 80s, this should have never happened, you know? And and I, I will give like credit where credit's due because Shahid Buttar has vocally come out against the Democratic Party. You know, he's run against Nancy Pelosi multiple times. He was on my show uh, recently and he just, you know, said like exactly what he felt. And that was someone who was very hopeful. And he's been through this experience multiple times, but again, he was never given the opportunity to debate. And I really think if some of these people would have been given that opportunity, you might see different people in those seats right now, but they weren't given that chance. And so for people who ask me, how do we get the third party and independent candidates in? You need to give them the chance to debate. Case, I want to bring you in as well. What's your take on all of that? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Much love to y'all. Much love to the chat. Um, yeah, so I, I saw a clip as far as MLK, um, and I, I clipped it today. I saw it a little late that Mehdi Hassan actually had a very good clip on MLK and the secret history of Martin Luther King being um, talking about democratic socialism. Um, a letter that he wrote to his uh, girlfriend at the time that later became his wife, Cloretta Scott. And um, I thought that was, it almost sounded like <laughs> Mehdi Hassan was RBN for a second. Like, I thought he joined the RBN because <laughs> it, it was a really, really good uh, segment. And then as far as what Brady was talking about, I wonder if uh, labor unions, I know you said Coyote uh, Union, but I was thinking about having a field and the website I'm developing for the the help desk uh, ticket for the mutual aid political party of having a field where if you're part of a union, you could put, you know, your union in and people can organize on um, the website. And then, I, and then I was thinking, I wonder if there's a, a social media for unions, but uh, I actually started Googling that to, just to see if that's out there. But um, I think it would be cool if, you can, like he said, unofficially create a union. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of playing around with that idea in my mind to, to be able for people to organize without, you know, formally. I saw that Chris Moore's, uh just got certified. I think the uh, ALU just got certified recently. But yep. even let's just say you don't 
have a formal union and you're not cert- exactly certified, but you want to, let's say you're a part of, um, I think they call it the wildcat, wildcat strikes. So let's say a Walmart um, in the middle of any random Walmart, and they're all sick and tired of the conditions they're living under, and somehow they organize, whether it's through the mutual aid um, political party website or another website, doesn't matter. Let's say they're on Slack or they're on Facebook, and they say, oh, we're all just not going to show up. Like that would be powerful, I would think, you know, to and and could draw a lot of attention. So anyway, before I go on a rambling and continue to ramble, those are my thoughts on the uh, recent topics. Well said, Case. Uh, Roger, I think you were going to chime in. I saw you on mute and then mute back. So I wasn't sure if you had something to add really quick. Um. that'll come back to me (laughs) okay (laughs) Um, one thing to add um you know i harass you on this every night sabby i want to make sure that you're checking the corbett report he made an episode almost specifically for you it's a solutions watch that's all about how to post your content on multiple platforms at once and make it really easy and it's just one kind of way to do that I don't know how much it costs or what it is or what's going on, but it is interesting. And Case Study actually got his his name shouted out on the episode without trying. So it's worth checking out. And, uh, I'm going to drop that? that in the chat. Is this, is this on YouTube? Drop is this on YouTube? It's on Odyssey, not Odyssey BitChute. He's banned from YouTube ever since COVID-19. Oh, okay. But, oh, okay. Yeah, there's a link to it right there. Make sure you give him a check out. You're going to love this guy. You are going to love this guy. You're going to love his work. He's absolutely brilliant. Um. And I'm looking forward to having some of those conversations with y'all. You, um, you know what a right of first refusal law is? Anyone? I don't. Okay, it's so a, it's a right uh, that, that unions have. So you have a unionized group of people that work for a company. Uh, they have a set of rules and guidelines that essentially there's a certain type of work that has to go to them first. And they can refuse the work, and then if, if they refuse it, someone else can do the work instead of them. And check this out. This is how um, it also can be used. Because I saw, uh, I don't know, about a year or two ago, I saw Professor Richard Wolf talk about the England version of it. Um, before, they have a right of first refusal law in England where for corporations, before they decide to sell to merge. Uh Uh-oh. I think we lost Roger there. I think you cut out for a second, Roger. Roger. I've been having some tech issues myself. I don't know. It may be the app. Um, Okay, we... we, Uh, All right, Roger, I'm just going to... Helps to update your app before we start or launch a show. I mean, I'm guilty of it too all the time, but everyone, as soon as you hop into a show you want to be in, make sure your app's ready to rock. Yes, because they do um, they do fix bugs on here quite often, actually. I have noticed that. Um, Noel, I wanted to go ahead and bring you in and get your take on this as well in reference to uh, unionizing. Now, we did talk to tonight if you didn't see the show, I did talk to Tina Brown, whose sister um, died. She was an Amazon employee. 
and they made her COVID test employees. She was not a medical professional, obviously. That was not the job she was hired to do, but she was made to do that as her job during the height of the pandemic. And so she was doing that and her sister died. And so she's been, you know, fighting this fight to try to make sure that her sister gets the justice that she deserves. Um, And I want to get your take on this, Noel. You'll have to unmute in reference to like unionizing and organizing and things like that. It's just like we see Amazon organizers with this huge fight. It's taken a couple of years for Chris Malls to to get the contract uh, for them to be a legit union now now that they have that contract um but at the same time it's like how do we hold these billionaires accountable when you look at someone like tina brown and it's like like to me it's just like even when you look at we go back to hakeem jeffries i still bring this up where was hakeem jeffries when chris smalls and jay flowers were organizing in new york absolutely and and I think I couldn't agree more that unionization of the labor force is the one of the only ways that the working class has the wherewithal to harness their numbers and speak in one voice for the conditions of their employment that are appropriate. Um, my heart was breaking for the young lady today um, about her sister because, you know, when you think of the fact that... Um, Amazon is a global um, operation. They should have had medical professionals which they could hire by the boatload and not flinch. They should have had a protocol put in place very soon because they were considered the, a part of the frontline workers and we were depending upon, you know, Amazon in a more... Um, robust way during the COVID crisis than ordinary because people weren't working. And so I think the record is Amazon profits even went up more because people built more reliance on having their goods and services brought to them versus going to the store and what have you. But absolutely, um, there should have been something put in place, but without a union, without a union to immediately go to management and say, hey, this is the way, this is not going to happen. You're not going to create positions and make people who are not prepared to to do that service feel it. And I'm thinking, like I said in the um, chat on the podcast, I'm sure there are people in Amazon who have medical experience more than that young lady. Why wouldn't they at least solicit for them to develop a protocol, but then why not just get medical professionals? I was so dumbfounded. But that is one of the real examples of the power of a union to dictate those working conditions and leverage out you know, at the bargaining table and say, no, this is not going to go that way. You have to negotiate it. And I think, you know, I was so concerned because, you know, I was thinking to myself behind that situation with that young lady's sister, how many people just quit? A lot Mm -hmm. of people can't quit because they need the work. But if, if that situation in itself does not make the case 
for unionization. I just don't understand what will. I have uh, actually a list of union busting techniques. If you guys want to hear them real quick, five quick union busting techniques they like to use to prevent unions from happening. One of the articles actually came from Teen Vogue of all places, actually did a really good article. But uh, I'll post the other one in the chat. That's interesting. That's interesting um, that Teen Vogue did that. Go ahead, Roger. Um, yeah, I don't know what the last thing you heard me say was before it, it went dark. <laughs> but um, uh, You were yeah, dark was... for a while, Roger, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so. I was, I was talking about right of first refusal, right? And um, uh, I was watching a Professor Richard Wolf episode about a year or two ago, and they were talking about uh, right of, he was talking about England has a right of first refusal law where um, mandating that corporations make an offer to their workers to purchase the company once they either grow beyond a certain threshold before they outsource out of the country, automate, sell or sell to or merge with another company, file for bankruptcy, go public, or even after they've gone public to purchase the company and restructure it into a worker cooperative, as well as you could probably add this to it, if they've shown to have a record of egregious and abusive behavior at putting the public trust, environment, workers, and consumers at risk, then the government can rip ownership away and give it to the, and, uh, transferred to the uh, workers for ownership. So that's how, like, if we had something like that here, push it as a state law, you know, start with the ballot initiative states, make it an amendment, um, that can be one way to start uh, uh, rewinding the, the clock. Also, um, just addressing something uh, Noel said um, about an hour ago, um, the... Yeah, Noel. So what? Yeah, right. So when you was talking about um, New York, right, in terms of where where's AOC, you know, and you know during this whole Judge LaSalle thing, um, what you're seeing play out, because right, because you were saying, hey, all the state lawmakers are there. Where's AOC at, or whatever the case is on the other side, right? What you're seeing play out is exactly how it played out when I was telling you guys about when. Uh, Jeff Bezos tried to open the tech center up at, over there by Queensbridge Projects. You know what I mean? Where it was just like AOC came there, you know, just maybe made a little speech or whatever the case is. And she took the blame or took the credit, depending on how you look at it. But it was those it was the state lawmakers, especially the uh, the Senate majority whip, who was I think that was his district that were actually and the unions that were the actual ones that turned Jeff Bezos away. But it's just the simple fact that they're not, you know, like part of the glamour crowd that got all of the attention. So what you're seeing play out in New York State with Judge LaSalle is exactly how it played out in um, a few years ago with the with the tech center, if, uh, you know, that uh, answers your question or whatever. And my concern was these are the things that the base in her district should be lighting the fire under her saying, well, you know, where are you? You know, and that's part of the problem that gets me with AOC. She chimes in when she perceives that there is some benefit to be had by being on the right seat, right side of things where there is no fear. And then she comes up with all these flimsy 
excuses of why she doesn't use the power that is available. But I'm saying, okay, I don't really understand. You know, my gut instinct is the reason Hakeem Jeffries comes in is because either he has actually this LaSalle guy, somebody he picked and had discussed it with Governor Hochul, or if not, he definitely has a dog in that fight in some way behind the scenes. There's something he is to gain from it. But I'm saying if that is as illicit as it appears on the surface, you would expect an AOC to come home and be like, hold on, I support the other 12 who don't support LaSalle. And he is absolutely wrong for that post because he is anti-choice and against, you know, the union and labor and blah, blah, blah. But she's nowhere to be found. And see, this is a part of the pipeline that these democratic state um, associations and parties turn into for the national thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, that's why it's so difficult to get into this um, party thing because it's such a rigid structure and, you know, people are so whipped into shape till you can't get anything done. But see, that's yeah. where, um, Case, I want to bring you in for this question as well, because this this issue here with Hakeem Jeffries and Governor uh, Hochul, who are both supporting and promoting uh, Hector LaSalle, who is anti-choice, anti-union. What do you think this is, this is all about? Because from what I read in the article from Common Dreams, it was said that he was actually the worst choice out of all the people that were listed. Wow. Yeah, I did. I happened to clip. Um, I think I sent it to you, Roger. Um, some, she was talking about her state to state and somebody mentioned how the progressives were upset about her chief, um, chief justice pick. And it just goes to show, like, I agree with your sentiment and, and everybody's sentiment about how, much the Democrats are moving to the right. You know, the, they're accepting people like, you know, Dick Cheney. I mean, not Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney. is like she might as well just declare herself to be a Democrat at this point. Um, and, and along with a whole but, bunch of other issues, the question is, do people who are not paying attention, who are Democrats, do they know how much their party has gone to the right? You know, I, um, I saw a interview from what was her name, Lauren. She uh, I can't think of her last name, but uh, recently I clipped her show because Ryan Grimm was on her show, and she uh, I'll put it in the chat when I um, stop talking and I find it. But basically, she was talking about how she was a Bernie delegate, and um, back in 2016, and she was at a convention, and uh, along with all the Democrats, they were ch chatting, chanting the same things. But then when it came to um, no more war, which is anti-war or anti-war chant. It it was revealed that the Hillary Clinton um, delegates was told to yell USA. So instead, wow. while the Bernie delegates was yelling no more war, they were told to yell USA. And the evidence was actually shown to her that this was an email that went out. And she was like, wow, I can't believe the Democrats are anti-war. They're an anti-war party. And I'm like, <laughs> in my head, like, of course these guys are uh, pro-war. 
or there's a whole pro-war fraction of the Democratic Party, I should say, that is that prevalent, is prevalent and, and um, dominant, I would even say, at this point. I think I... Y'all want me to... I was just going to say, y'all want me to power through those five uh, union-busting points real quick or pass the mic? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. My bad. Yeah, go ahead, yeah, yeah, there's like five points. I'll, I'll go through them just so we can get them out and have them to consider, and then I'll pass the mic. And Oh, man, I got the Teen Vogue article up right now. That one's too long. All right, well, uh, here it is. Uh, the employer hires a union-busting consulting agency. Uh so especially big companies will hire agencies and lawyers to uh, bust up these unions using all kinds of crazy tactics. You know how lawyers are. The employer launches an AstroTurf campaign against the union. That's number two. We're familiar with that. Uh, number three, forced meetings. It's a form of intimidation, pure and simple. Employees will be forced to have a one-on-one meeting with management, even their union-busting consultants. Uh, employer may also hold captive audience meetings where employees are forced to attend meetings where they're forced to hear and listen to anti-union propaganda. <laughs> Number four, the employer starts making promises, you know, like an abusive ex union busting employees will start promising change. However, the only way they guarantee real change and hold an employer accountable is through a union. Uh, union busting tactic number five, delays. They will delay. Union busting consultants will tell employers to delay, delay, delay. Their highly paid lawyers will pervert the law to delay union elections and or contract negotiations in an attempt to create a feeling of futility within the workforce. Don't worry about it. Keep moving forward. Make the union happen. <laughs> That's it. The, um, I remember I was going to say the, um, this, oh, dealing with um, Judge LaSalle. This this is what I was saying before about how um, those 12 uh, uh, senators were giving um, Cuomo a hard time. So Hochul is probably really just like nothing to them. I mean, th- this is just me speculating or whatever, but I just think about this, Sabrina. They just raised, I'm still pissed off about it. They just gave themselves a raise. Right. And it didn't pass by a veto proof majority. It passed by a simple, it barely passed. Right. They made now she could have vetoed that. She did not veto it. So these these senators made her sign that bill into law and then told her we're not voting for your judge. So this is the reason why I'm looking at it and I'm like, I think the legislature, we had years of Cuomo running the legislature. I think if she's the governor, I think the legislature is going to run her. You know what I mean? Because if, if you, like you just made, I just made you give me a raise and I'm telling you, I'm not going to return the favor by voting for your judge. F you. Yeah. She doesn't seem like she's, uh, how do I say Strongly. nicely? Strongly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> she doesn't seem like she has as, as much of a fight in her uh, to push back. That's what I, it seems like to me, but. Because um, most of these people just, just looking at, I mean, I don't know if this is like stereotyping different parts of the state or whatever, but she's the first upstate governor we had in who knows how long. Most of the governors that we've had are from down here. So there's a little bit of a little, you know, a little kind of, you know, gritty, grimy street type of 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 scene because you know Cuomo was from Queens I, I believe he was from Queens um 
You know what I mean? And yeah, right. they, you know, we're kind of tough down here compared to to to, to upstate. You, you see what I'm saying? So most of these people that are pushing back against her are from New York City. You feel what I'm saying? And it's just yeah. like. Uh, well, we let me bring in, let's bring in Lance. Lance, um, I want to get your take on all of this. How do you feel about Hakeem Jeffries and Governor Hochul uh, pushing for an anti-choice and anti-union judge? Yeah, it's funny <clears throat> what Roger was talking about there. Unless you're from New York, you don't maybe get just the upstate, downstate. I mean, it's vehement. It's hatred. I mean, you got like Trumpers, right? So you don't need to go out, out of your own state to find them coastal elite, man you know, exponentially in New York City. So all that stuff about elites and MAGA and, you know, although I must say, like I live in Trump country and as long as that, you know, so, I mean, I have, I have a problem with coastal elites too, but Hakeem's, I mean, um, yeah, sorry about that, Roger. He's right on point on that. Don't remind me of the hotels from upstate. I asked Roger this, is it possible that she's even worse than Cuomo? I mean, she vetoed, she vetoed stuff that had, that had like overwhelming support. Uh, in the Congress, I'm, and even I, I think in some cases bipartisan, because you know Democrats have I think a supermajority. Uh, Roger can co- can correct me, but and Hakeem Jeffries, but you know, it's like anything else. And I have to say, let me channel my inner George Carlin for a second. You know, like I've been talking about, so I'm not going to go into it now. But you know, Hitler's going to hit, right? Mussolini's going to muss, right? It's like Hakeem's going to hock or whatever he's doing. But the people and Hochul too in New York State. Come on, we're a bright blue state. And it's the people that let it happen. We're going to put our blinders on. We're going to say Biden, the racist Southern, you know, Mr. Credit Card. No, no, no. He's our guy. We have to. And also, of course, you got breaking points going right into mode. Boy, she saw that was an emergency, right, with uh, with Crystal. She had to say, yeah, they got some good stuff. But look, they got bad stuff. And look at all these bad people who got some of that good stuff. Instead of saying, you know what, guys, like everybody is obviously saying, why don't we use the tactics for good stuff? We want to shake our finger. Look at those people using their clout to get bad stuff. Oh, oh, but well, you didn't use your clout to get good stuff. No, no, it doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? And and, and it's like, by the way, the breaking points crowd. Oh, my God, RBN, those guys just ripped that to shreds. The whole show was about her, her comments, Everybody, every comment. They said, you know, guys, we were going to put a couple that were supportive. We don't, I don't even think they could find any that supported her tripe but what i don't get is the people that support it i mean where's the outrage because you know these people uh, you know anyway but yeah hakeem jeffries i mean my god why don't you just hire why don't you just have kevin mccarthy be the speaker or the, you know the minority leader at least we'll get some honesty hakeem jeffries i mean the people around his district or, or around the, the, the progressive circles that's what I, that's what really is getting to really getting to me at this point is the fact that all these people, these apologists, cause you're going to have those handful of people and they're going to keep doing what they're doing until someone stops getting away with it. Can I make one more point? You know, we were talking about, oh, like strikes and all. The last big movement I was really directly involved with was the anti-apartheid movement, apartheid movement. And even without Reagan, the biggest cat in the world, right? In America's uh, economy. He wouldn't do, uh, you know, the divestment, but between putting the pressure on campuses and putting the pressure on, you know, uh, co- corporations, then they boycotted it. So I think we need to do something like that because we don't have any power anymore. So unions can do stuff. But what about Joe Schmo 
who just a random person. We got to start to organize boycotts. And those things are illegal if you do it for wrong reasons. So those are serious. They know that boycotts work. So why not have consumer strikes instead of just worrying about the legalities of union strikes and contracts and lawyers? We don't need any of that. Just stop buying stuff and coordinate it online and pick pick Amazon one day and Walmart the next and whoever you want. I don't know. I mean, I started doing that a while back and I've, you know, pushed others to do so as well. But uh, what, what my attention is fact that um, not everyone has another option. Like, for example, I've spoken to people that live in towns where Amazon is the only employer in town. That's how bad it's become because Amazon has just bought out so many other businesses, right? So that's something that that's a problem that some people will run into. So we have had those discussions. I mean, like me personally, I'm just like, screw it. Like, I told you guys this before. I don't like to buy things. <laughs> I just don't. I don't really like to spend money if if not necessary. Um, but it's it's you know what are we going to do? Like like where does this end? And and I ask this question because like I see a company like Amazon, and I remember it was Walmart that we had to worry about, and then out of nowhere came Amazon. And now it was Amazon is even worse than Walmart because Amazon is running everybody out of business. Like they sell everything. So what does it end? Like, what do you do? Like, how do we fight back? Again, Zabby, the whole idea that the, the whole, the whole point of the robber barons, it wasn't rocket science. Monopoly means you, you make the, Rockefeller made the prices cheaper. This idea, it's like saying, yeah, we thought Rockefeller was right in the first place. That's the only argument for saying we don't care about anything else, but if the price is low, Rockefeller did everything under, under cost. He gave everybody the cheapest prices possible. Then he eliminated his competition and he jacked the prices up. I mean, come on. Really? We don't care. For 40 years, we bought that. As long as prices were cheap, you know why? We had credit cards. We could do lots of credit. We got cheap stuff and didn't care that we could double our wage and I could still afford 40% increase in price. I'm, I'm channeling my George Carlin. We've let it happen every single step of the way. And I've been watching a lot of Ralph Nader and people need to watch this guy. I know he's, everybody knows who he is, but he sits there in front of a Harvard law student audience and said, you guys are the problem. You're being brainwashed. And if you don't go against the system and decide to make less money, you're going to be perpetuating the system that when you entered college at a freshman, before you even entered law school, that you had some idealism, they're going to shake it all out of you and you're going to have to fight it your own way. And you're going to have to take the banishment from your big firms or even medium firms and take a stake from yourself if you want to do the right. He says this to Harvard people. Okay. Just like George Carlin used to say, we're all wrong. All the voters are wrong. I'm done. Like I'm, I'm like George Carlin. I'm not blaming politicians. I'm not blaming billionaires. I'm going to do whatever Lance can do in my own little world to try to change things because things are happening fast, guys. This stuff about the, that they're not going to allow any stuff that came from FDA or NIH or CDC. They're going to ban you and, and stop your account. This is what they're doing now. You can't even put out their own stuff that looks bad. And this stuff's happening like a mile a minute. And so it, I don't know. <laughs> I think we need to really act. And we're not going to get the power back with third parties and with, with, you know, and unions. Absolutely. Look what, you know, uh, yes, but we better start doing something that we can do today and tomorrow in our own way. And so, cause this shit's happening. Lance. I, I hear you, Lance. Go ahead, Roger. 
Uh, to answer your question, Cuomo was worse because she hasn't been in 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 uh, the seat long enough to be as bad. But she <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, just give her enough time; she'll catch up. Um, just don't. I mean, just a few things. Uh, Moreland Commission, remember that? M- remember what he did Sorry, with the Moreland Commission? Investigated him. He said, "Uh oh." Yeah, the Moreland Commission, in case anybody didn't know, because what happened was, uh, Sabrina, when I told you about how, um, remember I said about in 2008, it was the first time that Republicans lost the Senate in like 30 years. Um, yeah. But then what happened was when the Democrats took over the Senate, all of them, well, I wouldn't say all of them, but enough of them did corruption and went to prison. Um, enough of them where they lost <laughs> lost the Senate, right? So- that was like two years before that was before Cuomo came in. Cuomo comes in and he says, I'm going to do this thing called the Moreland Commission, and it's going to investigate uh, corruption in government and corruption here and corruption there. He's like, they're independent. They're so independent that they can even investigate me. And he kept saying this months after months, after years, after years, until one day they said, you know what? We heard some shit about you, governor. They opened up the books on him. Boom. He ended it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he made up something. Oh, and one one more quick thing, Roger. Right on that point, everybody knows about Blagojevich and all these guys in Illinois. Don't they have like three or four like governors in jail? New York's got them, man. We had Sheldon Silver, Silver, and the other guy that was the head of the of the Republican, uh, uh, you know, the Senate, both in jail at the same time. We had Skello. Spitzer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we had Spitzer. Where Spitzer had to resign, and you know that was a railroad job. But you know what? He was going after Johns and going after prostitution hard, not just bad guys. And so he, then he got caught with some good. Goodbye. Then we had Cuomo resign. So I think New York's right up there with as far as people that are either in jail or resigned in terms of that. During the pandemic, he cut two and a half billion dollars in Medicaid funding, while rejecting the extra money in Medicaid funding handed down from uh, the Trump administration. Yeah. And remember he so, passed that nursing home uh, bypass, even the CEO, not people that made a tough decision about letting someone die on the, on the floor of the plate, but the CEOs got, and guess what? It became a template for the whole country, right? Where they say, Oh, here, Oh, that's a great idea. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Cuomo, Cuomo's a slimy. The legal liability shield so that he forced, he forced nursing homes to take in COVID patients and they was just like, yo, we're going to get sued. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to put into the budget because remember what I told you before about the budget savvy that the governor has complete control over the budget process. He said, don't worry oh. about it. I'm going to put in the budget a legal liability shield. And then uh, Assemblyman Kim made sure to get it. Con- I remember that. Make sure to get it. And a lot of those people yeah. died. A lot of those people died. I remember. Yeah. And Assemblyman Ron Kim called them out on that. So we took it out of the uh, bill. Yep. And it's made it a template nationwide. But that's the other thing about New York. It's just structured. Three men. It's famous for the three men in a room. Two guys, the leaders and 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 the governor. And if it's both, if it's Democrat and Democrat, then it's three Democrats. They decide everything. This isn't like the Senate where they don't allow amendments. They write the entire bill from A to Z. And that's it. Three men. Three men control or three women. Well, now now it's two women and a guy in a room. Okay, that, yeah. that didn't sound right. And that, that, yeah. that, can never, that can never be good, even if they're the best faith characters ever, okay? <laughs> yeah. Mm, very interesting. Well, Lance, thank you so much. I want to bring in Ashura. Poor Ashura's been waiting a while. 
Um, Ashera, you are the next caller. You just have to unmute. You're on the mic. Hi. Hi, Ashera. I'm I'm doing good. By the way, you say I've been waiting for a while. I'm I'm good. I mean, I can listen to Noel all night if she wants to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Hakeem Jeffries thing. I didn't see it, but I saw a rundown version of it from Jimmy and Nick when he was on the show. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what what, what are you guys gonna do, man. You can't really expose. You can expose these guys, but nobody wants to listen to these guys or um. They're sellouts. I mean, <laughs> it, it, Nick said it before. Nick said it himself on the Jimmy Dore show that this is something that's been going back since Africa, the shores of Africa. Like we've been, you've been selling, we've been selling our kind out for a very long time. And anytime you say the word sellout to a black person, they're like, "Who me? I'm not a sellout." Don't you see? Don't you see me quoting Jay Z and Beyonce? How can I be a sellout? I'm one of you. I'm like, well. You, all, all skin folks are not kin folks. So basically, these guys don't give a shit. I mean, even AOC. AOC doesn't give a shit. The squad doesn't give a shit. I mean, Elon Omar said that she agreed with some things that were in the package that the, the Republicans got. And then she turned around and she voted against the church thing. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> a part of the problem is our politics is so hollowed out and empty. You know, um, as you were speaking, Ashura, I was thinking about how, you know, with the superficiality of identity politics and, you know, the President Obama, Vice President Harris, Katanji Brown, it's just all these hollowed out symbols that really mean nothing to the day-to-day experience of the poor and working poor. And yet, we fail to interrogate and hold them accountable. And I think the great tragedy is that when, you know, we, we're we so given to identity politics and the celebration is so hard when someone from a minority class gets elected or um, appointed or what have you, we get so caught up in the euphoria of the moment that we never demand anything but representation. And so in terms of Black people, especially the descendants of slaves, we have an entire class of gatekeepers and grifters, and we cannot even recognize them. It's like by the time they pull the daggers out of our back, it's going to be too late. And I don't know about the rest of the people in the chat and on the panel, but when you try to have these discussions in real time with real people, it is like pulling nails, you know, because they're so wedded to thinking, oh, Barack Obama did the best. I mean, before you can even level a critique, they're running to the defense. Well, you know, he was black. They weren't going to let that one black man, that one black man couldn't do it all by himself. He did what they allowed him to do. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even, you know, and in my thinking, you know, because of who I am in my identity, I let it go because I can, I have had some relationships damaged because I took the chance to go ahead and press the issue. But what happens is, when you challenge the way people see the world, 
and how they understand the world, they will alienate you or that process will see you alienated and your rapport will just be broken down, you know, and even with my family members who are older than I am, it's like I had to ease up off it because they began to allow the fact that I am different began to overwhelm the whole discourse. And it's like, well, you know, she this, that, and a third. So, of course, she see the world so distorted and twisted and this and that. And I'm saying that's not it at all. But rather than you hear me out and and really think about what I'm saying, it's easier for you to vilify me and say, oh, she believes that because she's this, that, and a third. And when I'm faced with that, I'm just like, oh, Lord, we'll never be able to find our way out of this because they just destroy you rather than hear the message and think about it. You talk about like Listen, they they are. Uh, what's what's the song? Roger knows this. The song that goes what they do. They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. That's, that's OJ. That's, that's yeah, that's Backstab OJ. Us. OJ. Yep. <laughs> Go, go ahead, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, talking about <laughs> knives in the back. I'm like, how do you not feel the knife in the back when they, when they stick it in? Like, I mean, do they put some anesthesia or somebody prick you somewhere else first for the anesthesia to kick in before you stab the knife in? Um, oh, I did. I mean, the best I could. You or, know, where's the or, Like you said, you said that there's the euphoria. Or is the anesthesia the euphoria? Because you're you're so kind. Oh my God, Obama! The the euphoria yeah. is the anesthesia, and then when they tell you, "Oh, those mean old Republican obstructionists, this and that, and blah 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 blah," people who believe in them believe the narratives they spin, and so it's just so difficult to cut through. It's so thick, and that's when I realized how indoctrinated, and you know given to conventional thinking that so many of our people are it's like come on it's and then but when when trump took office and he cut that corporate tax rate you didn't hear a peep out of the democrats they didn't say a word and that's what i'm saying that's when you should have been fine but that's when you showed your true colors and that's when we realized that in terms of economics, you all are on the same page. And that's why the winners keep winning and the losers lose. But until the losers wake up and say, wait a minute, you pulling a double on me. You are, you know, making a fool out of me until they have that aha moment. We're just going to be in these cycles because they, they rather slay me and people like me quicker because I don't represent all of these things that have been you know, built up in their consciousness. But I'm like, baby, it's because I have been made to stand outside the mainstream circle that I see it so clearly and objectively because I've made, I've been made to live my life on the borders of the mainstream. And when I see it, I see it clearly. I see it from the bottom up and from the outside in. And that's why I am so clear. Because I remember uh, when Obama got voted in and he was coming to Canada, my stepdad asked me a question. Um, what do you think about Barack Obama basically being like voted as the first black president? I had no fucking answer for that. 
I guess maybe, maybe that was my 2023, 2023, 2023 self basically say, don't say shit. Cause you feel in your gut, there's something wrong about this guy. Don't answer the question. Just give some garbage answer. But you feel like Obama's not going to do shit over there. <laughs> I got to admit, I was, I was, Noel, I was, Noel, I was part of that thinking back then. What was so hurtful until... for me with Barack Obama is, you know, I too had that deep yearning that this man would try. I know as the president, you can't do it by yourself, but you have the bully pulpit. You can use your eloquence to make the case. And when he, you know, turned his back so quickly with the Wall Street situation, that was, yeah. you know, I just felt something in me sinking. I'm like, this man, this man is not who he appears to be. He is not going to fight. And I believe the American public, I believe there's a, a segment of the American public, including the white American public. If you lead them, if you speak to these issues with clarity and unravel it for them, they'll understand it. But that's that's the whole fight about critical race theory. The people who are gaming this system fight harder to keep it broken than the people who are being deserved by it. It's what something is, about that psychologically that people who have or perceive that they have a thing, they fight harder to keep it than those who are fighting to get access to. Well, since you brought up critical race theory, what is it exactly? I think it's um, it's showing, well, first of all, it's a college course. Is it, is it about they, like just hiding the history of slavery in high school or middle school? It's is that what it is? About no, no, no. race critically. That's really what it is. But if I'm not mistaken, I have to double check, but I think it's Arkansas. Isn't Sarah Huckabee in Arkansas? They just outlawed yes. it there. She's the governor. She just, yeah, she yeah. just outlawed it there. So, I we were going to talk about it in your show about, like, you didn't know certain history. You have to learn it in college. And effectively wanted to do that in high school and they said no no we can't have that there critical race originated as a legal theory and what um this group of legal students um put forward was the notion that when you look at the canon of american law if you look back you can see that the way the laws were put into place they had a beneficial impact for white america that it did not have for black America. And so they're saying this was built into the legal system, into the laws. And that's why, like I said, it emerged through um, a legal set of um, musings at that level. It was never meant to be, you know, taken to the elementary school level and this and that. So the whole response and brouhaha to critical race theory as a phenomenon was in itself disingenuous because there was never any idea or any proposal to bring this concept to the elementary and early school education. It was strictly something that would be discussed and debate and, and um, dealt with in the legal or at least collegiate level. But the people who understood what that type of interrogation would entail 
came out swift and fast and vociferous just, you know, to create this fur around it to beat it down before it even had a chance to breathe in the context that it was meant to breathe. Because every time I hear about oh. it, it's like they say, oh, you want our kids to basically feel guilty for being white. Can I answer that real quick? Um, when when I hear that, right, and they say, oh, uh, we don't want to teach anything to make uh, our white kids feel bad and, and so on and so forth. I always felt, you know, you could turn that around on them. I, yeah, like you could say, well, you know what? I don't want you people teaching my my uh, black son about the founding fathers who were slaveholders. I mean, since this is this is since this is how we're going to do things, okay? Because it makes my black son feel bad. Or my black about daughter feel the bad. The history of this country without talking about slavery, without talking about Jim Crow, without talking about civil rights. Like you can't. That would just be like. You're going to talk about the history of the United States of America, of North America, without talking about indigenous people. You just can't. Like, you're erasing, like, a big segment of the history. What are they going to tell kids? One day we all just popped up here. We all just decided to come here. We all immigrated here. Like, what are they going to say? And you guys got to understand, like, because I've, I've gone to school in different states. One of the things that some of the southern states have been doing, like some of them, is that They've been actually telling kids in history class that slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War, that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. They say that it was about states' rights. Okay, what were one of the rights that the Southern states were fighting for? The right to keep slaves. But see, this is how they will spin it. And a friend of mine, she's a teacher in Texas, and she was telling me the same thing. In Texas, they want them to tell the students that shit. And she was just like, no, I'm not telling my students that it had nothing to do with that. She's like, that is a lie. But this is what they're doing. It is a, it is a way to make white people feel more comfortable in this country and not feel some sense of guilt. But it's okay for everybody else to feel guilty. And this is, we need to push back, like, on these narratives. When you hear people saying these types of things, because... It all starts with education. And that's why I say education is very crucial. You have to fix the schools. You have to you have to really go in and you have to change some of these curriculums. Some of these curriculums, they're not even really talking about history anymore. The main focus now, especially in a lot of the elementary schools, is reading and math. That is a STEM. big part of the focus are behind with reading in this country their math skills are not up to par when you compare them to some of the foreign countries which that is true but the thing is is this if you go to some of the black schools some of the black public schools they actually start learning about history a lot earlier than the white schools do they start learning about slavery earlier and i've experienced this myself having gone to school in baltimore for a year that was in elementary school in the fifth grade. They were already teaching us about slavery and things like that. That was a black school. We had two white students at the school, but it was a black school, Lockerman Bundy. It's still there. And I can see the difference when I went from, you know, the white school to the black school and then back to the white school. I could see the difference in the way that they framed the narrative around the history of, of black Americans in this country. They tell it in a way at the white schools to make the white kids not feel so bad. Now, that being said, I still remember sitting in high school and we saw like parts of roots in high school. I don't think they would ever show that now. 
Yeah. My question wouldn't be one um to to talk about slavery or not. My question would be when to talk about butt breaking and some of the graphic natures of what they did in slavery. Like you you should wait till their senior year or age where they're appropriate. I wouldn't teach them in like their freshman year of high school. That might be too young. But there's a lot of graphic nature of slavery that they need to be that needs to be known about. What did you What did you say it was uh, case? But yeah, yeah, you ever heard of that? Butt breaking? No, I'm sorry, I'm not today. today. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much breaking your spirit. Yeah, it, oh. it, it, it's it's a the graphic part of it is basically it, they okay. would send the um troublesome uh slave slaves to uh, a plantation that was known for breaking the spirits of uh, slaves that were rebellious and are, are one of the things that they would do is take the biggest strongest slave and they would bring them in front of all the slaves and they would literally sodomize them and that's where the word butt breaking comes from yeah, I, to I, I intimidate was... intimidate um the all the slaves from ever rebelling yeah so uh, my last two questions um one is about what is a moderate? Is moderate uh, a demo, uh, uh, a centrist, or is it like an independent? Because I remember Kakolinski was telling Bernie Sanders, giving advice that uh, he has to be the moderate. If, if Bernie Sanders is calling himself a social democrat, that he has to focus on the moderate. But this, uh, from what I've heard, that this country is majority independent. So what's he talking about moderate? Independent is supposed to mean that you are independent from both parties. You're not a Democrat. You're not a Republican. That's what independent is supposed to mean. Now, people have different reasons as to why they are independent. Some people have been a part of one of those parties and they've been disappointed. So they decided, you know what? Screw both parties. I'm independent. And then some people just never fully identified with one or the other. But the problem that we have in this country is that a lot of times the independents will still vote for one of the two parties at the end of the day. So to that case, I always say that you're not really independent because if you say you're independent, you don't support both parties. But at the end of the day, you still vote for the Democrats. You still vote for the Republicans. That's why third parties can't get a leg up in this country, because if the majority of the country is independent and all those people who are independent voted third party, then we would have a third party president. We would have an independent president, but we don't because at the end of the day, they usually go to one side or the other. And the moderates are within each party. The moderates are considered those who are not, who do not cling to the most stringent ideologies of either party. So they are what you would consider more of the centrist with respects to ideology. And it's generally thought that they would be more willing to, you know, bend and negotiate and be flexible and this and that because they're not hardwired to any of the most stringent ideologies. Okay, and my last that, question well, is: Let me give an example. What my um former governor, Governor Baker, he just stepped down. He was a Republican, but he was a moderate Republican. So like he agreed with the Republican Party on the economic issues to a certain point, but he disagreed with some of the social issues. For example, he's pro, uh, you know, a woman's right to choose. 
which a lot of times a lot of Republicans are not. So he agreed with something like that. Um, he agrees with putting money back into the schools, fixing the school systems, like the state needs to pay for certain things. Like he, he agrees with those kinds of things, but he still is considered a Republican. So he's called a moderate Republican. Uh, another one is Susan Collins from Maine. She's another one that they refer to as a moderate uh, Republican. Yeah, and my last question, um, it's about Martin Luther King. Why are people on the on the right and uh, in the, and also on the Democratic Party, they keep making up shit about MLK, like who he was. Like I was uh, watching Professor, I was re- watching Professor Black Truth, and he said that MLK was probably a hidden communist, but he didn't basically tell people that. And he would not identify as Democrat or Republican because MLK's dream wasn't like to go hand in hand, say, oh, we need the kumbaya of white people and black people. What he was like saying, cut the check. That wasn't what he was all about. Well, apparently, according to our case, Mehdi Hassan actually did address that apparently today, that he did tell people the truth about Martin Luther King. And I think the reason why that stuff is coming out now is because you know, more and more information is being revealed about these Twitter files. It's already been released that, you know, the FBI killed Malcolm X. That information came out about a year uh-huh. ago or was confirmed a year ago. More information comes out. There's that documentary on Hulu called the FBI and MLK, where they talk about uh-huh. all the things that the FBI did to MLK. And by the way, Robert Kennedy. Also, some people like to talk about Robert Kennedy and MLK as being friends. But what a lot of people don't know is that MLK was also involved. Um, Excuse me. Robert Kennedy was also involved with helping the FBI uh, track MLK. See, that's another thing that people see. These are the things they they're not going to tell you about in your history books in school. They don't mention those things. They don't tell you how the FBI was going after MLK or Aretha Franklin for that matter. Like there's multiple people that they've, they've gone after when they talk about Malcolm X, how do they discuss, they discuss him. They say that Malcolm X was radical. He was extreme. uh, And MLK was the good guy because he was nonviolent and he wanted peace, but they don't tell you that towards the end, MLK actually said that looking back on it, maybe it wasn't the best option to always be nonviolent. So they leave those pieces out. They don't tell you that MLK and Malcolm X actually did agree on certain things. Uh, So I think there's a big piece about that. Like watch that documentary on Hulu called MLK and the FBI and watch, if you haven't seen it, Watch Judas and the Messiah, which is the story about Fred Hampton, and you'll see how the FBI came after Fred Hampton. Well, it's funny how um, I remember seeing an old movie about Fred Hampton, but I didn't know it was Fred Hampton at the time. Um, it was this uh, black guy. He was um, I used to see his movies, but he was playing Huey Newton, but it was an old movie. I'm pretty sure you know what movie I'm talking about. Probably mid 80s or 90s, and they, they, they beat him in the bed. That's what I saw. They beat him in the bed, but he, in the way you 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 uh, recounted the story, that he was knocked out. But when they beat him up in the bed, he was he he was awake and he was feeling those beatings. I don't know if you know the actor's name, a uh, black guy, short. Are you talking was about Huey, Huey Newton or um? Yeah, yeah. But but but, but no. Oh, okay. 
Okay. Uh, sure. Was it called Panther by Mario Van Peebles? Uh, I don't remember what the title is, but I know that okay. the guy was a he, he's a he's a black dude. He's he played the movie where basically they beat a guy in the bed. They were beating him up, and they, when they got him out, like he was dead in the in the ambulance. That was probably Panther, I think. Okay. That that might have been Panther because um, Judas and the Messiah was about Fred Hampton, and with Fred Hampton they actually used one of his own against him. They okay. had a guy infiltrate the Black Panther Party and join the Black Panther Party, and he was working for the FBI the entire time. The entire time. That guy came forward, I believe that was either the late 80s or early 90s, came forward and admitted all of this in an interview, and then after that interview, that guy killed himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I remember the movie, because the way you said it, that the cops came in, they shoot him in the room, because I know that the cops came in in this movie, and they beat him up with clubs on the bed as he was asleep. When, when he woke up, he saw them, and they were beating him up. The one thing I wanted to weigh in, Ashura, is to suggest that, you know, Martin Luther King, in the way that he was assassinated, easily became a martyr. I refer to him as this country's one certain prophet. We've had one certain prophet in this nation, and that was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, because of the way that he was handled and treated as a threat, and we've come to learn officially, because we always knew that there had to be some governmental involvement in it because they perceived him as a threat to the order a threat to the order of the society. And so they felt a need to deal with him in that way. And if you ever get a chance, I encourage everybody to pull up his speech at Riverside Baptist Church, where he talked about the triplets of militarism, capitalism, and I forget what the third one was, but he his prophetic and prescient voice resonates today. I mean, they could play that today and it would resonate as relevant today. And so I often refer to him as our country's one certain prophet. But to your point as to how he is treated, they had to co-opt his image, sanitize it for the pieces that they could use in yeah. their project. And so he becomes, I have a dream, I have a dream, and that is it a drum major for justice, blah, blah, blah. But they don't go to the parts of Martin Luther King that were radical and that challenged this system and called out the moderates as being our potential worst enemies because their commitment to, you know, civil rights was not matched in their commitment to equal um, economic justice. And so, but of course, a white supremacist nation is not going to present a whole picture. They're going to, I think it was Cornel West who said the Santa Clausification of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They only present one side so that again, in his death, his image and the most radical portions of it are not used to challenge people. You know, when we were talking a minute ago about crit critical race theory, it is not my desire to have young white kids feel guilty about their history and this and that. It is my desire that they would contemplate 
and interrogate what this nation is made of. Because if their education is framed in a more sound understanding of how this nation came to exist as adults, I think we would have built a better society. But what we understand when we have these false arguments about, oh, I don't want my child to feel bad about this, that is white guilt. That is the white guilt of people who know damn well what this nation has done and what it continues to do to propagate itself. And they're resistant to the real interrogation of what has happened. But there are those of us who still live those realities to this day. And so I challenge everybody to get to know and get acquainted with the real, the essential Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King through his words. Everything you said there, uh, it was said so in the video I was watching. And I, I was thinking then, when does, when do, when do, when does Mark, uh, uh, Malcolm X get his due? Because it seems like they never talk about Malcolm X. Like only black people, Malcolm X comes out of their mouths. They're the ones cleaning Malcolm X's feet and face from the mud that uh, white supremacy basically puts on them in the media. And they just hoist uh, Dr. King. But it's like a it's like a fake version of King, not the actual King itself. I was going to say, I think there needs to be another MLK uh, movie um, that reveals the things that we were just talking about. And I think there needs to be another Malcolm X movie. Now, don't get me wrong. Denzel did a, a fire job <laughs> uh, playing Malcolm X. That was a good movie, but considering the information that has come out since then, that it was the FBI that went after him, the letter where, you know, the FBI agent was revealing all of it. Remember, his daughter found out that information over a year ago, and then his daughter died. Now, they said the two weren't, it wasn't related, the incident and all that kind of stuff. Um, that of what? Let's all remember that because I, I covered that when it happened over a year ago and I was like, look, we were just telling you guys recently how his daughter found that letter and it was revealed from the guy who infiltrated Malcolm X's movement and he was revealing that he was hired by the FBI to take the movement apart and to take out Malcolm X. That was all revealed. Then it was like a couple months or so later that his daughter died. They said they found her on the floor. Uh, in her apartment. So I think that um, there needs to be another Malcolm X movie that reveals that piece because that piece is not in the Denzel movie. So I think they need to redo some of these movies. Like the closest that they get right now to it is that Fred Hampton movie, Judas and the Messiah. They Because they expose all that in that movie where they show that, yeah, the FBI had that guy infiltrate and all of that stuff. And it, and it wasn't just uh, the Chicago chapter was other black chapters as well. Uh, yeah, I, I know I said the last question. I could talk all day to both you and uh, Noel. So <laughs> I'm going to talk about that, that damn fucking statue. <laughs> you know, the one that mm -hmm. looks like a fucking, whatever, whatever, a fucking turd or a sausage. <laughs> that statue, that statue made me so angry, Ashura, because I just thought to myself, out of everything that MOK has done for people in this country, like, you know, we're not sitting, or at least I'm not sitting at the back of the bus because of MOK. You know what I'm saying? 
Like it's, it's, it's things like that. Like after everything that he did, he gave his life so that people like me could have the freedoms that he didn't have. And he knew he was going to die because remember what he said in his speech, he said, I may not get there with you. So he knew that he was going to be killed. He was willing to fight for it anyway. The fact that they just wanted to make a statue of him with some arms and some damn hands. And those of you who saw the episode, you guys know I talked about this shit on Sunday. We talked about it on RBN early today. I was like, this is an absolute disgrace to do that to MLK. And I don't care. I don't care what picture is supposed to be from. You can't put his face on the damn statue when he's his face is on the statue in other cities. That is a very telling moment. And I hate to say it, but... It is what it is. It's Boston. And I saw the artist on CNN earlier this morning talking about standing by his work. And this is what the family asked for. And uh, so, of course, who did they show? Martin Luther King Jr. The third. Martin Luther King Jr. The third is a neocon. He's a capitalist. He's nothing like what MLK was like. Democrat. He's someone who goes for the status quo. He's the one that's going to tell you to vote for Joe Biden. So, of course, they showed his opinion, but they did not show Seneca Scott's opinion, who is uh, Coretta Scott King's cousin. He's the one that wrote that article that said it was an absolute disgrace to show his family like that. So, of course, they didn't talk to him. They didn't bring him on. You know who did bring him on? Of course, it was Fox News. That oh, yeah. statue is ugly. Yeah, if I, I go see a statue, yeah, I saw a black guy on Tucker. I didn't know he was part of the King family. And I'm, yeah, and I'm like, Seneca I'm Scott, like, he's running for mayor in Oakland. And I saw that. I saw two different angles from it. I didn't. I didn't see the the hands. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I thought they were. I thought they were legs. I'm like, no. Then they showed no. This is the picture. Somebody put the picture of I have a dream. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this. But you shouldn't have to do that. Nobody looks at that and thinks, oh, Dr. King. No, it looks like it literally looks like you guys. It's two. It looks like two hands holding a big fat penis. That's what it looks like. I was like, who the fuck? They were like, that's supposed to be the arm. I'm like, that does not look like an arm. Because people were mocking that that, that, that statue. People, there was a meme that says, I have a dream. And you saw a picture of him and his wife holding hands with a with a face, a torso, and everything. And the other one says, "I have a nightmare." And yep. you, you have the statue. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, who 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 made this statue? Is it a white person that made this statue? It no, it was a black a- guy. A black guy made the statue, but that don't mean anything either. Listen, they said this artist specialized in hands. I'm okay. like, why did they pick them? I'm like, so gave him ten million dollars for nothing. Listen, they would have been better off putting that $10 million back in the black communities here that's in Boston right, instead of making that statue. I'm like, you should have spent that money in the community. Like, why give it the, it's it's garbage. Just melt that shit down and just restart it. Give it to somebody who actually wants to fucking do it. Well, they asked him on CNN, what are you going to do about it? He was like, what do you mean? What am I going to do about it? There's nothing I can, it's ugly. And I, uh... I think the great tragedy is you have taken this man who really fought for a better United States of America. It wasn't just black people or the descendants of slaves or poor people. When you make the effort to raise the consciousness 
of the entire nation and call forth our better selves to do just, to be just people, you're fighting for the entire nation and to always try and extract the most gentle portion of his nature to remind us that who he was a minister he was all about love to to think that you want him and his arms around his wife being the most enduring thing that anybody remembers to the point that you would exclude the rest of his body that statue is so huge that they could have done a greater than life-size life-like representation of the both of them standing in yeah. its entirety and then put on the pedestal some of his more radical language where he is challenging this nation to do right by the descendants of slaves and do economic equality because those are the things that plague us to this day. That remains the fierce urgency of now. But no, you're going to give us this gigantic abstraction thing that people can't even really, you know, make out what it is and this and that. But when you think about it, the substance of this moment meets the moment of where we are. We in this nation are obscuring the history. We don't understand it. And so it is appropriate. And I think it is surreal that the images we put forward are just as conflicted and uncertain and unmoored from the reality as we are in our consciousness today. Hey, hey Savvy, um, this is Eric. I just wanted to say something because, you know, I, I actually... I, I was a graphic designer for, for quite a while, not anymore, but I could tell you that any sort of uh, artistic, uh, what this uh, guy did with, with the statue, it had to go through a series of proofs before it was finally approved. And it, it had to have a body of people approving it. So if they did this, it was on purpose. Any, anybody who looks at the statue, it does not represent MLK in any way. It's too abstract. And usually when you have somebody of this stature, which MLK is universally known for everything that he did on behalf of black folks and to move civil rights in, in, the, in the direction that he moved it, along with everybody else behind him, you needed to have a statue that would depict him and that you could see him instantly when you saw the statue that you can identify with them as you looked at it you can't do that with this statue so uh to noel's point this was done on purpose there is nothing that would tell me as a as a person that did graphics for, for a number of years that i couldn't say man why would you depict it this way this doesn't make sense and the mm -hmm. people that would review it would challenge him because that's the other thing, too. When you get out of uh, something of that uh, level, you're going to challenge it. You're going to say, hey, well, why are we going to do it, do it this way? This doesn't make sense. And also the people that would be approving that would also think about uh, the outcome. It's not just that they're going to be approving something in the abstract. They would have to approve it and review it on the sense of how is this going to affect people who are viewing it, right? Just like we're talking about it now a body of people had to review it and, and assess it and say, yeah, this doesn't make sense. So they, they did this on purpose. Had they done it the right way, uh, 
like Noel was saying, they could have put a, a statue that was huge depicting him like the large hero that he is to all of us. So I just wanted to put that in there. Is it the yeah, man? No, it's a hundred percent true, I kid. And when I look at the the MLK statue in DC and somebody, by the way, people like people emailed me and DM me and said that like, I just want to show you what the MLK statue looks like where I live. All these statues had a face. All these statues had a face, even the one in, in Alabama. I'm like, the fuck was this? Like, so it was embarrassing. And you know what sucks also is the fact that, of course, it happened in my city. It happened in Boston. And Boston, till this day, still has that reputation of being the most racist city in America. And then you take off Dr. King's head. So that white... That white stone slab, uh, is it uh, in Washington? The one with the giant face with him with his arm crossed? The one that yes. looks like it's not finished? Yes. I, mean, I don't know why they don't, they don't keep just hammering at it. They could just finish it up. You mean like the bottom part? Yeah, everything. It's like it's missing some parts. I mean, I would have basically continued on it. Put his wife on, on, on the back. I don't know. On, on side, whatever. Well, fuck. I'm glad he got a head, okay? Like, it just, it, this is just, you guys got to understand, we have two Paul Revere statues in, in this city. Two. Both of them have heads. There's a, a statue, as soon as you enter the North End neighborhood in Boston, of, uh, I believe his name was Rocky. Uh, he was he was a boxer, not, not the Rocky from the Rocky movies, but he was a, a famous uh, Italian boxer. He got a head. Hell, he got a whole body. Isn't he the one that's like uh, inspired by the movie? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, he has a whole body. You go to make a statue of Martin Luther King, and, and why is MLK significant to people here in Boston? Because he went to school here. He went to BU. Like, they have pictures of him outside of the theology school at BU. Like, they'll say, oh, yeah. Like, if you come here, like, for a BU tour, they'll tell you, yeah, MLK went here to theology school, da-da-da. And then this is how you honor the family? It's like, no. An arm should not look like a penis or a turd. And that's what it looks like. It's disgusting. Do you think a reckoning may come for, what, what's her name, Mayo Wu? I think her name is. She's a hot mess. I think she might be on her way out. Like yeah, I think because this should be enough to basically galvanize everybody now. Like if they're disrespecting, just... if they're disrespecting Martin Luther King with just two arms, like they're chopping him up, like it's some slavery shit. You just want to send a message. You chop up the fucking slave and then you show the body parts to the on the rest of the plantation. Say anybody that speaks out, try to do any radicalism, will chop up the pieces. Not even just that, but she's horrible on the fucking housing issue. Like she's a, she's participating in gentrification because her husband is is in bed with the real estate industry. So she's privatized some of these affordable housing and some of the public housing. Like it's just she's part of the reason, and it didn't start with her, but she's part of the reason why gentrification is continuing in Boston and black people being pushed out of their neighborhoods. She's a part of it, even though she just signed that deal for more affordable housing, you got to understand what that really means. Affordable for who? And most of the time, the affordable housing isn't affordable for most of the people that live in that neighborhood. So I'm pretty sure they're making it affordable for, I don't know, elitists or well-off families? 
you have to be within a certain income bracket. So if you fall below that income bracket, you would have to apply for public housing. The problem is to get into public housing, you got to be really, your income has to be significantly low. So the people who fall in between the income bracket of public housing and affordable housing, those people are the ones who are oftentimes screwed because they can't fit into either one, which means they still have to pay full rent. But Boston is fucking expensive. Listen, I, like I told you, I've lived here for, I'm on my 11th year now. It was not this expensive when I moved here. Like it was expensive, but now, mm-mm. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up, but I'm gonna leave you guys like the speakers a uh, question about the Warnock situ- Warnock situation of bringing uh, Joe Biden fucking racist Jim Crow Joe and Martha Luther King's church and pimping everybody out, picking pimping everybody out to Joe Biden. I'm in. Thanks so much, Ashura. Uh, go ahead, Case, and I'll bring it yeah. here. Yeah, just a couple of things uh, that I was thinking about, but yeah, that's why savvy universal programs work the best because they just cover everybody and you don't have to, it doesn't get complex into deciding, oh, this person is not making enough money or, and then there's people that's right above that poverty line that still needs help, but now they're not qualifying. So anyway, that that's a whole nother story. But I just want to mention that, um, you know, today was, or not today anymore. But Lumumba's, I believe, his death, the anniversary, I I know that RBN covered, um, I saw CJ earlier covering Patrice Lumumba. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, William O'Neill was the person that betrayed Fred Hampton. And um, Patrice Lumumba, he had a a friend that was the one um, that he appointed that was in his cabinet, was um, a part of the army. He was the one that worked with the CIA to betray him. So it always seems that they find the CIA finds somebody on the inside to uh, do the dirty work of bringing down our leaders that are trying to bring about uh, social positive change for the people. So I just want to mention that. That's right, Case. You spot on. You're spot on. Um, Pierre, you have to unmute yourself and welcome. Hey, can you hear me okay? okay? I can hear you. What's up? Hey. Um, so a while back, someone said that they think the Democratic Party has moved to the right. And I, I just don't understand what the reasoning is, what their, what possible reasoning they could have for that. Um, move to the right. I'm not saying that they're sufficiently left, but how would they move to the right? I can answer that. Okay. Um, there was some laws that was passed, or maybe I think it was. A, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it was Citizens United or something like that. But there was. I remember back in my uh, Rachel Maddow days, before she went complete Russia Gate. Um, she was. She had this chart up of showing who donates to both parties and then who donates in the past and then who donates to most parties now so most of the revenue stream was from unions okay to the democrats it was kind of even republicans had the bosses 
Democrats had the unions. But then once what happened was once they started taking the unions down, Democrats said, oh, I guess we got to get the same donors as the Republicans. And now they're both corporate parties. And no one is. It, that's why how they move to the right. <laughs> and Clinton facilit- Bill Clinton facilitated that um, where they was where he embraced, you know, DLC leadership and Koch brothers and all that different type of stuff. And figured, oh, there's nowhere else for them to go, so they're just gonna have to roll with us. Um, so yeah, it was it was when the it's when the unions started getting taken down, you know, all right. the Supreme Court decisions that was passed that they're still passing today. So that's that's pretty much what what happened. It was but, uh, yeah. it was Bill it was Bill Clinton who. <laughs> Unfortunately, it it was Bill Clinton who made that move. Right, but since Clinton, from Clinton to now, they've shifted to the left, have they not? No, 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 they haven't. No, even on the the social, even on. Let me finish, Roger. Even on the social issues, they haven't really shifted to the left. And we were just talking about this earlier tonight. How Hakeem Jeffries? You have Democrat politicians supporting Democrat. Uh, politicians and candidates and and judges who are anti-choice, who are mm-hmm. anti-union, that is not moving further to the to the left. That's moving further to the right. When you see the the railroad workers, and sorry to bring this up again, guys, but here we are. When you see the railroad workers, you know, fighting for the right just to have a decent contract, just to have freaking sick days. That's it. And you see so-called progressives in D.C. become strike breakers instead of pushing back against establishment Democrats, which is what they were sent to D.C. to do as a part of Justice Democrats. The Democratic Party is moving further to the right. They're not moving further to the left. When you see people like Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn go to Texas to support Henry Cuellar, who is anti-choice over his pro-choice opponent, Jessica Cisneros, the Democratic Party is moving further to the right. The Democratic Party has has been moving this way since Bill Clinton. And so when I interviewed Ro Khanna, he tried to make this argument as well. Look at all the things that we've done and what we got. None of those things applied to people like me. So I didn't get anything. And the, the examples that he gave were things that happened before I was even born. He said the Democratic Party gave us Social Security. They gave us Medicare. Again, none of those things apply to me and none of those things happened during my lifetime. Since I have been born, the Democratic Party has not done anything to benefit people who are working class, to benefit people who are poor. All they have done in this turn, again, it happened with Bill Clinton. What they have done is they have become this Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo party, and that transitioned into Barack Obama, and it has been that way ever since. It is a corporate party looking out for corporate interests, and the same thing with the Republican Party, but we know that with the Republican Party. They don't try to pretend like they're grassroots. They don't try to pretend like, yeah, we're (coughs) grassroots, and we're Mm -hmm. for the workers, and yada, yada. They They don't claim that. The Democratic Party does claim it. So no, it hasn't moved further to the left. Just because you have a couple of 
you know, so-called progressives in the House, that doesn't mean anything when they're voting along with establishment Democrats and they're not using their leverage. So, no. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, listen, I'm not saying that they're sufficiently left, but if you compare it to Bill Clinton, for example, um, well, but it, Bill Clinton. It, it, this is Eric. What? Let me just ask well, you. Can this. I finish or no? Well, I just want to ask you quickly. Sure. You name? Could you name three policies that the Democrats have created over the last, let's say, ten years, let's even twenty years, that are tangible, that would be considered to be left to the benefit of everyday Americans? Just three. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the FTC just implemented the non-compete um, or eliminated non-compete clauses. Um, that just happened recently. Um, the global warming legislation, certainly not enough, but was the most, uh, you know, most generous um, uh, subsidies of clean energy in history. Um, got Obviously, since Bill Clinton, um, you've got, they've moved to the left on gay marriage. Um, Bill Clinton implemented. Uh, well, 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 no, I, I'm sorry. I have to interrupt here because I have to explain the gay marriage thing because <laughs> this comes from my state. So, so first and foremost, the way that actually happened was not through the Democratic Party. And I want to be very clear about this because this is something that the Dem the Democratic Party takes credit for that they don't need to take credit for. The reason why gay marriage became legal in Massachusetts, it had nothing to do with political party. It had everything to do with the fact that there were gay couples that were trying to get married in Massachusetts and they were being denied that right. So what happened was the activist groups actually organized and sued the Superior Court in Massachusetts and they said it was discrimination. After they were sued, the Superior Court came back and said, well, we don't want to have to deal with this again. Let's just make gay marriage legal in Massachusetts. That's how that happened. And, and I point out my state because that's that set the precedent. Mm -hmm. That's where it came from. Right. So just 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 keep that. Keep that yeah. in mind. Well, and I'm then, not. And then, yeah. and then two, in reference to the one that you said before that, I'm sorry, remind me. Well, non-compete clause and global warming legislation the and global, uh, child the tax credit. And no, no, um, no, no. Wait a minute. One at a time. The global warming uh, legislation actually also benefited fossil fuel companies. So you see, this is why the, I've talked to climate scientists. This is nothing. This is nothing. People need to really understand this. So okay, when you have what, a piece yeah. of global warming legislation and you have pieces in that bill, which I've read the bill, you have pieces in the bill that benefit the fossil fuel companies, mm -hmm. you are not trying to fix any type of climate crisis anytime soon. The fossil fuel companies still get their share, they still get their portion, and that's why someone like Joe Manchin supported that bill to begin with. Mm -hmm. The child so, tax credit, the child tax credit ended prematurely. Correct. It wasn't but, even supposed to stop when it did. And right, if you bringing up it? things that happened during the pandemic, the only reason the child tax credit was even implemented was because we were in a pandemic 
And a lot of people had lost their jobs because businesses had closed in these states where the governors had shut down the states and locked the states down. So they had no choice. And then they ended it prematurely. Right. But who was the who was at fault for that? It was the most conservative member in the caucus. Right. It wasn't the main the, the the mainstream Democrat wasn't opposed to extending it. It was the most. What are you conservative, talking? What conservative member in the caucus? It was the most conservative Democrat in the caucus that blocked that. It was Joe Manchin. Why does the Democratic Party have a conservative a part of the party? Because that's how they have to compete in in states like West Virginia. No, it isn't. It yes, really it is. isn't. No, it's not. You, no, it's well, not. If they didn't have, have Joe Manchin, story? they wouldn't have had anything. So I'm not saying no, that Joe. No, Manchin no, is, no, Pierre. I think you've come on here before and I think you've brought this up before. And I'm just here to tell you, ain't nobody buying this dude. Like you, you, you really have to understand people are tired of getting crumbs. People are tired of just getting by. People want what is due and what is owed. What has the Democratic Party done for African-Americans in my lifetime? Not a damn thing. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I'm not going to split it up by, you know, uh, ethnicity or, or race. Of course not. Of course but, not, because it doesn't apply to you, because you're only going to bring out the things that apply to you. No, you're I'm just gonna saying bring that, up the things that you benefit from, that the majority benefit from. You're not going to bring up the things that the minority benefit from. And this is a big problem with the Democratic Party. And it's a big problem with progressives as well. You uh-huh. want to you want to isolate the few of us, and you only want to point out the things that help the majority. Well, I'm just contending with, or I'm just I just had an issue with someone saying they went to the right, and that's just there's no. But they have gone to the right compared if you to look win. at the legislation. Compared to win. If you look at the legislation, they've gone to the right. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party have the same donors. No. The Democratic Party, are they trying to give you Medicare for all? No, they're not. Even the progressives don't even talk about Medicare for all anymore. The Democratic Party wants you to pay for health care, even though thousands of people in this country do not have health care and have medical debt and are continuing to die and get sick. They couldn't even give you health care for everyone in this country during a time during a pandemic when people were dying by the hundred thousands. So why would I sit up here and champion for a party that is not going to give you health care, that doesn't want to give people reparations, that doesn't want to fix the school systems and give everybody a decent education in this country, that doesn't want to champion for the working class, that wants to be fucking strike breakers, why the hell would I champion for that kind of party? I, I, I never said you had to. I'm not saying they're a leftist party. I'm just saying someone said they moved to the right, and I'm not sure what year they I'm telling you that they moved to the right. Okay, and from they what have. year? If from you look year? at the party, since the time when they implemented Social Security and Medicare, they have moved to the fucking right. And the only reason they even did a new deal was because the people rose up and pushed back against the president, pushed back against the leadership. It was the outside movement that made them act. I'm telling you. So since you said someone, I'm telling you that they move further to the right. Okay. Well, in the in the 60s, they did have Social Security, Medicare. However, they also had a big contingent of segregationists in their party. 
They don't have that anymore. You still got segregationists in the goddamn party, Pierre. I live in Blue, Massachusetts, and some of these and some of these Democrats, these so-called liberals, still don't want black people in their neighborhoods. Redlining still exists, Pierre. Are you seriously going to sit here and try to tell me a black woman about segregationists in this country and in this party? Are you going to sit up here and try to let me believe that redlining does not exist anymore, Pierre? You talking to the wrong one. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a question. The Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me ask you a question. Sure. Um, where, where do you live? I don't mean like your exact address. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, live in, I know. I live in Northern California. I live in the Bay Area. Okay. How come you don't have um CalCare? I'm sorry. What's CalCare? Medicaid. Medicare for all single single payer for California. For California, I I don't know. You n- you never heard of CalCare? I haven't heard of CalCare. I'm sorry, I was talking about the Democratic Party on the national level, not the state level. So maybe there's a okay, uh, all right, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. How come yeah. we how come we don't have Medicare for all nation nationally wide? Well, that's a good question. I think that it's you know leftists are not the majority of you know it's a it's a small portion of the country that that does that has those positions. Um, and it's it's not that it's money. The, that, that's the what I was trying to get to. It's, right. it's money. But, it's but the using, donor. Uh-huh. You but see, you're using that as your reference point. And if, so if you're saying that both parties don't have Medicare for all, then the Democratic Party has moved to the right. But if you're using a policy that neither party supports, that can't be an argument for why they're the same. Um, you get, you've got to compare them to policies that they disagree on. And they disagree on a lot. And, you know, this whole idea that uh, they don't... They... they, they they agree on a lot when it comes to screwing us. Okay. Uh-huh. They agree on a lot when it comes to screwing us, but you have to also take a look at the, look at the fact uh, like this. Um, you got to take a look at the donors, man. You got to take a look at the donors. Okay. I'm up here in New York state with, with, with Chuck chuckles Schumer. Okay. This dude is wall street all the way through. You want to talk about national these Democrats up here in, in New York State are Wall Street as hell, okay? Uh-huh. They are bought off, they're corporate, okay? Um, maybe your definition of, of left might be different than mine, but as far as what my definition is, is uh, are you helping? How does this help the least of these? How does this help? How does what you do help the poor, help working people, Okay, I'm not talking about like specific issues. I'm talking about like universal issues. I'm not talking about, you know, how you feel on guns, how you feel on abortion, how you feeling on women's rights or whatever the case. I'm talking about what I just told you before about their major donor base used to be unions. Okay, Mm -hmm. so they were the work, the worker party. They were they were, you know, like but ever since the destruction of the union starting with starting with uh ronald reagan and then and then bill clinton just just uh uh took it up to another level i mean if you take a look i don't know how old you are but i remember when clinton and gore was um campaigning and the and the and i, I remember the uh if you take a look at the old uh what do you call it the old um campaign ads uh clinton and gore a new type of democrat not oh, like the old type of New Deal Democrat. They're a new kind. Yeah, they're a corporate kind. You see what I'm saying? So that's, 
that's Clint that's moving. Move to the that's um, moving to the right. You know, it's it, it, if I if I might just share, you know, for Pierre, you know, because I know Savvy mentioned Clinton and you know his welfare reform bill. Yes, destroyed families. Even right. To, yeah. Even even I to agree. this day, even to this day, that that's a paramount policy, meaning that it, it affected the whole country for decades, all the way up to now. Poor people. Well, are I think we're. No, hold on. Let me just finish. I'll, I'll let you. Oh. I'll, I'll let you speak really okay. quickly. Sure. It, it has affected, impacted, like a tidal wave, people's families and their family members for decades. Clinton did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a Republican probably couldn't have done that, but because in the disguise of a, a Democrat, people let a lot of the uh, Democrat presidents get away with things that we would not let a Republican get away. That's one of them. Uh, the the NAFTA, you know, he he signed the NAFTA bill, you know, which essentially decimated manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Clinton did a whole bunch of other things too. He signed bills uh, that essentially deported thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people uh, from from states, you know, all over the country. And Clinton don't leave out Joe Biden's crime bill. Yeah, yeah, he go. funded the police with that one. So and you know, also, a, yep. And also the 1996 Telecom Act, which took a whole bunch of different media organizations and eventually monopolized them. But also, also, here's here's one thing, if you want to talk about moving to the right, he completely destroyed FDR's signature Glass-Steagall Act that he put up to make sure there is not another Great Depression that said... Banks, you gambled people's money away on Wall Street and you took the entire economy down. We're putting up a wall to make sure you never do that again. If you want to gamble, do it with your own money. Don't do it with, uh, you know, the people's money in their banks or whatever. Clinton took that away in 1999. Nine years later, we had a 2008 stock market crash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're we're looking at different time periods. So you're comparing the, the Great Society time period, I think. I'm understanding. Well, that was New Deal. New Deal, but, yeah, 30 years later. Here, okay, here, just so, just so to give my two me, cents, real quick, I, I real quick, um, Obama sense. called himself a, a Republican from the 90s. He said it himself that he would be considered a moderate Republican. Republican. So just to throw that okay, well, can I finish my thought, please? I, I just want, I think we're comparing different time periods. So if you're comparing, you know, the New Deal and the 60s Great Society welfare expansion to the Clinton era, you're right. What I'm comparing is from the Clinton era to now. Okay, so let's compare right now. Joe Biden is funding the police more. He's giving the police more money. The police do not help black communities. The police terrorize black communities. That is not moving further to the left. You should be against the police state. They are not helping us. They solve 0.02% of crimes. Uh, People are struggling right now to pay freaking electric bills, to pay heating bills. And Joe Biden's response to that is, well, the economy's doing great. The economy is not doing great. And you know who's doing the worst? Black people are doing the worst in this country right now. They are seriously struggling financially. And Joe Biden ain't trying to do anything to fix that. If they were moving to the left, they would be like, let's go 
ahead and give black people reparations. Let's go ahead and fix that shit. If they were really trying to move to the left, if they were really moving to the left, we would have health care for everybody in this country. They're not moving further to the left. They are moving further to the right. They're sitting up here making deals with Republicans to go against us. The Democratic Party is now the party of warmongers. They're sending billions and billions of dollars out of this country to Ukraine. They ain't giving us shit. They have uh, the money. And the so they're aligned with the Republicans with that. They're aligned with the Republicans when it comes to war. They're aligned with them when it comes to corporate interests. Both parties agree that the people should be last. That is the problem. And if you look at the donors, you will understand. The reason why we don't have Medicare for all is not because we don't have enough progressives in Congress. The reason why we don't have Medicare for all, and Rokana will state this himself, is because you have too many politicians that are Democrats when we had the House and the Senate and the White House that are funded by big pharma. So until you get big money out of politics, nothing is going to improve for the American people. And you living in California, you should know that the fact that you didn't even know what cow care was is very suspect because you guys would have been the first state, the very first state to get some type of universal or single payer health care. And you know what shut it down? Big money came in and shut it down and they had the fucking votes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Democratic Party is influenced by money. The Republican Party is influenced by corporate interests. Right. Um, so moving further no, no, to the both left, of them moving money, further to they the haven't left, moved to the right. They've moved moving to the further left. to the left is uh-huh. not influenced by big money. The people who are further to the left are grassroots. The Democratic Party as a whole is a Wall Street corporate party that is not grassroots and they have not moved further to the left. Just because somebody gave you a measly ass stimulus check, which they shortchanged your ass because it was supposed to be a $2,000 check, just because they gave you that and they gave you a child tax credit, which they fucking reduced and stopped shortly, does not mean they are moving further to the left. They have moved further to the right when it comes to economic policy and they have moved further to the right when it comes to some of these social policies. If they cared that much about a woman's right to choose, then they would have codified Roe v. Wade into law decades ago. It could have been done under Obama. Roe Connor himself admitted that in my interview with him. It could have already been done. They didn't care that much about it because what's more important to them is their donors. That is the top priority. So do Mm -hmm. not come on here with me, at me with that mess. This is not a Democrat channel. I don't know what the hell you thought you were tuning into, but this is not that show. I'm not a Democrat. He would veto Medicare for all if it came to his desk on a campaign trail. He did want a, a, what is it called? A public option. And that was- Where's that at? No, Where's it at, Pierre? I'm saying their positions have moved to the left. That's a lie. No, it he hasn't played been. that before. That you, was, you know what? Bernie Sanders he, was the he, chair of the Senate Budget Committee. You think that would happen? Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders' sole position is uh-huh. to herd you back into the Democratic Party. If Bernie Sanders really gave a damn about a progressive movement, he would have not have abandoned his fucking people two times in a row. Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. is not trying to start any type of revolution that he said he was trying to start. Bernie Sanders knows how far he can go 
and he riles up the young people, the young base, to make them think they're going to get something, only in the end to tell them to vote for his corporate Democrat opponent. He knows damn well the DNC is not going to let him win. They said on the fucking debate stage that they can change the fucking rules right in front of his face. So Bernie yeah. Sanders is not your friend. He's not your savior. Bernie is looking out for himself. And anybody who has tried to fight back and has pushed back, those people have been removed. There is a reason why Dennis Kucinich district was redrawn by the Democrats, by the way, so that he didn't have a district and he can no longer have a seat. Uh -huh. Anybody in politics who knows how to play the game knows damn well that you need to go along to get along or your ass will be gone. And I have interviewed politicians, so I know that very well. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not saying it's your friend either. I'm sorry? I said Diane Feinstein is not your friend either. Well, she's, she's corporate. I agree. Well, if I could give one kind of point of comparison. So, for example, in the, the, the financial crisis, and if you want me to you know, sign off, I can sign off. But I, I would just want to bring up one more point. In the financial crisis of 08, right, the, Repub or the Democratic Party was very conservative with, with how much they wanted to do in the, in the recovery and, and the stimulus. They hedged and they, they, they short shrifted. And you compare that to what happened when they first in early 2021, where they went way in the other direction where they were overly um no no yeah, sorry no I, they I, didn't they... overly do a damn thing pierre first of all most of us never saw that fucking money if you don't have kids the child they tax credit that? didn't even apply to you second they shortchanged the fucking stimulus check so we didn't even get the two thousand dollars that was promised to us and then third what you have to also keep in mind is even at that point they didn't even want to give people a 15 dollars minimum wage seven democrats in the senate voted against it yes we knew the republicans were going to vote against it but seven mm -hmm. fucking democrats said no you guys still get to keep seven dollars and 25 cents an hour for a fucking federal minimum wage and in, in this time in the country when it's 2021 at that point in time or 2022 at that point in time they wouldn't even raise the fucking minimum wage during a time of inflation during this time when we had this pandemic those were the democrats who voted against it so don't fucking sit up here and tell me the democratic party has moved further to the left when i see fucking homeless people every fucking day and the streets have are, are piled with homeless people and the tent communities are continuing to increase across this country the democratic party ain't worrying about nobody else they just worrying about their donors and they're worried about their corporate interests and that is it those were Democrats who voted against those policies. So if they were moving further to the left, we would have a fucking $15 minimum wage and people would have health care in this country. We don't have it. Now you can keep hoping on to your pipe dream and think that that's fine for you. And if that's what you want to believe, you go ahead and believe it. But I'll be damned if I sit here and let you try to gaslight my audience into making them think that this shit ass party is doing a goddamn thing for them. Uh -huh. If the Democrat party was moving further to the left, they wouldn't have given us $15. They would have doubled that. Uh -huh. That's moving yeah, to the left. Right. It's not sufficient. I, I agree. But 
to to go to to say they went to the right is ludicrous. And you can no, no what is ludicrous? I it already said what I needed right. to say. I said this on social issues, and I brought up economic issues. Your problem is when you think of the right, you're thinking about people who are probably anti-black, anti-LGBTQ. You're thinking about the social issues, and I'm here to tell you that some of them same damn Democrats are against that shit too. Uh-huh. Welcome to America. You can move on now, Pierre. I'm bringing on bad cookies. <laughs> Fuck right. that shit. Go ahead, bad cookies. You guys are. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're part of your losers. No, what a fucking idiot. No, Jesus. <laughs> that was wonderful. I enjoyed that. Uh, good evening, Sabi. How are you? I'm fine. Can you hear so me? What's up? Hello. We hear you. Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, that last caller, man, that that guy describes why the Democrats do what they do and pass these bullshit bills, because that gives people like him the right to say, oh, we did this for the people, and oh, we did that for the people, when in reality, they didn't really do anything for anybody but themselves. Now, with that said, billionaires suck. Uh, I'm moving on from that guy, because that guy, man, that guy... Pierre, if you're out there and you're listening to me, man, good job sitting there and and taking your lumps. But you are very, very wrong when you say it is ludicrous and think that the Democratic Party has not moved right. If you look at it objectively, you will realize the truth that they have moved right. You just don't want to come to that realization. You need to come to that realization if you ever want to move forward progressively. Now, uh, with that said, Savvy, if you can hear me, uh, something I wanted to ask you is, you never put up that poll about whether or not you were going to do Sundays or Mondays. Are you ever going to do that or have you decided what day already? Oh, shoot. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to do Sundays because um, Monday night is pretty busy for me. So uh, that Sunday time tends to work out better. Yeah, that's cool. Because I, I did like that Sunday show because like like I said on your Sunday show, this the uh, football season's already almost up. Sundays mm-hmm. are free. and It'd be awesome to sit there and shoot the shit with Savvy on Sundays. It's good times. Um, With that said, I wanted to talk about that Martin Luther King statue because I think uh, in in my neck of the woods, there's a big money laundry laundry scheme going on with the art industry where our politicians uh, donate to these art industries that are tied to schools. They give them those donations for the art. They're exuberantly expensive. And then that money, they take that money and then they turn around and donate it back to the politicians and they sit there and wash this money up that way. This is in my neck of the woods. Now, in your neck of the woods, you had the Boston Landmarks Commission uh, that approved that hideous, hideous fucking statue. That thing was atrocious. And uh, these are the guys that approved it. Uh, I'll link their website in the chat. They have their entire process linked on there about how they reviewed this, how someone gave them a design of this statue, and they said, yeah, that looks good. We'll do this. And then they they had the nerve to say that the fucking family wanted this. I I swear to God, Tabby, there's no way that statue cost $10 million and, and the people were okay with this. Now I'm asking you, is there anyone that's even like coming to the this Boston Landmark Commission saying, hey, you guys really fucked up here? 
I don't know if anyone has said anything to them in particular. Um, I do know that the artist was on CNN this morning and he said that uh, the family approved. And when they showed the clip of the family approving, it was MLK Jr. the third. Like I said, he's neoliberal capitalist. Like he's, there's a reason why they bring him on CNN, you know? So Seneca Scott, cousin of Coretta Scott King did not approve and he was very vocal about it. So it's, it's just like, and talking to people here, most people don't like it. Just keeping it real. Hey, who the hell would like that fucking thing? That's a hideous fucking statue. That is disrespectful as a statue. I mean, if someone gave, imagine if Martin Luther King was alive and they presented that to him, what do you think he would say about that? It's not going to be, hey, that's great. It's going to be like, man, you need to go back to the drawing board with that shit and quit playing around. This, it's, it was not a good idea. What the, and it cost $10 million. That did not cost no $10 million, man. MLK would probably be like, where the fuck is my head? Like, seriously, like the fact that they didn't even put the head on there, I was like, really, you guys? Like, you couldn't listen, that money was wasted. And I think that's the part that bothers me the most when I found out how much it cost $10 million. They could have used that money to actually help Black communities in Boston. Instead, they decide to spend $10 million on a statue. That really, like, irks my soul. It sucks. And my thinking is they could have gotten more for less and, like you say, done things for the people in the community. But my personal perspective is when you approach public art, you have to, because there is a thing to be said for abstract art, and, you know, I get that. But when you go too highbrow, that art becomes inaccessible to the public, and which is why when you're doing things to memorialize people who have specific spaces in the history and in the um, ecosystem of the nation, I think it is important to run those renderings through public forums and public juries so that we are sure that it is in its construct accessible to the everyday man. And I mean, of course, it might not be the most sophisticated and the most highbrow and abstract, yada, yada, yada. But if it is accessible to the people that Martin Luther King was accessible to, which was the masses mm. of working poor, that's where you build the synergy. And then you take those renderings that are acceptable to the people and run those through the jury selections or what have you and this and that. But I think when you, when you endeavor, and here we go, when you go through the South for all the statues that were removed, those were not abstract renderings. Those were people with their hands up, riding on the horse, this and that. Very accessible images for those Southern Confederate people that they wanted to memorialize. So when you come to the space where you're memorializing people and personalities and epic heroes, you need to keep it closer to the vest and keep it closer to something that people comprehend so that if a five, six, seven, 10 year old walks up to it, 
they understand readily that it was a human being. He had his arm around his wife. Who is that man? And then the adults can say, well, that's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was A, B, and C. And it has a immediate accessibility. If a five mm -hmm. or six-year-old walks up to that, they're going to be like, what is this big thing? Yes, and so I think it was, you know, it, you could say it was poor judgment, but I think it was just a lack of real consideration. And like I say, I think it is horrible. I think much more could have been done with much less and the, the excess that was saved could have been used to further the community. But it's just like I say, it's a sign of the times and it's a perfect reflection of where we are in this nation where everything is so convoluted and so confused, you can't get down to the basics. Well said, Ms. Noel. Well said. Well, uh, I'll pass the, the mic along to Mr. Brent. Uh, I just wanted to get those ideas across to you, Sebs. And uh, I really, I really just love what you did to Mr. Pierre. Sorry, Mr. Pierre, if you're still out there, you, you done fucked up coming, coming here like that. But uh, you did a good job, and I love you very much, Sabby. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Bad Cookies. No, he's called into the show before with that same BS man. So Sabby lost her cool. Go ahead, Case. <laughs> I just got one more thing I wanted to add to it was that um, remember Robert Rice, who was considered the most progressive cabinet member of the Bill Clinton administration, wrote an article called Liz Cheney for President. Mm -hmm. That's um, that's the equivalent of if Carl Rove wrote an article, Matthew Ho for president. Yep. You will never, ever see a right winger advocate for a progressive Democrat like Matthew Ho in a million trillion years. Yet we have the most progressive person from the Bill Clinton administration advocating for Liz Cheney. We There's so many ways we can show examples of how the uh, Democrats have moved to the right. And one of the biggest ways that I wanted to talk about was during the 2007-8 financial collapse when President Obama had the opportunity to rebalance this economy on the backs of Wall Street that created that mess. He undergirded and saved Wall Street with a bailout and made the burden be paid by the everyday people in America who had to pay for it. And so, and that hollowed out tons of black wealth because most of the wealth in the black community is maintained in the homes. And so when a lot of people lost their homes, that wiped out wealth in the black community. That is a definitive move to the left. But the other thing I wanted to say to Pierre is, you have to judge a party by the momentum across the decades. It's not to compare, you know, the the 60s to the 70s to the, you know, the Reconstruction era to now. It is to look at where that party goes across time. And, it, and when we say where the party goes, we're not just talking about policies. We're talking about the things for which it fights. And if you have... Medicare for all being popular across the spectrum of Democrats and Republicans, certainly the Democrats should be fighting for it in legitimate ways. And here we go to the current moment. You cannot argue that this is a left party when they are actively working 
to break a, a union or, you know, destabilize the possibility for a strike. That is not movement. That is not on behalf of the people. And so, you know, I just, but I think it is an opportunity when those type of people present, it is an opportunity to hear them out because there are a lot of people who may be potentially listening who are harboring those same misunderstandings. And so I think it is appropriate as an opportunity to, you know, to hear them out and then, you know, take the arguments bit by bit because, you know, what they're saying, even though it may be wrong and we understand it to be um, less than, you know, well reasoned out, I think we have the opportunity to reason that thing in a different way and meet people where they are and then just, you know, get them to see it in a different way or at least make the case. They may never see it the, the same way, but we get the opportunity to make the case. Yeah, I met him where he was. All right. But we, <laughs> we go break. Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, Brent? Hi, Savvy. How are you? Good, good. So, um, I was on Bree's show and, um, the top we discussed the topic of the um, the thirteen year old child being shot by the um, some stranger, and it was apparently it was found out that the guy didn't own the car. So yeah, I heard um, about that. Yeah, and um, I think we discussed before uh, you had to go that um, you don't feel it's justified to kill people if they commit a property crime like stealing a car. But, um, and I, to be clear, I don't feel it's ever justified to kill someone over any, over someone stealing a car or any other property crime. But just to be clear, but I hear, like, I read the comments and I hear the arguments that Robbie made. Like, if someone steals a car and someone depends on that car, on that car to go work and they can't make money that puts them in a financial hardship and their, their life will, could potentially be ruined. Also, so that means you get to go kill someone? Absolutely not. But that, these are, the, I'm just telling you the arguments that, that people are making. And I also hear arguments like the kid was escalate by someone, by committing the crime of stealing, you are escalating the situation. You're asking to be put in a situation where you, you where you could be shot, I hear the quote a lot: "Play stupid games, win stupid prizes," and that argument is also being used to put the fault on the kid. How do you respond to these people who also say, like, "Oh, um, people like Bree, they don't understand. They if they live, they don't understand what it's like to be poor." And I bet if they live, if they had to live in their car for a year, they couldn't do it. So they should keep their mouth shut. So how do you respond to these these people? Many of them, which are working class people, how do you respond to that? I respond by saying, listen, the law has already been established for what the penalty is for theft, even grand theft auto. I know your life may be inconvenienced if your car is stolen, but let's remember that first of all, this is a minor 
which means they have not reached the age of being able to reason things out and make decisions. But I would also challenge you to see this situation within a context where people who are living in poverty have little. And that doesn't justify a 13-year-old attempting to vandalize or steal from a car, but let's elevate the sanctity of life over a material good. And let's call the police, which is what we're invited to do. And I think we're really on a slippery slope in this gun culture because what it does is desensitize you to human to our humanity. And the more guns we have, the more likely we are to use them. I'm not in any way trying to justify theft of an auto because I certainly have had my windows broken in and this and that. But I never wish death on these people. I wish that the society was different. I wish that the person was caught and punished. But the stakes are not that high for the inconvenience, whatever the inconvenience that I am caused. That is still a human being and a child at that. And I just think we have to, you know, take hold of our humanity in these situations and realize that our society is broken in a whole lot of ways. But I don't encourage vigilanteism in any form or fashion. I'm sorry. I have to point out the elephant in the room. I think it needs to be said that there is a certain type of feeling that people have when the perpetrator is black versus when the perpetrator is white. Now, I saw a lot of people making all kinds of excuses for Kyle Rittenhouse, for that that uh, white boy that, that raped the girl, I forget his name, Bryce something, whatever, uh, for Dylan Roof. I saw people make all kinds of excuses when young white boys commit crimes. But when young black boys commit crimes, I don't hear those same people make those excuses because subconsciously they are already taught and told that you are supposed to fear black people. And that's the piece that's not being said. Now, I noticed in the rising episode, Bree was trying to make that example to Robbie. Robbie didn't get it. So if I was Bree, I would have just came out and said it very plainly. There is a subconscious bias when it comes to young black males committing a crime versus young white males committing a crime. Young black males are seen as a man even when they are not a man. They're not seen as someone who was innocent. They're not seen as someone who just maybe hit a rough patch. White boys are, and I've seen it happen multiple times throughout this country. So the fact, what was really interesting to me is that some of the same people who were defending those white boys, they were not willing to defend the black boy who was still in a crime, who by the way, lost his life. Kyle Rittenhouse still has his life. Bryce still has his life. Dylan Roof still has his life. And this is the piece that needs to be pointed out. And I don't think Bree really wanted to, to take it there per se. But had I been in that conversation, I would have pointed that out. That you do have that subconscious bias. You are not going to have most people 
are not going to have that same type of empathy for black boys the way that they will for white boys. And that is a fact and that is a reality in this country. And I think that this idea that you can just walk outside and go shoot someone because you saw them trying to steal someone's car. Well, for all the people who claim to believe in the police and that they uphold the law, why didn't those same people pick up the phone and call the cops? Why did they take it upon themselves to play police officer at that point in time? You know why? Because it was a black kid. If it was a white kid, that shit would not have happened. And I have been in both situations. So I know what it's like to be middle class and I know what it's like to be poor. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the way that people behave towards especially poor black kids, towards black kids, especially poor black kids, and the way that they behave towards the poor white kids is very different. And that may not be something that Robbie is willing to admit. Robbie may not even realize that he may have that subconscious bias, but this is not the first time that I've seen him have this type of nonchalant attitude towards black men dying. I've seen him do the same type of sentiment when Olamia Lorne was on Rising and he did the same thing that he did not care. Huh. That's a problem. And if I was Rising and I'm not on that show, I've been on there a couple times, but if I was Rising... I would have had Robbie issue an apology to the audience and I would delete that episode. I can't even watch it, Sabi, because I heard uh, Bree talk about it in her calling and I said, he did what? And she said she, she almost flipped out herself and she's like, I am not going to be defending black lives on, on this show. Like she was, I, I, I don't have the emotional uh, patience, but what I wanted to chime in was, they came up with a whole new word. Mom, the judge came up with a whole new word, affluenza, when that white boy, rich white boy, crashed into those uh, mm -hmm. kids. Oh, yes, the I remember of the road. that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head, Sabrina, with all the different examples. Tamir Rice wasn't even committing a crime. He was just playing by the side of the road, I think, with a toy gun or whatever. But he was just playing. Two and he got shot within three, four seconds of the police coming on the scene. So I just wanted to make those. It's just something I've noticed on that show. Like I said, Olami had this, this argument with him before, too, about a different situation where he had the same type of mindset. He didn't care that this black kid was like shot to death and he was shot to death by the police. Robbie did not care. And, and unfortunately, you know, I don't know if this is what you would call a wake-up call per se. I mean, I don't know Bree personally, but it seems like to me that maybe Bree is starting to see how, and this is not to call out all white people because all white people don't feel this way. I want to make that point very clear before I say the statement, but it seems like to me that maybe Bree is starting to see how white people see black people in this country. And see, this is the thing. And, 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 and I say this as someone, again, having the experience. When you, how do I say this in a nice way without pissing y'all off? Okay. When you, when you are in predominantly white spaces, and that, that's me, okay? Sometimes you may not realize 
how they feel about black people until something like this happens. This incident with the 13 year old boy, the George Floyd protest, Ahmaud Arbery. By the way, this isn't that much different from what happened with the Maude Arbery. I, I just want to make that very clear. So it, for the people who were saying, oh my God, what happened to Ahmaud Arbery was awful. But if you cheering on what happened to this 13 year old boy, you're a fucking hypocrite. Because it was a similar situation to where people said they were going to take the law into their own hands. And Ahmaud Arbery was killed and the 13 year old boy was killed. So I'd like to see the difference on with those two situations. If if you were against what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, but you are you you speaking in defense of the shooter for what happened to this 13 year old boy, there's something not right there. there. There's something a little bit off with that situation. But I will say this is that when you are in predominantly white spaces, sometimes you don't realize how they really see you until a racial issue comes up. And then for a lot of people that and they may be your friend, they may be your buddies and your bros. And then that's when a lot of people start to see, wait a minute, this is how they really see me. And they may even say things like this to you. Oh, we don't mean you. You're different. You're one of the good ones. You're 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 not like that. Yeah, exactly. Roger, you're not like that. You're you're good. You're a little bit different. You're not. We're not talking about you. We're just talking about black people. Well, no, you are talking about me. And I say this, like, again, I think Bree and I have some similarities in the sense that both of us went to school overseas. And like a lot of times we've been in predominantly white spaces. And everybody, I think, at some point gets their wake up call. I got my wake up call years ago. And, and this is the thing. It's not all white people that will do this. But I think, and I, I saw the interaction between her and Robbie. I talked about it on RBN and I saw her talking about it on Twitter. And it was very apparent to me. It seemed like she just couldn't believe that some people were okay with this. And that says something to me that made me realize that like, maybe this is like the first time for her experiencing this though. Because I, I've experienced it before. I've, I've been, like I said, I've experienced to where during the George Floyd, after George Floyd, I got to see how some people really were. Um, so, I mean, and, and that was one of those cases that was really not arguable. But I got to see how some people really were, how they cared more about the property being vandalized than they cared about the fact that this man was fucking murdered uh, by the police. So this is what I'm saying. It's like, again, sometimes when you you in predominantly white spaces, you don't realize those things until something racial happens. And then it's like a light bulb like goes goes off and you can do what I used to do, which was. OK, well, let me try to understand and let me try to dissect this and figure out why they feel the way that they do or you can see it for what it really is and understand that this has to deal with colonization in this country. And this is why a lot of people, and it's not just white people, but this is why a lot of people in this country do not value black life. They don't see black people as really being on the same level with them, no matter how smart you are. Like I didn't go to law school, but I have a master's degree. Okay. Even white people that I've met, who have less education than I do, 
they still will never put their put me on the same level with them because they realize they still got that privilege. Mm-hmm. And you and people have to understand that it doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter if you went to Harvard Law School. If you are black, what white people will see is that you are black first. And that is what they they stick with. And that doesn't mean they don't think you're smart. But it does mean that you still they still do not see you on the same level as them. For most of them, not all white people, but for most of them, they will never see you as on their level. That's why you always have to work twice as hard to get the same amount of as respect as they do. You have to work 10 times as hard to be better than them. And even then, people will still try to tell you that you only got there because of your skin color, that you really didn't earn it. And I think that maybe this moment right here, that situation that happened with the 13-year-old boy, maybe that is an eye-opening uh, moment for Brie. But the thing is, is like I've learned with those types of situations, there's a couple of like white people that get it, that you can talk to about it with. But for the most part, sometimes you need to have those conversations with other black people. That's that's just what I've learned from that experience. Go ahead, uh, Roger or Noel. I, I wonder if uh, moving, Democrats moving to, to the left or staying left would include uh, chasing down a black man with a shotgun and holding it to his chest thinking that he robbed someone and then later on decide he want to run for senator of Pennsylvania. That's, that sounds pretty left to me. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting right in the Senate and he got a fucking pass and all the white progressives who tried to argue me down and say, well, it's really not that bad. No, fuck that. <laughs> this man put a, a shotgun to a black man's chest and you want the black progressives to just swallow that and be okay with him anyway. See, this this is why I, I told you guys before, and it took me a while to realize this, but this is why I told you guys before. This movement was never really for black people. It was economic issues that was supposed to help everybody, but would never really put black people on the same level as white people economically. That was never going to happen, even with the universal programs that Bernie Sanders wanted. And people have to understand that we're already behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and and say that thing with, with respect oh, to um Bree on rising with that exchange with Robbie, I think in all of those forums there is that point counterpoint thing and we have to acknowledge that a part of it is performative because you're not just talking to the person sitting on the other side of the table or the desk, but you're playing to a broader audience. And I think it is, you know, instructive that we use those opportunities to engage the discourse, because just like with Pierre a few minutes ago, you have people speaking in a public forum saying things that a lot of other people who are listening may think the same way and may agree. And I think we do have to seize those opportunities in the public discourse to engage. Um, For me, I do feel like, you know, 
This whole thing is a cycle. And I've said before, I think this nation is cycling back to its earliest roots and instincts and inclinations. And as the economy gets tighter on the bottom, it's going to ferret out a whole lot of ugliness that's been laying in the thicket for years. But I think if we have any chance of surviving this, we really have to um, engage the discourse and try and reach beyond these breaks, significant though they be. Um, because I do think there's the opportunity that something we say may fall on people and they will begin to see it in a different way for the first time. You're not going to win everybody, but I think laying, making the right argument is the best approach we have to reaching the ones who can be reached. Um, because truly, the most transformative changes that happens in people's lives comes by way of people who share similar mindsets and beliefs and this and that because they can have that basis of understanding and reach each other. Um, and there are just some places that, you know, I know as a woman of trans experience, there are certain people of a cis orientation that I would just never be able to reach because they see me as so othered and so different. But I always seize the opportunity to try and build the bridges because I know there are people who may be in your audience now who are, who are thinking, ooh, trans people are A, B, and C. Oh, that's, you know, they're confused. There's an aberration, this and that. But I'm always cognizant of the fact that although I don't represent the entirety of black people, the entirety of black women, or the entirety of the intersection of black people of trans experience, but to the degree that I can, I try and represent in the best space so that some people who will be changed can be reached. And I think that's the way we have to approach it from all of these intersections that we can try and reach some. And I know it gets frustrating and we get furious. Um, but as an older person, I understand that this is perhaps our last best chance of trying to salvage this thing. Yeah. And, I, and I'll be the first to say, and those of you who've been following me for a while, you already know this, but I'll be the first to say uh, for those of you who are new my husband is white and my husband was very appalled by what Robbie said. Very appalled. And he was just like, I can't believe they let him say that. And I was like, well, I mean, they don't really know what you're going to say until you say it. And he was just like, yeah, but he said they should have cut, like cut to commercial or some shit. Like it was just like, he was turned off. And I think, I mean, you know, you know, that may have something to do with him, like being with me, but I'm just saying like, Nah, that shit, that shit was not cool. And to me, the whole thing that I could not wrap my head around was the fact that this mofo really felt like property was more important than someone's life. And you know what? That's how some people think. And you know who else thinks that? The police. The police protect property. They protect wealth. And it, it just, it, let me let me bring Lucy in. Lucy, um, you just have to unmute. I want to get your opinion about this too. But it's it's true. Like people care more about wealth 
and and property than they do about black people like we are at literally at the bottom and i want people to understand that go ahead lucy i can hear you yes you can hear me sorry i'm <laughs> having some technical difficulties okay so um i actually didn't i didn't listen to that brie episode so i apologize <laughs> um uh I, uh, I don't know, so I don't know what he said, um, but um, th this is, might sound <laughs> a little crazy to you guys, but I actually stopped watching Brie for a while because she's a little bit too progressive <laughs> for, for me, and I, there was a point where I got turned off, um, not to say that she doesn't raise a lot of valid points, um, but I always kind of saw her, even though she did vote third party and all of that, I, all, I always kind of saw her as someone that was more of an electoral figure, I guess. And, you know, she was the press secretary for Bernie Sanders. So I always kind of, you know, like, uh, it's interesting because um, when you have people that are white progressives, right? that are, are kind of in this independent media space, um, you know, people will say things like, you know, these people are only more, more interested in electoral politics, but that, you know, they function as sheep herders, etc. But I saw Brie the same, in a very similar way, actually. Um, but a lot of people, for some reason, think that because she's black, she is kind of able to translate she kind of functions as a translator of some of these black issues to these white progressives and therefore she kind of that holds a necessary role in this kind of like independent media space i don't know if that makes sense <laughs> what i'm saying um what what black issues which well, you know, stuff like this, like the police brutality issues, etc. Um, um, I think those issues come better from someone like Nick. Like, I think so. We were just we were just talking about this. Like, everybody has like their strengths and like their weaknesses. And I think that when it comes to police brutality, I really wish uh, Nick would have been on for that episode about the 13 year old boy who was killed by the homeowner. Because Nick, he co-founded 10 Demands. He talks about police brutality uh, often. That's kind of like his thing. I really wish he would have been on <laughs> that segment because he could have offered, uh, you know, a different opinion. But I would I would think that, uh, you know, people, you should have people on that are affected by it. And the reason why I think I got so frustrated also with Robbie is not just because of what he said, which by the way, Lucy, he basically said that like, she asked that like if property was more important than a 13 year old boy's life and Robbie's response was people have a right to defend their property but then Bree went back and said well we don't even know if it was that homeowner's car which later was confirmed it was not his car so a 13 year old boy was trying to hijack a car and um a homeowner saw it and came outside and shot the kid and killed him it was not the homeowner's car 
And I think where Bree was taken aback was the fact that the rising audience, which is more conservative, by the way, that audience was in support of what Robbie said. And I think it kind of rubbed Bree the wrong way in the sense that she was just like, how can you just say that the life of a 13 year old boy is, is not as important as the property? And what I was saying is that I think maybe this might have been a wake up call for Bree in the sense that when you when it all boils down to it, even the police see property as more valuable than they do black people. You know, it was a black 13 year old boy, like subconsciously people in this country are not taught to see black people that way. And so that's what I would have said, like if, if I was on that segment, because that's not the first time Robbie has done this. He's done this before where he had no sympathy or empathy in reference to, um, it was a police officer last time he shot uh, a black man and Robbie had no sympathy at all. And it was him and Olani Aloran that had that discussion and Olani went off on him, which I don't, I don't blame her. But the thing is, is this, is that, you know, when it comes to issues like police brutality, homelessness, things like that, this is why I used to get so angry with mainstream media. They do not invite those people who are affected on to have those conversations. They bring on someone who's like an expert, who's a professor, who studied it, but didn't experience it. Well, yeah, I think, well, um, well, I think, well, Okay, I'm trying to also kind of figure out how to say this <laughs> um, without. I'm trying. I'll also trying to say this without getting in trouble. <laughs> um, basically, I think I think Bree is kind of more of an electoral, like kind of focused person in independent media um, that caters to a certain crowd. Um, and I, I mean, this is maybe just like based on my own experience. Um, I, I, I grew up in, in, um, in New York City and um, I, uh, I, I've been poor and middle class, um, but uh, I went to a, a private high school in New York City. Um, but I, I came from like, you know, just one of the regular public schools in the boroughs. Um, and in my daily life, you know, like, you know, when I was a kid, I, it, it, I grew up in a very, very, very mixed neighborhood. And then when I went to, um, when I went to college, um, when I went to college for, uh, for the first time, I started to encounter, and this was actually ignorance and racism on my part, but I started to encounter people that I guess would be part of the black upper middle class for the first time. Um, and they were better off than me. Um, and I mistook them because in my regular daily life, you know, in, in New York City, I mistook them for people that were in the same economic bracket as me, if that makes sense. Um, and um, over time, I realized that 
you know, just in the same way that um, not white people are not always allies of black people with re in regard to stuff like this, um, you know, cases of extreme violence, you know, where it's accepted societally for there to be, you know, this anti-black violence. In the same way, people like Brie are not really always class allies, even of white people, if that makes sense. Um, so um, I kind of see Brie as, you know, I think she's interesting. I think she puts on a lot of interesting material. But ultimately, I don't see her as much as a social leader, if that makes sense, as a channel like RBN. Um, I, I I hope that was. <laughs> yeah, know? I never I never mistook. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I never mistook Bree as like an activist. I I always saw her as someone who observes what's going on and provides commentary on it. You know what I mean? Like I was never I never expected or ever expected her in any way to be to be an activist. You know, so that that's that's how I always, you know, like saw it or whatever the case is, or be like on the ground. And yeah, you know, like part of the campaign, you know, she was always green. Uh, green party, whatever the case is, right? Um, right. But, yeah. So so, like, like, exactly, I agree, I agree, for the same reason, like, I'm not surprised she catches on to certain things, or seems to, a little bit, you know, I mean, every, you know, everybody has their own trajectory or whatever, but I, I'm, I'm not really surprised that she catches on to certain things late <laughs> in some situations. If that makes sense, because she's it, just not in that kind of environment. She's never been in that kind of environment, really. It it almost um, sounds like you're trying to say she's the black elite. Well, a little bit, yes. That that that's what I want. That yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna tell Bree. But here's the thing. But here's the thing. But but no, but but you can be black elite and still understand what struggles like. Like you can be black elite and still haven't gone through that. And I, I think remember, like Bree did remember she did talk about the student loan debt. You know, like I think hell, I think all of us that went to college have student loan debt. <laughs> I mean it's Yeah, just, I think it, Yeah, so that that's I something mean, just to keep in mind. But here's the thing. Brie is a type of elite in terms of her education, having gone to Harvard Law School, what have you. And she does speak in a very erudite way. And and it has to be said that some of her positioning, because I have, you know, paid attention to Brie and watch her evolve and her grasp of the um, everyday nuts and bolts issues that affect the working class are that have grown over time but i'm also sensitive that brie is very sensitive to how she plays to the audience she knows that she has to present in a certain way 
And when she gets to certain topics, she knows she has to frame them in a certain way so as not to alienate her base. But even in that, I have seen her grow and become more authentic in her voice than she was at the very beginning. Um, but, you know, and even in terms of her dealing with the issue of the tuition, you know, it was interesting to me because when the issue of the student loan debt surfaced, my conceptualization was, okay, hold on, how does this come before reparations? And it is strictly because student loan debt crosses across a lot of intersections and they put black people out there first. But there are a lot of white people who have a lot of student loan debt from having gone to these very prestigious elite schools. And so my thing is, you know, black people were, you know, below the poverty line and struggling since before student loan debt was even an issue. So I kept questioning, how does this get the attention that it gets when we can't talk about reparations? And to say that, ooh, black people got student loan debt too. Yeah, but you are still talking about people in this society who will already have an advantage based on whatever portion of education that they got, which will, you know, if you eliminate their student loan debt, then not only are they debt free, but they have education and they're ready to fly. And you still got us tied to the floor with or without loan debt. And nobody's concerned because with the student loan debt, people are saying, well, people are strapped with so much debt. They can't buy your house. They can't move away from their parents and this and that. And I'm like, uh-huh. And black people been dealing with that for years. And even, but it wasn't tied necessarily to student loan debt. But the fact that we couldn't fly per se has always been an issue, but it's never gotten the attention that this student loan debt thing is getting. So I'm like, uh, okay, can we see this from a different perspective? Because when you talk about doing something beneficial for anybody in America, nobody should be coming ahead of the descendants of slaves. Lucy. Yeah. Uh, what's your uh, opinion on this on the subject title? Wait, can I just? I'm sorry. Oh, we, we got Brent hanging in here. Um, but I, I just wanted to add something really quick because I think people have misconceptions about Harvard and having worked at Harvard, Harvard is not what you guys think it is. I, I'm just going to tell you this, like looking at it from the outside, it looks like this great place, this great beacon that everybody wants to get a chance to be at. Right. But black people at Harvard are fucking marginalized. And yes, and that includes the students, that includes the staff, like it's not what you guys think. And I used to think that too. And then when I worked there, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I was like, are they serious? Like there was a whole expose that was done <laughs> and it was done students by black Harvard students. This was a couple years ago. And they talked about their experiences at, at Harvard as a black student. Some of the things that people said to them, do you know how to read? Oh, you probably got in because of affirmative action. This is what people need to understand. And, and most like black people that have gone to Harvard, 
most of them, they're not going to talk about this because it could jeopardize their careers, right? And they want to keep that social circle. Like at Harvard, it's not enough just to get into Harvard. The way that you really move up after you get out of Harvard is that you have to be a part of these social circles, these social networks. You have to network at Harvard. That's how you get some of these positions that people like Barack Obama got. Like you have to network. You can't just be like, I went to Harvard. That's not enough on its own. And I know that having had friends go to Harvard, you have to network and network. And guess what? That costs money. It costs money to go to those trips to Europe. It costs money to like go to all those social events and things like that. So if you are coming from a working class family and you got a scholarship at Harvard, it's going to be really tough for you to get that piece of the education. But what people need to understand is that black people at Harvard are still marginalized. No one looks at you when it's like this person is so intelligent because they went to Harvard. A lot of people, and this came from the students, the article that was done by the students, a lot of people look at those black students, they think they only got in because of affirmative action. That's sad. It's really sad. Harvard, which I told you after I didn't start working there, that was when I found out more about Harvard. But Harvard University, they participated in eugenics. And I didn't know that until I started working there. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Most people don't know about that. So when I tell people, especially black people who are like, I want to go to these Ivy League schools. I want to go to Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale. These schools are really not for black people. I want to be very clear. And you can throw in Boston University in the mix with that as well. It's not an Ivy, but a similar situation. These schools like Boston University, like Stanford, like Harvard, Boston College, these schools are not for black students. They're really not. And I say this having worked at these schools as an academic advisor and advising the students and the black students, it didn't matter which school I worked at, would always come to me because I was usually the only academic, black academic advisor in the department would always come to me with these same woes about what it was like being a student there and how they were being treated. And I'm just here to tell you, if you're African-American, it actually is better for you not to attend those schools. Because what you have to do, you have to prove that you deserve to be there, number one, and that you didn't get there because of affirmative action. Then you have to prove that you are on, on par with your peers or you're better than your peers. And you have to prove that to your peers and you have to prove that to the faculty. And some of the faculty members are racist as hell too. Some of the faculty members have you let you have to take time off because a family member passed away and see how they treat you as a black student versus how they treat the white student who just didn't show up to class for whatever reason and i've seen it multiple times from multiple students and i'm here to tell you those institutions are not designed to benefit black students or black staff or black faculty just look at the way harvard university treated cornell west uh, one of the black uh, faculty members at Harvard Business School, he had to leave the business school because they refused to hire more black people. He was the only one. There was a whole article about it. These are the things people don't tell you. But having worked at those institutions, I can tell you firsthand, black people are not welcome at those institutions. You are there 
not because you didn't deserve to get there. You're there because you deserve to get there, but you're also there so they can say they have diversity. But once you get there, you're on your own. And that's what people have to understand. Go ahead, uh, Case. Now, I, I was curious as someone uh, savvy that has a connection to that school have you heard anything about the secret societies that are there like skull and bones did you as a um you know as as your position that you were in did you hear any word about that i was just curious how prevalent they are on the campus because you know cia uh recruits from skull and bros to put them at the highest levels of the cia so i was just curious i heard a little bit about that i mean they recruit people. It's not just a CIA, like the FBI, like the intelligence community, like they all like recruit at schools like Harvard. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard, uh, you know, and, and the student population is diverse in the sense of when you talk about political ideology, there were people there that loved Bernie. There were people that loved Warren. There were people that loved like, you know, Hillary Clinton, like that kind of thing. But these colleges are a business and they too operate similar to the United States government in the sense that they, you know, they, 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 they follow the backing of their donors. So you have to know who the donors are. I can tell you for Harvard university, Michael Bloomberg is a donor. He has an academic program named after him in the Kennedy school. Uh, Robert Kraft was a donor, like rich people, like a lot of CEOs came from Harvard University. And so when you see who the donors are, you understand why they would not give Cornell West tenure. They're not going to give someone tenure who supports Palestine. They're not going to try to give someone tenure who's anti-war. Like that's not what the university is about. Again, it's a business. Same thing for Boston University. Same thing for Northeastern University. Like all these schools, like it's just a business. That's all it is. But go ahead, Brent. Sorry. Um, we went kind of off topic, so I don't. I really don't have anything to comment other than that. Other than that, um, I don't know why people are so hung up on the front. Like, why do people care that someone got in because of affirmative action? I mean, they need to mind their own business. Like, people are people. Like, why? Why are they so concerned about that? Like. It's just the world we live in. It's just are not, so... These schools are not designed. They're not for black people. And I'm, I'm saying that I'm not trying to be mean, but if you saw who went to these schools, most of the students, like they're coming from like wealthy families or their legacy kids or their international students whose parents can pay for four years and prove that. Cause you have to prove it. If a lot of the students that are coming from, they have to prove that they can pay for four years of tuition because they don't get financial aid, right? You can't get it if you're an international student. So same thing at Boston University, a lot of those kids, those kids come from wealthy families. And so what would happen is like the black kids that they were recruit from like the math and science school at the Bronx and places like that, like those kids, they feel left out because there's just no, like I said, like it's not designed for them. Yes, there are these organizations on campus that are for like, you know, black students or minority students. They have those organizations, but you're not at those organizations 24-7. And when you go in the classroom, most of the time you're the only black face. 
and the professors either won't call on you or sometimes they will call on you to make an example out of you. Like it's, it's, it's a whole level to this. And people have to understand if you're going to these schools that refuse to hire black faculty because they already have a black face in the department, that right there lets you know exactly what these institutions are really about. They don't want too many of us. One also, or two is okay for them. Also, what you were saying before about um, you got to prove yourself, prove yourself, keep proving yourself, prove, 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 prove yourself. By the time you done finish proving to them, you have left who you were and who you are behind. You've gotten so far into that, into that uh, 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 type of, of, of mind thinking, uh, whatever the case is, they they turned you in. They turned you away from who you originally were, and then you come back home, and then you know, like uh. And I keep I keep thinking of the uh, of the I'm I'm bad video, <laughs> the the long the long version when Michael Jackson came back home, and then they Wesley Snipes is like, who are you? You know what I mean? And you know, not saying that anyone's gonna like jump into it, start doing a dance video or anything like that, but that's pretty much what I'm saying. But I think the thing that we have to remember is that, of course, Harvard University. It's not Howard. We know that it was not designed for the descendants of slaves per se, but the the value of those Ivy League schools and institutions is they are attracting, in a lot of occasions, the best and the brightest minds, including the blacks and the Asians and everybody else. The just, you know, the slowest of the slow are not getting to these Ivy League institutions. And that's, that can be problematic too. But the beauty of it is you get the opportunity to matriculate with the other sharpest minds. And so it may not be the same experience for the black students as it is for the elite, rich, white students. But that's the same as any college you go to. You know, they're going to be wealthier white students at any place and they're going to be blacks who are, you know, less represented in A, B and C. So that dynamic within the institution is the same. And Harvard represents the extreme because they have the biggest endowment and they have the most money, what have you. But those other lesser institutions are, you know, party to the, you know, privy to the same type of things. They have donors too, maybe not the ones who can contribute as much as the ones at Harvard or are as influential as the ones who have come from Harvard, but it's the same game. You're just playing it at a higher level. But I think it is instructive that the, the blacks who do get to go get to meet each other. And, you know, it's not fair, but MIT, Boston College, Harvard, Stanford, those names open doors on your resume. That's and true. when you come back to regular everyday living in Cleveland, Ohio, or where have you, those titles on your resume open the door, especially if you're black, because people are curious because there's so few who get to do it. So if you apply yeah. for a job in Cleveland, 
and your resume says Harvard and everybody else says Ohio State, Cleveland State, you know, Case Western Reserve, just because you have Harvard, you're going to get in that interview because you become something for the organization that hires you. Oh, we have a Harvard grad who's our director of so-and-so, so-and-so. So it has a market value to it. And I know it's not a perfect set of circumstances, but there is still a benefit for the kids who can get there to get there. Hmm. Lucy, I, I want to ask Lucy. I will, I will say this, though. I went to public school for undergrad. I went to University of South Carolina for undergrad. And then I went to uh, Northeastern University for grad school. And Northeastern is private in Boston. And it's very competitive. Like people who got in like 10 years ago told me they could never get in today. That's how competitive Northeastern is now. But there was a big difference. Uh, I definitely felt more comfortable at the public university because it was more diverse. It just really was like, it's it's a huge fucking school and it's a sports school. So you, you get everybody there, some of everybody at University of South Carolina. But then going from that to Northeastern University for grad school, I was just surrounded by rich kids. It was just, it was the weirdest thing to me. Not that there weren't rich kids that went to uh, South Carolina. There were, but they weren't the majority. They were like the minority. But going from that to Northeastern University, where most of these kids were rich, like they were coming from wealthy families. It was very different, very different. So it's just socially, it was very hard. Like in in the public schools, it was just, it was easier socially because most of us were kind of on the same wavelength in the sense that we were either like coming from middle-class families. Like I said, there were a couple of rich kids that went there, but most of us were coming from like middle-class families, that kind of thing. But then going from that to Northeastern where most of the kids were coming from wealthy families, there was definitely a big difference. And socially it was hard because they would want to do things that I could not afford to do. Like, oh yeah, let's just go up to, let's just go to Cancun for the weekend. Like for the weekend? What? Isn't that something you do for spring break? Let's just go for the weekend and then just come back and da da da. Like these kids were driving like Mercedes, like BMWs, like I didn't really see that at the public universities. Like, like I said, there were a couple kids that came from wealthy families and they may have had like those vehicles or whatever, but it's very different when you come up here and then you go to like a Northeastern or a Boston university and these kids got Mercedes, BMWs and shit like that. Like it's, it's a very different culture, very different. And there's also a difference in reference to domestic and international students. Uh, A lot of these, these private schools especially up north, there's more international students. Like Boston University has a large international population. So does MIT. So does Northeastern. Now, um, Noel mentioned MIT. I will say this, having worked there as well. One thing I will say, when you compare MIT to the other schools here, MIT is the most diverse school when you look at the students and the staff. There are more African-American students at MIT than there are at Harvard, Boston College, Boston University, all of them, all of them. It's crazy, but because MIT is specialty focused, they're focusing on math and science. 
you know, so it's a little bit different. So they're going after those kids that have those math and and science skills. So that is something that is hard when you compare MIT to the other schools. Um, but Brent, I'm sorry, were you finished? Because I want to move on to Lance. Oh, uh, well. yes, I'm so, finished. Thank you. Okay. Let me bring in Lance. And go ahead, Roger. You're going to ask Lucy a question. No, no, I was going to ask you, what What do you think of the title, the the, the LaSalle thing? Oh, um, well, the, the LaSalle thing, the LaSalle thing, that, that video was just so embarrassing. It was, and you know, I think, um, uh, you're talking about the Catherine Hochul, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, talk about a PR fail. Like, I, I, I mean, I think, I don't think I, I, I can say anything that anybody else hasn't already said, but talk about a PR fail to bring in this Hispanic guy on MLK Day and act like those two things are related. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't. <laughs> like you know one has nothing to do with the other thing you know it, it's great to hire more latinos whatever but obviously first of all he has a terrible record um he's terrible on labor issues um and uh you know but the you know that's what the democrats do this kind of you know representative you know, they, they pretend that if you have one Latino, one black person, one Asian, et cetera, that they've accomplished their job, whereas, the, like, the people that they nominate, they don't actually do anything for us. But it, it, it comes with an extra layer of insult. The fact, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the word person of color because... Um, oh, believe me, black people are definitely not a fan of that. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm Latino and, like, you can see my face, so... Uh, it it's very controversial, <laughs> you know. I mean, we've always known that, like, um, uh, and I, it, we we get it from both. You know, I get it from both sides because people will be like, you know, if, how can you say you, you're Hispanic? I'm a white woman. You're a white woman. But you know, 20 years ago, when the census came out, if you put you weren't allowed to 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 put that you were a white person. So, um, and you know not everybody knows how white that, you know, depending on the percentage of mixture, uh, you know, there's different parts of Latin America. Some people really are half this or half that, you know, it doesn't really work as well as in the United States because we didn't have the same categorization system um, for races. So, you know, there are Puerto Ricans that are black or, you know, Latinos that are, but even then Martin Luther King even though he was an example to all people, he's not really like our, you know, like our icon, right? So it just doesn't make any sense to nominate a Hispanic person on Martin Luther King Day and pretend that those are related. It's very offensive with the additional thing that, you know, it, it kind of creates tension with between the two communities because, you know, then, you know, people will be getting mad uh at at latinos that you know as if we approve of this we, when we really don't you know not all of us so <laughs> it kind of reminds you, yeah. oh, sorry no, it kind of reminds you of when uh kamala harris announced her uh run for the presidency on martin luther king day 
Yeah, well, I remember when Kamala Harris, um, when she was running for the Senate, she was like, they were like, how does it feel as an African-American to be da-da-da? She was like, well, I don't want to get into racial, like something along those lines. She didn't want to get into that. But as soon as she was running for president, I'm running and I could be the first African-American woman as president. I was like, wait a minute, what happened to you? You didn't really care about, you didn't want to bring race into it. All of a sudden that was added into it. Uh, what's up, Lance? You have to unmute. So, You know, what was just a million things because you were making up, talking about a lot of things, but um, one thing is, you know, so you did that thing with and the Pangborn, you know, and those guys, they say some very, very far right things about harsh policing and all that. Very civil. They are. They're they're just decent people in that way, regardless of how extreme some of the folks' politics are, tend to be conservative. Making this point. Now, guys, correct me if I'm wrong. And this isn't about Pangborn at all. It's kind of my point. Am I wrong, but that member of the 86 Skokie Nazis in uniform marching down the Holocaust survivor-laden community on purpose, uh, and ACLU smartly? Uh, 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 defended it. The sunlight made it such a bad scene for those people. Became a parody. Became a, a whole joke scene in uh, Blues Brothers. And that's when David Duke and those guys said, "Oh, folks, put away your uniform. Put away your swastikas. Put away your Nazi uniforms and all that. Put on suits and ties. Infiltrate businesses. Infiltrate local government, state government, and talk about great replacement. Talk about immigrants. Am I wrong about that? Right. That was the tactic. Clean it up. Oh yeah, yeah. That was. Yeah, you, you just brought back memories with Blues Brothers. Okay, but now tell me yeah. if I'm wrong about this. The other thing was don't deny the Holocaust anymore. Just pretend it was like under a million people and, and, and just downplay it way to the max. Am I wrong about that? Nope. There's someone on the left part of Cauley, because as you know, Sabby, probably, guys, there's like 12 or 13 people in a room. There's a lot of people, a lot of regulars on Cauley. There's somebody who is saying that stuff. It's just a, narr a narrative from the Bible. You know that story too, right? It's trying to fulfill a pro the, the, the Holocaust numbers being so well inflated is because it's a narrative from the Bible to try to fulfill a prophecy, and they wanted the numbers to be big. Do you know about that too? I, I think I do. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a woman on here. I won't even say her name. I don't know. It is important in these small rooms, right? And I'm telling all these people, some of them are on your show, Savvy, and on these big platform, boy, they put on their nice, like, Sunday clothes because they're going to go meet Grandma. Well, I'm going to tell you something. This ain't Pangborn. This is the left call-in. Nobody will call her out. I'm the only one that will. She's spouting a literal tactic, literal rhetoric from David Duke. And I point this out, and they're like, man, you know, she's a good egg, and this and that and this. This is the left. And that's why people like, you know, sorry, Pierre, but you got to be schooled. But, you know, Pierre's going off into some anonymous, some anonymous corner. This woman started a room called, themed, Lance is a sexual harasser who has been harassing me for days. Yes, this woman did that. Is this this? Okay, okay now what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, right, and this is the point that I want to make, not about poor little old Lance. I'm a big boy. Okay, I've been wearing big boy pants since I was 14, and I'm 65, so do the math, okay? But I think I might have said it. I said Hitler's going to hit, Mussolini's going to muss, and Heidi's going to hide. It's the people that don't call it out. And you know what I said to them? Be her best friend. Go have lunch, have kids, be, whatever you need to do, go. I'm not doing guilt by association. 
But even if she's your bestie, you got to call this shit out. And they won't. Nobody. Not one person. People. This is on the left. And even on Pangborn, somebody would have chimed in and said, gee, I don't know. That sounds a little weird. I don't know, Lance. I'm driving. I can't look at the chat. You know what I mean, though? <laughs> is that a little crazy or what? <laughs> but that's what I'm dealing with right now. And, I, you know, you have to take my word for it, I guess. But, and all this stuff about the sexual harassment stuff, a whole show about it. I said, she's got the whole chat. Now, think about it, folks. I don't have her phone number. Right? Either I said it verbally in a chat, and it wasn't just the two of us. I guess it could be. It's the only possibility. But someone would have had to hear it if it was a verbal chat call-in room. Or it would have to be in the text of our chat. It ain't in either place. You see what I mean? So she don't have any proof, and everybody say, well, prove it, like, prove it. Oh, she's saying it, prove it. I don't got to prove it. This is America. She's got to prove the fucking charges and give you the evidence. It's about poor Lance and this personal bullshit on Colin, but this is the pebbles in the water, guys, right? This is what you were saying about Pierre. If you don't call this shit out, that's all these pebbles in the water, and that's why you get this anti-Semitism and the defamation. That's why you get these hate killings, and that's where you get Nazis taking over shit, is because of people like this worm and Heidi. I'm sorry. And it's again, it's the people that let it happen, and that's why I'm calling it out. Not to make it a personal thing, or I was hurt or harmed. You know what I mean, guys? Or am I... You, are you talking about a Dixie chick woman? Here, I would I would say this, man. I wouldn't even worry about it. You know, to be honest. Well, what it, boils, what it boils down to is if all these people are not going to chime in, then I'm on the wrong part of the app. So I'm just going to go hang out at Pangborn and have nice, friendly, civil arguments with conservatives. Because if these liberals are going to allow neo-fascist rhetoric to not be called out, then they're obviously not the crowd I need to hang with. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Lance, I don't think people know what you're talking about. Um, Bryce, go ahead. I, I know you wanted to chime in. Oh, I just have to unmute. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to, like, talk about, like, uh, the Martin Luther King statue and shit like that. Um, as far as, like, uh, how the process goes, I know a friend of mine, uh, 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 like, uh, did one here in Las Vegas uh, for um, the Arts Factory um, here. Uh, it's close to downtown Las Vegas uh, near, it's, 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 uh, it's near the, the um, uh, Fremont Experience, uh, where, like, the government buildings are or at and shit like that. Um, but um, he uh, he got that and he got declined, of course. But um, like uh, for for that project to happen in Boston, that has to go through through a process. And I'm just echoing like what Eric is talking about as far as like because uh, he he mentioned it earlier and he's correct mm -hmm. about that. I remember like saying in 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 your in, in the, the chat when I was watching your show, Savvy that you know that's that's the process uh someone allowed that to happen uh that's those right. concepts yeah they they have to like uh draw it up and paint it up so uh for them to like approve it and that's all i yeah. really wanted to talk about today i agree okay lance thank you so much uh for calling what's in we're gonna go that, ahead and bring in anthony what's going on anthony i think thank i cut, so lance, cut lance. lance i'll just make you a speaker Okay, go ahead, Anthony. Oh, thank you so much, Sabby. Um, just back to the uh, judge in New York, and um, I think the yeah, obviously it's terrible and it's not surprising, but 
they uh you know the criticism of this it should embarrass the democrats but it doesn't really phase them at all because they have an excuse which is i mean i'm not really sure of the abortion laws in new york but i'm guessing that it's not really in jeopardy and it's the same thing with uh, henry cuellar they said they didn't need his vote in the house to pass that so yeah you know they always have a little excuse like procedurally that's all i was thinking i agree I agree. Well said. Like, it's, it's really just ridiculous. Go ahead, Ashura. Oh, um, I was just going to comment on the thing you just said about Kamala Harris. I've seen two videos of uh, Kamala Harris basically play on her Indian heritage and on her outer blackness. Uh, one time she was at an event, I think it was an Indian event, and they asked her what it was like to be a first black a black woman with Indian heritage, and he she snapped at the reporter saying, "I'm an Indian. I, I, I'm an Indian. I'm an Indian. I, I, don't don't patronize me. I'm not a black woman. I'm an Indian." Yep. Then she's yep. at, at an event talking about black people, and they flipped that question. They flipped it from, "How does it like to be a an Indian woman with you know black heritage?" She's like, "No, no, no, no. I'm not Indian. I am black." <laughs> oh, I <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this woman's a chameleon. She decides when to open the door for whatever identity politics she wants to go into. Club <laughs> talking about how she smoked weed and all the stuff is hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah, she listened to Tupac. Like, they, they, they call yeah. her. They call yeah. her. It, like, Tupac didn't even start yet. And then her own father disowned her for for calling her, her uh, out for saying that she smoked weed. She said he said that her her grandparents are rolling in the grave. He like wrote an article against that. It was crazy. Yeah, he's a uh, Marxist too. Marxist Listen, socialist guy. Wait a second. How come? Like, what is the deal with the dad? Um, how come we don't see the dad? Where was dad when Kamala was sworn in? What's happening? They're yeah, strange. They yeah, they're strange. Yeah. He, Are he's, you serious? He's a, yeah, he's a um, he's, hello, he's a he's a Marxist also. He's he's a socialist. Yeah, oh, yeah. If anything, like I want to chime in. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's dad was a Marxist too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And he knew Cornell West. He was very close with Cornell West. Apparently, very good friends. Really? That's suck what they did to Cornell. Wait, so wait, so she's estranged from her dad. That's Jeez. Oh, you know, I, you know I, I also uh, find weird. Um, uh, what's his name? The guy. Uh, he's a known actor. He, he's in the MCU. He, he plays Nick Fury. Um, Samuel L. Jackson. Yes. Apparently, he was with the Black Panthers, but they, they, he basically said he was never a Black Panther. But he reneged on that after what happened with him. I'm like, if you were part of the Black Panthers, why not just acknowledge that? How is that a bad thing? When was he a Black Panther, Shira? Yeah, I, I looked at the Wikipedia page. They said he was one. That, that was the rumor, and he denied it. But I'm pretty sure he he might have walked with them. It didn't hurt Angela Davis. Like, She's still uh, teaching. Yeah, I see, haven't heard one Black Panther that's still alive today mention anything about Samuel Jackson. <laughs> I don't think he was a... I don't remember him being a Black Panther, I do remember him um, doing some type of Black liberation thing or something when he was in college, and then uh, the FBI came looking for him or something like that, and there's, I think, something about his, they 
they called up his mom's or something, and his mom told him to get his ass home or whatever the case is, because something's gonna happen in his college that he was at. He was gonna be arrested or something. I, I, I forgot. But the the most black liberation party was not wasn't that the Black Panthers? They were the most prominent. I mean, you could say they were the most. Let's say prominent. let's say, let's say he wasn't ones. a member that he he basically was around around them every now and then. He may have seen himself as a Black Panther without being officially one. Uh huh. I mean, probably. I mean, there was there were other Black Liberation smaller ones. You know what I mean? So it was just one of those things I was watching on on TV. I don't know if it, whether it was biography. I forgot what it was, but I do remember something to that because they were showing him holding a gun, holding a rifle with an afro and whatnot and something about him. Um, uh, you know, if he would have yeah, stayed uh, at that college, he would have the, the FBI would have got, got him or whatever. And they okay. called up his, they called up his moms and said, you better uh, do something about him. Get him home or something, something like that. And she was just like, get your ass home, get, get out of college or something. But yeah, uh, Sabby, uh, I had a question for you, uh, for you and Noel, but they didn't answer the question. It was about the thing that happened in the church. Like, why would Raphael bring the devil, that is Joe, Joe Biden, <laughs> into the church? Of Martin Luther King basically bastardizing the goddamn fucking church. There's a point even uh, Professor Black Truth said like uh, if there's only if there's people that are guilty in here, not just Warnock for bringing the devil inside, but the people who basically are in the church believing that it's okay to bring this guy in there without even talking about reparations. It's Joe Biden basically. He, he put it as Joe Biden doesn't need to talk about. Um, Martin Luther King Day on Monday because he wants to come in on Sunday so he can have his day off on Monday. I don't know, but I would say like I thought it was just theatrics again, like just pandering to the base. Um, but this is what they do. <laughs> like this is exactly what they do: just pander to the base and just keep it. But moving. if you're in a church, how come nobody asks him questions? Like. Uh, is it the church to be the house of God? Nobody fucking calls him out on this bullshit. Like Joe Biden just sits there. Well, if you notice, if you look at the video, it's mainly older people in the church. It's not like younger people that are going to step. I say this because the younger people are more vocal. It's not like the younger people that are going to stand up like Jose and be like, hey, that's not true. He also lied in that church. He said, yeah, I used to go oh, to the black lied. church right after going to mass. I'm like, no, you fucking didn't. <laughs> Ain't nobody till this day come out and say, yeah, I remember Joe Biden used to come to our church. That has never happened. He's lying. I never understood why the old old generations basically don't call him out. Like, uh, they they call him, I think Professor Black True calls him the old niggas. Like, he has, like, thumbnail pages. Go ahead, uh, Noel. It is the epitome of hypocrisy, um, but it is also an indicator of how deep the programming and conventional thinking is. Think about it. Most of the people who still attend Ebenezer Baptist Church have, you know, memories of the civil rights movements or their parents participating in the civil rights movement. And they still see the Democratic Party through that lens of the Democrats having been a participating in championing civil rights. They have not followed through 
and done the rigorous work to understand who these Democrats really are. And for all the lies that Joe Biden has told through the decades, they just, you know, they don't know about it. They don't delve into it. They're so happy to see Warnock as this black senator from Georgia. Oh, the history of it. And then to him to be able to get Biden down here in this church. Oh, what a great. They aren't halfway dialed into what the real politics are and that you're just being hoodwinked and bamboozled. They haven't dialed into that. And that's why we suffer so much in terms of trying to make progress because our politics are as superficial as they appear to be. It is simply as superficial as skin color. You know, Barack Obama didn't have to be a descendant of slavery, neither does Kamala. And if you raise these issues, you're the dirty dog and this and that. And that's how we have this whole gatekeeper class with the CBC and everybody's just tickle pink. It's the symbolism that is so strong and it resonates so deeply that they can't even get to the place to say, ooh, but the politics don't work. And to me, it's just sad. And when I see things like that, I could just pull my hair out. It's just awful. It's true. It's true. That's a big part of it. All right, guys, I do have to head out pretty yeah, soon. Go ahead, ladies. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Lance. Yeah. We, we got to talk about the Robbie thing, but Bree, uh, to echo something Noel said, you know, I think she's gone further from, I remember on her show a long time ago, like a year ago, I said, you know, you're doing the Democratic Party thing. It'd be like if you're the PhD in um, climate science and you demand, everybody's in, you're in demand everywhere. So I'm going to go to ExxonMobil. Yeah. Work in the renewables department and work from within. That's what the going into the Democratic Party is like and trying to work from within. And she's like, yeah, I think you be, I think you might be right. And she's, I think, almost done with the two-party system, too. And also, she is brilliant. I adore her. But she is walking a tightrope like Noel, I think Noel was talking about, you know, is that – and she's bringing – I don't know if she had something to do with you being on there and Nick, and she – and and with the whole thing with Katie, their best friends and all that stuff, they talked about it. It's not like Katie gave her permission of what to do, but I think it was like, yeah, stay in and fight the good fight. And Bree does that brilliantly. And she talks to the audience in kind of a way they understand without pulling any punches ultimately. She knows, like you, Noel said, her audiences and who she's speaking to. And she said, look, guys, when I'm home with my friends and family, I don't, I'm not, I'm, you know, she's got a professionalism. She's a journalist. Okay, a little Matt Tebius, you know. Matt Taibbi in his own way can be very cutting and caustic, but he's a journalist. He's not going to opine on things that he doesn't know about, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, as far as I did, I, so she's just, I think she's just, just great. You know, I think she would be great. Like when we had decent mainstream media that she could be a great, like anchor person, like a Walter Cronkite, not like what we have now where you have to, you know, suck up to the whole gang where you could actually run the show. Those guys made the decisions, not the, the Cronkite didn't have to read talking points, but still. He made sure the other stories got in. So, I mean, in a, in a golden era, she'd be great as a, as a national anchor, all that. But as far as Robbie, I have to say, guys, maybe in some ways I might be, look like I'm white as rice. But no, it's not. I was literally nauseated by the dude, okay? And if they don't make him do something, if they don't make him make an apology or at least clarify or, or, or have somebody on that can school him, other than maybe Bree because she's got to be there or whatever, 
that was nauseating. Okay, can I just one quick thing? So let's guy it was, if it was his car and 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 and, and somehow Robbie's worried the guy's going to lose his job and get evicted and have a bad life and become over to whatever this 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 all this stuff this saga of this person. Well, the guy had a gun on him if it's his car, number one. So that guy ain't going to lose a day of work. He got a gun on him. Stop what you're doing. He turns around with a gun. This isn't good either. Then he shoots him. Okay, that's still bad. He shot him before he turned around or anything. Number two, if it ain't his car, it's someone else's. If it's someone else's, what, you, you're going to make up a, a completely uh, a fanciful narrative? Well, what if this person, hypothetically, some person might someday down the road in years from now, so you get to blow him away? Point number three, Mr. Libertarian Robbie. Are you well, yes, because some some libertarians believe that you have no, but, a right to defend your property. No, he's just a he's just a sick sociopathic mind. Okay, and he needs to be schooled. Here's why: I don't think Rand Paul would say that as much of my dickhead. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to swear, but as much of an sob, the stop clock, Rand Paul. It, you know, I, I doubt he would say that was a good thing. I honestly do. Here's why. Because he, he did a filibuster about mass incarceration for the general cause. I mean, so he does have a couple of things that he might be decent about. Again, this is not defending Rand Paul. That's for goddamn sure. My point, though, is, um, Sabby, is that even if all that's true, what would happen, as everybody's suggesting, even if it was a $500,000 Rolls Royce that actually got stolen? And would Robbie suggest that, well, of course, for that much, if this guy went through a trial and everything or pled, he should get the death penalty? Of course not. But if it's a vigilante citizen, it's okay. That's twisted no matter how you look at it. I don't care. It's just twisted. And he's got to get called out somewhere along the way on rising. And or, and, or I, I hope somebody will encourage Bree to do another radar about it. Say, I got to comment on this because that's just, that's just like, I just can't. It's just, it literally nauseates. Yeah, it was it was pretty gross. I, I do have to say. Um, I also think I would say to people too is that um, one thing you have to understand. And again, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember how Bree came up in this conversation. Oh, the 13 year old boy case. That case. That's right. So one thing I will add as well is that you know give people time to grow. You know, like. I think I said this a while back, like someone told me that they had called in to Bree's show and said, it's about time you wake up. Like when people do wake up, let's not, <laughs> let's not say things like that. <laughs> I'm just sorry, but it's just, I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just saying like, let's not say things like that when people finally do get there. Um, and also too, I, I think people need to understand that when you do leave behind, like if you do decide to leave behind like the two-party system altogether, well, that can also affect relationships that you have with people in this space. Now, fortunately for me, I was not a part of the Bernie Sanders movement uh, for a podcast. Like I was a part of the Bernie movement, but I did not have my show at that time. So that's important for people to understand. Like my show started after that was done. It started actually right after Force the Vote because I was pissed. <laughs> so that's that's what prompted that. But um, so what people have to understand is like, I didn't come into this space during the Bernie Sanders movement. So I didn't have relationships with people in the space during that time. 
I came in after the fact, and then I got relationships with people in the space after Bernie had already lost twice and people, you know, some people were starting to move away from the squad, not even a lot. Like it's more people now than it was when I first started my show. So just keep that in mind. So I say that because it's not easy to just leave your relationships with people. And some of you may be listening. You may be like, why would someone have to leave their relationships with people? You know, Brie mentioned this when she came on Jimmy Dore's show. This was interesting because we came on the same night and she came on first and she mentioned this on Jimmy's show that like she had lost friends in this space because of force the vote. And I hate to say it, but it's, it's a reality that sometimes when you disagree with people based on strategy, yeah, you can lose friends in the space. Um, so that's something just to keep in mind. So just, just think about that in, in a oh, sense. Oh, she's like, great. I mean, she that. never, ever, she, I, I'm sorry. She never, I wasn't finished. Um, that's just something to keep in mind, like for people who may feel like she's not moving fast enough for you or whatever, like just keep in mind again, she was Bernie Sanders press secretary and she did acknowledge on Jimmy's show that she lost friends in this space because of force the vote. And it wasn't just her, it was other people too that lost friends because of force the vote. And then there are some people who they learned how to, I guess, kind of wade in the middle a little bit so that they were kind of part of force the vote. But at the same time, like they were able to kind of walk away from it and not bring it up again so that they maintained friends on both sides. That wasn't the case, obviously, for people like Bree and Jimmy. So just just keep that in mind. You know, obviously, there's some people who had genuine like friendships with people in this space during that time. And then there are some people who, I don't know, I, I think they were just, <laughs> they were just using people for, for their exposure at that point in time. I like That's to just think something people, to think about. I like well, to think people will come back around eventually. I don't know. I don't know if Golden Clips is uh, making fun of you, Savvy, but she says Matt Gates is, Matt Gates is a fun of, is a fan of the show. Um, if anything, like, I just want to, like, uh, you know, thank, uh, Yusabi, uh, Noel, uh, Case, Lucy, Lance, Sure, and Roger, uh, especially you, Roger, like, um, I'm, I'm still gonna look into, like, uh, B.I.S. in Nevada, I haven't done it yet. Time's but, uh, no, well, I, 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 I do box a lot, I do, like, draw a lot, so, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do paint. Like a lot, so um, if anything, like I just want uh, you know, I thank you guys, you know, uh, women, ladies, uh, whatever you want to, you know, like uh, whatever your pronouns are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, right, you uh, say just, you box. You know, like, yeah, I do. Do you train for other people, or are you training? You just training? I'm training under someone right now. Uh, I know, like I work with my daughter. But I'm I'm not training like uh, professionally, you know, for people and shit like that. But, but I I know like uh, how to do this. So, 
I, I was just curious because I, I know that's something that I would love to get into tra- um, botching training, but it costs so much money. But then as I'm developing this mutual aid website, I'm like, it would be cool if somebody was on there. I don't know where you live, would do mutual aid where they have class oh, to Vegas. teach other people boxing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Vegas. Yeah. Oh, you're in Vegas. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. I was thinking, like, even for me, I would teach people how to swim. Like in my area, of, I'm in New Jersey. You know, that's something I might be able to teach people at a public school. So, okay. Well, just curious. well if anything, like I, I know enough to like teach, but uh, mm-hmm. if anything, like I'm, I'm still gonna like continue to work, you know, in the gym and shit like that. So, a lot of it's just uh, footwork and you know, just you know, putting your you know feet where it needs to be and shit like that, and throwing a punch, you know, mm-hmm. in the strong one. So. Mm, yeah, well, I know nothing about up, that. You guys, Case and Bryce, you guys hook up on Twitter or something. But um, I, I do have to get going. But I do want to just shout out. Don't forget, guys, Rage Against the War Machine, February nineteenth in DC. I will be there. Um, Misty, oh. Comrade Misty, is coming on Friday, and she's going to talk about 